Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. Wittellis is being recorded live and broadcast live on December 12th, 2020. This is a Saturday. The show is expected to be on Friday, December 11th. It's very simple why it was not on Friday. I was too tired last night. I kind of had a weird sleep schedule going on this week, and I thought it would be okay. I even took a nap before the show, but it came to the showtime, and I'm like, I can't do this. I, I won't be able to sit here for hours and do a good show. I could, like, feel that way and finish, like, the last hour of the show and do okay. There just, there was no way with that energy level that I was going to be able to do the long show we always do. So I said, you know what? I could either do a really crappy show and struggle through it and hate life as I'm doing it, or I could just delay it one more day. And I chose to delay it one more day. And it looks like no big deal because the main thing we were doing at the beginning of the show was already recorded on Wednesday. If you're here to listen to the replay of the interview I had with Eric Benzamokin from Wednesday night, that is Wednesday, December 9th, where we were discussing the very, very interesting updates in the Mike Possel situation, you are in the right place. After I'm finished with the intro here, we will get right to that. Keep in mind that was recorded three days ago on December 9th, and we are replaying it now because that was the plan the whole way. In fact, we were hoping to just do it live tonight, and then the story started breaking from other sources. So we just decided we're going to do this on Wednesday night when it was more relevant, more hot off the presses, and then we're going to play it tonight. But the rest of the show is going to be live, so don't be confused by that. You'll hear a portion of the show. And then you're going to hear the rest of the show, which is live, as it always is. So I'm not going to trick anyone here. I'm not going to pretend it was live when it wasn't. It's going to be a three days ago replay, and it's about an hour long. And then we'll return to the live show. And if you already heard that on Wednesday night, you can just skip through it. Anyway, let's do the intro and get going here. We have a free roll tonight on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Starts at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Make sure to check out the rules as far as winning the free money on PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. That's all lowercase, exactly as it sounds. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. You can learn about the rules to win the free money, which we give away every week. We are the only poker radio show or podcast that has a weekly free roll. I bet you can't find any other show like this in the world that has a weekly free roll for actual cash. It's actual cash. I will pay you. By various methods, I can pay you by Zelle, Cash App, Bitcoin, of course. Can't do it with PayPal. I don't have a PayPal anymore, but can do it in uh, various other ways. Bank transfer is one of them. So let me know which way you'd like to get paid. I can probably send it to you. I can't send you money on ACR. I get that question a lot. I cannot send you money on ACR. I don't play there. It takes place on the Poker Fraud Alert, No Fraud Online Poker Room. You need a separate account to get in there. And if you don't have an account yet, you're not going to play this week because it has to be validated. And we're not validating it until later this week. But sign up now if you like, and you can be validated for next week. We do check every account to make sure that there's no multi-accounting or any shenanigans going on for the free money that is so generously donated by the users each week. Tonight we have $100 to give away, all of it coming from, yes, our most generous donor, attorney Eric Benzamokin. $100 being given by him, very, very generous, and we are paying four spots this week. $50 for first, $25 for second, $15 for third, $10 for fourth. That's $50, $25, $15, and $10. So thank you very much, Eric. Okay, if you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 
Of course, don't call during the recorded segment because there will not be an answer. During the rest of the show, if you want to call in, wait till we say we're taking phone calls or wait in between segments. That's the best time to call. Otherwise, I may not take your call. I may not want to be distracted. We have an alternate phone number to the show, the Mount Charleston line. It's an old 70s rotary telephone located on the top of Mount Charleston, which is a mountain near Las Vegas. It's in a cabin there. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. The Mount Charleston line is a separate line into the show. If you want to listen to the show on your phone, there is a way to do so. And I'm talking about without an app, without a smartphone, Without a data plan, all you need is any phone in the world that was ever made that can dial a number in the U.S. That phone number is 605-313-0736. It's the call to listen line, 605-313-0736, or the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. Does not require a smartphone, does not require an app, does not require a data plan, does not require a good signal does not require the internet or a computer. All you need to do is just call this number and listen. It's that simple. It never buffers, never freezes. It just works. Over one million minutes have been listened to on the Call to Listen line. It's been a rousing success in the five years it's been up, and it will continue going forward. The Call to Listen line, one of the unique features of this show. We have a chat room. It's a chat room that no longer requires Flash. It will work with any device, including your smartphone. Just go to the chat button near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. However, you do need a forum account in good standing, meaning it's validated and has not been banned. So if you're new to the site and has not been validated yet, you won't be able to get in there. But otherwise, go right in. Works with any device. It's a different chat room that we had for many years. I recently updated it. So give it a try. The radio player has been updated, as I've mentioned before, in the last uh, two months or so. The radio player on the radio tab now works with any device if you're listening live. If you want to catch the show in the archives, and yes, I say archives like this on purpose. I always get people correcting me, saying, uh, I love the show, except you don't know how to say the word archives. And I say, yes, I do. It's archives. So if you want to listen in the archives, go to one of the following apps. You can go to iTunes. You can go to Stitcher. You can go to TuneIn or Spotify or Google Podcasts or iHeartMedia. We are on all those apps. You can also just play or download the MP3 file from the Radio Archives forum on Poker Fraud Alert. Just go to the Radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert, scroll down to the Archives section. You'll see all the little icons you can click on to go to any of these formats to listen and it'll just take you directly there, and it'll even give you a download link for these apps if you don't have them yet. If there's a way you want me to, if you want, there's a way you want to listen to the show that I don't provide yet, then let me know, and I'll see if I can add it. If it's not too much trouble and doesn't cost me too much money, I will add that. I want options. I want as many ways possible to listen to the show. I hate radio shows and podcasts that try to force me to listen the way they want. I want you to listen the way you want, and I'm not kidding. I find it tilting to try to listen to podcasts, and it's a pain in the ass. And I go, this is too much effort. I don't want you to put in effort to listen. I want it to be an effortless experience. I do not want that to be a barrier to entry here. If you want to listen to me, I'm happy to have you. 
If you want to text me during the show at any time or before the show or after the show or any time you feel like it, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you just had a terrible dream and you want to tell me about it, you can do that too, as long as it's not a dirty dream. I really don't want to hear that. But you can text me, 775-372-8355. Our main phone number is also our text number, and I will probably respond to you. If you text me during the show, then there's a good chance I will read it on the air, so make sure to specify at the beginning if you don't want me to do that. Okay, here is the agenda tonight, and then we will get going. The first thing we're going to do is replay the segment we did on Wednesday night. That was with me, Trader Ruski, and my attorney, Eric Benzamokin. And it's about two things having to do with the Mike Possel case. First of all, Mike Possel's attorneys filed a motion to be dismissed as his counsel, which means they don't want to be his attorneys anymore. They are trying to get off the case. And Mike Postle is going to have no attorney, at least until he hires another one, provided that the motion is granted. So we'll see what happens with that. Second, and totally separate from this, though it happened to occur the same week, we have filed an anti-slap motion against this case, against Mike Postle. So basically, we're looking to get this dismissed under the anti-slap statute of California law. And uh, Mike Possel and or whatever his new attorneys are will have to defend this on February 10th. And if it is ruled in our favor, then not only will I be off the case and will I be dismissed out of it, but he will owe all of the attorney's fees up to this point that is on my end. So anything that has been racked up by this point through the work done by Eric Benzamokin will have to be paid back if that anti-slap is granted. So I'm going to go over all of that with Eric Benzamokin, and uh, Trader Ruski was on that call as well. After that, we'll go back live, and I'm going to have some additional topics, of course. A veteran poker dealer who's known as Patches, who's been around the poker scene for decades and has dealt in Vegas for a long time. In fact, if you've played in Vegas, there's a good chance he dealt to you. He got in a fight with an unruly Aria player, and this was actually while he was dealing, and he actually got into a physical fight with this guy. And Patches has apparently been fired, but most of the poker world is on his side, and he actually has a pretty good reputation in poker, and most pros like him. And it is said that the fight was the fault of this customer, but we'll discuss whether Patch's reaction was appropriate, and uh, I'll play you a video, which, of course, you're not going to be able to see, so I'll describe what's happening, I'll tell you where to find it, and then I'll give my reaction to the whole thing. I have an update for you on that pretty interesting story that's going on with the lawsuit against 21 Blitz, where the attorney bringing it against the company called Skills, that's S-K-I-L-L-Z, is none other than Mac Verstandig, who we've heard about a lot on this show, and in uh, various forms of poker news in general. And, of course, he had some connection to the Mike Possel situation since he sued Possel. That case uh, now seems to be over, but uh, obviously he had a lot of involvement in that. But Mac Verstandig is bringing that lawsuit, uh, a separate, totally separate lawsuit, of course, against 21 Blitz 
on behalf of three players on there who claim they got cheated by the company's skills. Two of them were big winning players on there who claim that uh, their accounts were closed and they got their money confiscated unfairly. And they also claim they were cheated. And then uh, a third player was a losing player on there who claims that they were deceived into losing money. Uh, so I covered this extensively back in September, and I have an update for you. I always update these stories when I can. I don't just like leaving you hanging, because if you listen to that whole thing, you're probably wondering how it's going. So I decided to look into this this week, and I have an update for you on the 21 Blitz case. Daniel Negreanu and Doug Polk are going at it, and I will give you an update on how that is going. It was going really well for Doug, and Daniel had a post-game meltdown in an interview he had, which we will definitely play for you. And then Daniel had a little bit of redemption, and that's where it stands now. But for more details, wait for the segment, and I will tell you everything, what's going on and where it stands at the moment. High-stakes poker is something that goes back way before 2020 to 2010. That was the last time we saw new high-stakes poker episodes. That was really a beloved poker series. People enjoyed it. And uh, it was something a lot of people missed, that a lot of people think of high-stakes poker as something indicative of poker's heyday prior to Black Friday changing the entire poker landscape in April 2011. High-stakes poker, after a 10-year hiatus, is returning. And apparently there's a lot of big action on there, a lot of huge pots, a lot of very big names from the past and present in high-stakes poker in the 2020 version that is coming to Poker Go. I'm going to play you a trailer. I will give you some descriptions of things I've heard that have happened. And I will tell you who is hosting it. Might be some familiar names. Everything old is new again. The Palazzo has decided to close down. You cannot stay at the Palazzo anymore. They have completely closed the hotel. And other hotels around Vegas have shut down midweek. So Vegas really struggling and things are not getting better. Maybe when the coronavirus vaccine comes out and goes into uh, wide adoption that things will change. But at the moment, it's tough in Vegas. And I will tell you what's going on with Palazzo and the other hotels there and what we can expect in the next few months. Harris New Orleans is going to be going through a change. They're going to become Caesars New Orleans. But it's not just a name change. They're going to be doing a major renovation and a major expansion. And it's going to be a while away. 2024 is the projected finish date of Caesars New Orleans. But I've stayed there before. I'll give you my impression of the property and my impression of this change. It's also going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost $325 million, according to Caesars. I have some coronavirus news for you. The numbers keep getting worse. The U.S. death toll is now over 300,000. That was actually my initial estimate as to how many would perish from the coronavirus. Clearly, I'm going to come in uh, too low on that one because we reached it today, and that's very unfortunate. But uh, 300,000 people approximately have died of the coronavirus in the U.S., and we're currently seeing deaths at a rate of over 3K per day, and it might get even worse. I'm going to talk about that and tell you why. Regarding the vaccine, the coronavirus vaccine, we're going to talk about a bizarre recommendation by the CDC suggesting that young people get priority for the vaccine over middle-aged people. You heard me right. Young people, ones who are not very susceptible to bad effects of the coronavirus, uh, the CDC 
actually recommend that they get it before middle-aged people who do have a lot of bad effects of the coronavirus and sometimes even die. So why would the CDC ever recommend this? And do they have control over the situation? Will this be the reality? I will discuss this during that segment. Finally, there has been some talk lately about how black people and Hispanic people in the U.S. have worse COVID outcomes than white people. And that's a statistical fact. It really is true that black people and Hispanic people do worse once they have COVID. They also get COVID more often than white people, but that's easier to explain because they're in situations like uh, jobs where they uh, uh, can't stay home. They can't work from home. A lot of them have to go to jobs in settings where it's risky to catch the coronavirus, so more of them are catching it. Okay, that makes sense. But we're not going to really talk about that as much. What we're going to talk about is the fact that they also die at a higher rate once they have it. And, of course, that has nothing to do with their job because the, the question here is how come once they have the coronavirus – they don't survive as well as white people do. And there's been some theories thrown around as to why that is. I'm going to give you my take on the situation. And uh, I will also tell you what some of the narratives have been regarding that and why you should watch out. You shouldn't believe everything you hear. You sometimes have to sanity check what you're hearing, especially if it's a politically charged narrative. So that'll be our final topic of the evening. Yes, we're going back in time now here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Only three days to Wednesday, December 9th. You will hear the conversation with me, Eric Benzamokin, my attorney, and co-host Trey Daruski about the recent news in the Mike Puzzle story. So here we go. I will see you back live in about an hour. Mike Postle is suing a lot of uh, prominent poker pros, most of them being ones who are much more prominent than I am. I'm one of the smaller names in this suit, but uh, I am still a defendant, and I retained Poker Fraud Alert radio listener and contributor Eric Benzamokin, who is, of course, an attorney, as my attorney to defend this meritless and frivolous lawsuit that uh, Mike Postle has brought against me and uh, these various other parties. Now, you guys know that if you've been paying attention, but there's a major development which occurred this week. I actually found out about it on Monday, but I planned to hold this information back until Friday's show because I thought it would be a good thing for radio, and the story hadn't broken yet, so I figured, yeah, we'll just break it on Friday. Well, my fear was that perhaps this would not make it to Friday because I had a feeling this might get out if this was filed, because I, I heard about this before it was filed, but I was afraid that uh, it would be filed and then people would be looking in the Sacramento court system and find the news that I'm going to be breaking on Friday, and uh, the whole thing would become a big story before I could even touch it on Friday Night Radio, and indeed that has happened. Several people have approached me today and told me they know about it, and then Mac Verstandig has tweeted out that this has happened. So now the cat is out of the bag and we're going to discuss this tonight so everybody can understand what's going on and they can understand what I'm going to do. Because not only am I going to describe what's going on with Mike Postle and with his attorneys, but I'm going to tell you about what I am doing personally as a defendant in this case, which also has not been announced anywhere 
we we have filed something of our own that is unrelated to this. They they both happen to have occurred this week, but they're completely unrelated to one another. It's a coincidence that we have two announcements at once. Our plan was to make announcements as we saw fit, according to when things were done and when when it was appropriate and smart to make these announcements as far as the timing is concerned. And uh, we had one planned for this Friday anyway, only to have this major development occur. And this major development affects all plaintiffs, or all defendants, not just me. So we're going to get on a few people here. We're going to get on uh, regular co-host Trey Daruski, who's with me just about every week. And I asked him, do you want to be in on this? And he said, yes, so let's find him. Then we're going to get on attorney Eric Benzamokin to talk about what's going on here. What's happening, Jeff? Hello, Trader Ruski. Thank you for being available on such short notice. Hey, you caught me at the perfect time. Yeah, I thought maybe. I think you know what? Trader Ruski probably hasn't gone to bed yet. I think I think this is good. I think we can get him here tonight. And of course, you can jump in wherever you see fit. Trader Ruski is not part of this case. Uh, I am, of course. I am one of the defendants, and Eric Benzamokin, I'm about to put him on, and he is my attorney. Uh, Trader Ruski is just an observer. He's just uh, someone seeing this from the outside. Let me bring on uh, Eric. Uh, I'll tell you, it, it kind of surprises me, and it kind of doesn't. I, I wouldn't say I was expecting this, but when I heard it, I wasn't shocked. That's, we'll tell you everything we can here. You're probably going to learn a lot more from this show regarding this case and what we're doing about this case than anything I've discussed thus far. We haven't been able to say much thus far because it's an ongoing court case. You know how that goes. Right. But uh, the, the plan the whole way was and still is to release as much information as we can and as is prudent to do as it comes up. So uh, here's here's the man who's going to help me release this information, Eric Benzamokin, my attorney. Hi, good evening. Good evening to you, and uh, I, I hear that you are – all better from COVID. You have a negative test result, and you don't have any after effects. Everything seems fine. Yes, thank goodness. Everything seems back to normal, and uh, there was a little bit of lingering fatigue the first few days after the negative test, but even that seems to have passed at this point. That is beautiful, and that's uh, great, Eric. Great, thank you, awesome. thank you. And, and my my other uh, good friend here, uh, Master Ken Scaler, he he keeps testing positive, but he has also completely recovered he has no after effects at all and he's he feels as good as he did before this happened but he he just tested positive again yesterday he's been testing positive for like six weeks it's it's very frustrating for him but anyway we're not here that's to exact i'm sorry that's the exact thing that's happening to my father right now oh really oh interesting yeah he and he just got another positive result today from a test monday and but he's had zero symptoms for three four five weeks wow feels completely normal yeah, I, I wonder how common that is. But I, I told Ken, that I, I feel for you, but I told him you may have to deal with this for months now with, with this positive test. You know, there, there's a few things he needs the positive test for or the negative test for that he's not getting. And I said, you're just going to have to be patient. It's going to eventually come, but who knows when. But he's he's very upset. But anyway, we're not going to talk about uh, COVID anymore. The, the reason people are listening tonight, the reason I dropped everything to do this, and so has Eric and even Trey Daruski, the reason we've dropped everything to do this show with zero notice on Wednesday night is because there's a major development with the Mike Possel case where he is the plaintiff against me and several other defendants. So I uh, see even Eric's dog is excited about that. Or is that your dog, Trader? Yeah. Who, who's, whose dog is that? 
No, that that's my rapper. He every time. Okay. <laughs> well, Trade Risky's got a, a dog that uh, he spends a lot of time with too. So I, I didn't know which which one of you uh, had the dog here, but that's okay. The dog is overly exuberant about the situation, and that's understandable. So okay, We're, I'm going to uh, give a quick intro here. In early October, actually on October first, I got the news before I was. Uh, even formally made aware of it, I got the news that I was going to be the defendant in a lawsuit filed by Mike Possle for uh, defamation. It was filed against me and uh, I think like about 10 other defendants. Uh, some very, very prominent names there. The list of defendants in this case is Veronica Brill, the original whistleblower, ESPN, Joey Ingram, Haralaboth Vulgaris, Daniel Negranu, Upswing Poker, which is really aimed at Doug Polk, Poker News, Crush Life Poker, which is really aimed at Bart Hansen, Jonathan Little Holdings, which of course is aimed at Jonathan Little, Sulphur Y Academy, which of course is aimed at Matt Berkey, me, Run It Once, which of course is aimed at Phil Galfond, and then there's the 1 through 1,000 John Doe's, which probably won't play into anything. We've explained that before. This was uh, for $330 million, which is absurd. The whole lawsuit was absurd. The whole thing was frivolous. It was kind of just meant to, to harass everybody here, in my opinion. And I, uh, I, I, nonetheless, I had to deal with it, which is, which is very frustrating. It's very frustrating when you are the defendant in a frivolous lawsuit, and, uh, and that was definitely happening here. So uh, I retained Eric Benzamokin, who happens to be a uh, listener to the show and is a, a friend of mine. And uh, from, in fact, partially from him coming on the show, and giving legal advice and legal analysis, uh, I, I could tell that uh, this wasn't just an attorney who listened, who uh, enjoyed the show. I could tell this that he was very competent. I could tell he was a, a very good attorney, and I was uh, very confident with letting him uh, represent me here. And uh, so we have uh, two things to talk about tonight involving the case. And uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is the big news in the case itself, not about me personally in the case, but about this applies to everybody here. There's been a major development involving Mike Possel's attorneys. And Eric, why don't you go ahead and tell people what happened? All right. So on Monday, before it became an official part of the court record, uh, I was served with a notice and a motion for Mike Possel's attorneys to be relieved as his counsel. Essentially, it's uh, a requirement that when something happens with an attorney and their client or some kind of breakdown in the attorney-client relationship, the attorney needs to seek court approval to be relieved or be allowed to withdraw from the case. That motion was filed Monday, and that is set for hearing now January 14th. Possible attorneys cite, and, and you have to say they have to be extremely broad because the attorney-client privilege is still uh, active even while this motion is pending um, and would continue to be in place uh, assuming the court allows them to withdraw, uh, they still have to maintain privilege. So there's some very vague uh, reasoning, and that's always how these motions go. Um, and the the key point or the takeaway, and you know, we can give you an educated guess as to what this all means, but essentially it is the uh, that Mike Fossil has not um, fulfilled his end of their agreements 
and the there is no detail behind that other than that statement. Well, there's a little detail actually. If, if you don't, if you don't mind, uh, I, I interrupt for a second. No, no, not at all. No. I, I have I have it in front of me here. Uh, one of these uh, documents they filed called a declaration in support of attorney's motion to be relieved as counsel, and there's two things mentioned. And by the way, as Eric said, this is all in the public record. So uh, I'm not revealing secrets to you guys. This has all been filed with the court in Sacramento. But uh, here are the two pieces of information which were given in this document. First thing it says is, client has failed to comply with the written agreement between the firm and the client, and communications has otherwise ceased between client and attorney. And then related to that, the second thing it says is, while client has been unresponsive to phone calls, emails and letters for approximately one month. Up to November 3rd, firm was in regular email, telephone, and text communication with clients. So it looks like that since November 3rd, Mike Postle has completely shut down as far as communication with his attorneys and has uh, just not answered them in any way, shape, or form. This is what his attorneys are claiming in this filing, that they that he was responding to them regularly up till November 3rd, and then since November 3rd, there's been... Absolutely no response of any kind. So that's why they are, and and then they also said, if you mentioned, if I, uh, we go back to the first thing, client has failed to comply with the written agreement between the firm and the client. So uh, you might have some guesses as to what that means because they have an agreement together. Well, I I even asked my son, who's 10 years old, what he thinks. (laughs) And uh, I said, Benjamin, what do you think that means? And he said, I think that means that, uh, he hasn't been paying. And I said, uh, that, that is a very good guess. Is that what you would say, Eric? That's a guess? Yeah, that's probably 99% accurate uh, as far as why uh, an attorney will move to be relieved as counsel. There's really only one other reason. Well, there's a few. Uh, an attorney can seek to be relieved as counsel if a client has been untruthful or intentionally misled an attorney as to you know the uh, facts behind a case or a filing. And an attorney can seek to withdraw if there is a breakdown in the attorney-client relationship, meaning there is a distinct disagreement in legal strategy. And that usually happens when a client wants an attorney to do a certain thing or proceed in a certain manner, file a certain motion, and the attorney knows it to be frivolous or unethical and refuses and there's a breakdown. The most common is when there's some kind of payment arrangement or an attorney works hourly and the client simply doesn't pay um, their bill. And an attorney is not required uh, to enter into indentured servitude to a client, you know, that's not paying uh, and to continue taking on a case, even though they started it. So I would guess, you know, as an educated guess, that it's probably that Paul's just not paying his bill. Yeah, that's what I would think too. Cause the, the other factors you mentioned uh, weren't listed on this, uh, uh, motion. This uh, declaration of support. It didn't mention that uh, there's a disagreement, and it, it didn't mention that uh, they found he was untruthful. It just mentioned that they he violated the agreement, and and that uh, he has not communicated with them in a month. Which it it could be the other things because violating the agreement, of course, as as he said, is kind of broad. And there's a lot of things uh, that the client can agree to in whatever that we, we don't know what their written agreement is because we haven't seen it, but. Uh, but yeah, this is a good chance this is about payment. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter because this has been filed in Sacramento court. Now, question for you, Eric. 
What chance do you think it is that this will be granted by the judge? Uh, this will be on January 14th, so it's not going to happen right away. It's going to have to wait uh, more than a month. But uh, in about five weeks or so, when this is heard on January 14th, what do you think the chances are that this is going to be granted and that uh, Mike Possible will, will no longer have this firm representing him? Well, the only way it's not going to be granted, in my opinion, is if somehow there's a reconciliation between attorney and client. Um, and sometimes it takes the filing of a motion like this for the client to sort of snap back into reality and say, okay, okay, I better figure out how to do something or work something out with you guys or or can we change the agreement to do this or whatever it is. Um, the fact that he doesn't seem to be communicating with his attorney leads me to believe that if an effort like that were made, it was fruitless. Um, but short of that, uh, the courts are generally uh, pretty liberal about granting these motions for these types of reasons. You know, um, Attorneys, again, uh, even large firms, uh, simply can't carry large unpaid balances, especially in a case like this. You've got 10-plus defendants. You've got uh, the next thing we'll talk about is, you know, a pending motion to strike already uh, from us. Um, you know, my understanding is nobody else has been served officially, uh, which may be, which is also kind of odd. That's very odd, in yeah. In a case like this. Yeah. But nonetheless, there's still a ton of work that this law firm would have to do, plus whatever time they've already put in in drafting the complaint, and, you know, even the time dealing with me, uh, earlier on um, and things like that. So usually the courts will grant a motion like this. Uh, attorneys are not expected to, you know, essentially for, you know, be forced to remain uh, counsel of record, especially if they're not being paid. Yeah, so very interesting developments well, here. What, I'm sorry, can I jump in? Yeah, go, yeah, you can go, by all means. Let me ask Eric a quick question. So, so um, Eric, but, I mean, I would have imagined they would have taken it on, on, uh, on, on contingency, Right? I mean, not, you, not if they're smart. <laughs> yeah, not if they're smart. What? So you, you think he was really forking over? But if you, if they weren't doing that, I mean, that law firm would have probably been a minimum of what? 20K retainer at least? Uh, I, I mean, I'd be I mean, speculating, I but I, well, let me, let me tell you, I can tell you what I would charge. To take on a case like this, I would never do it on contingency. Mo- I, I, I mean, most reputable attorneys or attorneys that understand this area of law probably wouldn't do it on contingency either. These are very difficult cases to win: defamation, libel, uh, slander. It's a very, very high standard to, uh, you know, proceed and, and, beca- and, and be victorious in a case like this, especially dealing with somebody that, uh, without getting into the minutia of the law, but you know, somebody that could be considered at the very least a limited purpose public figure. Um, you know, dealing with uh, where, you know, the Internet, for example, is considered a public forum that's meant to entice debate. And there's a lot of standards, you know, for this. So uh, I, I would probably not take it for less than 15 to 20 to start a uh, thousand. And, you know, depending on how much uh, fighting all the defendants are going to do, that could be sapped up pretty quick, you know, within the first month. And, you know, if they're billing at five, six hundred an hour, you know, this Beverly Hills firm, and apparently they're they're known to be like an entertainment firm that takes on these complex litigation matters. They're probably billing in the, you know, six, seven hundred dollar an hour range. Uh, you know, thirty grand is could go just like that. Fifty hours is not that much time in in this type of litigation. That that's you know, two to three weeks that that could be sapped up like that. You know. Totally. So, I mean, so, right. So I just can't imagine. I mean, see, because I mean, I guess when I first saw this, I said, oh, okay, obviously they're going after ESPN 
And maybe the, the law firm's thinking they can make a quick buck. And then we'll throw Drop and, and all these other people in, too. So you really don't think it was that? They would have taken it, done some type of thing with a back-end deal? I just can't see this guy forking over 15 grand. Apostle, I mean, he cheated a lot, but, I mean, how much did he have cash, right? Allegedly, allegedly. Well, it, well, it, it, it may not. If you, if you let me let, let me just jump in for a second. Uh, one thing we don't know, but is a, is a question that we would be getting into if uh, this case were to proceed uh, far, which I hope it doesn't. But uh, if it were to, one of the things that, uh, of course, would be questioned is where the funding came from here, and uh, we we don't know. We don't know who is paying for this. It it may not be him. It may be him. We don't know right now, but uh, it is possible that somebody else was funding it. It is possible that uh, there are reasons that third parties would want to see this happen. Uh, a, a famous case, a fairly famous case that happened in recent years, which was funded by a third party, was the uh, Hulk Hogan sex tape case against Gawker, where, which was funded by, uh, by Peter Thiel. Yeah, Peter Thiel did it, and he actually did this as revenge against Gawker because they outed him as gay when he wasn't ready for that to happen yet, or maybe he didn't ever want to be outed, but he was outed as gay, and he's he's a billionaire, and he was really pissed at Gawker, and when they called him for comment, uh, Peter said, don't run this story or you're going to be sorry, and they said... Yeah, too bad. You're not going to tell us what to do. They ran the story. Uh, there wasn't anything he could do about that because it was the truth. He was gay. So he, he waited. He waited for an opportunity to get them. And then he saw when they did do something, which he could get them, but it wasn't him. It was Hulk Hogan who had to get them. So uh, I don't know how much money Hulk Hogan had, but uh, Peter Thiel had much more. And he bankrolled uh, this lawsuit against Gawker, and, and they destroyed them. And Gawker actually had to... Uh, sell because they 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 lost a tremendous lawsuit for like hundreds of millions of dollars. So that was that was a, a very well known lawsuit in recent times where uh, it wasn't for defamation, but uh, uh, it was a lawsuit in recent times where a third party bankrolled it because the third party had an interest. In this case, their interest was revenge. So there's uh, there can be many cases like this where someone will want to bankroll somebody else, and th- that might be happening here. It might not be, but. Uh, Whatever it is, uh, this is all broken down. First, I assume, like, maybe they did it on contingency for the reason I stated earlier, but then he just had to pay, like, out-of-pocket costs that maybe was a few grand and he couldn't even... Well, so what I was going to say is that some there are some firms that will do sort of like a hybrid where they take a retainer, an initial retainer, and usually it's enough to at least get the case going for, you know, the first 30 or 45 days or 60 days. And then it's kind of a percentage of recovery. Uh, and if the percentage of the recovery exceeds the retainer, they get the retainer back as credit and the attorney gets the percentage instead or whichever is greater. So, I mean, there's some situations like that. I don't think that's what happened here, uh, but but there can be certain things worked out. The They're also uh, in line with like the Hulk Hogan and the third party financing there are companies that provide litigation finance, uh, law firms that may have great rock-solid cases against a very large, wealthy, deep-pocket entity uh, will often be outspent and just can't withstand. Uh, so there are companies that will come in and provide very high interest, very expensive money, but they'll finance these lawsuits and pay for experts and all these things that you need. So a perfect example of a case like that would be uh, the Aaron Brockovich saga and, 
you know, going after the water companies and the utility companies for contamination and things like that. You know, that type of litigation, these mass torts, they can go on for five, six, seven, eight, ten years. And law firms spend, in some cases, you know, seven figures prosecuting or defending. Uh, now, for uh, a large utility company or, or a company like Dow Chemical, uh, $3 million legal budget really, a, you know, for them, a, a drop in the bucket. You know, but for a law firm that has to pay those costs and run up that time, especially on a contingency type of deal, that could bankrupt the law firm. They can put them out of business. So there are third-party companies that will step in and, you know, for, you know, 12% or 15% interest on the money or whatever, uh, will finance these cases and they'll review and they'll decide if they're uh, worthy of uh, prosecuting or going after and so on. And then the, the last sort of thing, and again, I'm just speculating as far as Mike Postle goes, but it could be that there was a private agreement between Mike and some money source and that money source got cold feet because they realized that this was going to be a very expensive, long uphill battle. And they got that first sort of bill and Mike passed it on to, you know, the person that was, you know, maybe paying for this. And the guy said, well, are you crazy? This is, you know, I never thought this would be that expensive. And, you know, nobody's going to sell here. Nobody's going to do this. And so, uh, you know, maybe that dried up that way. And it could even be that the law firm that was initially hired had no idea that there's a third party paying for it. So, you know, any one of those things could happen. But I think the bottom line is, that the law firm is backing out of this because they're not being paid and they, they've got a lot of stuff coming up uh, vis-a-vis from us uh, that they're going to have to deal with uh, as well. Right. So there's going to be work they're going to have to do in the, in the near future. And, yeah, the, the, what, the other oddity here, and it was mentioned earlier in this uh, little uh, mini-show we're doing, Nobody's been served yet, to my knowledge. I, I've asked around and uh, to other defendants. I'm not in contact with every single one of the defendants, and definitely not like ESPN. There's no contact I have with them. But uh, the defendants I have been in contact with, which is multiple defendants, I've asked them recently, have any of you been served? And the answer was no. So that that's a big oddity here, because this was filed on uh, October 8th, and... Uh, or not October, I think October 1st. We, we, yeah, October 1st it was filed. So since it was filed October 1st, then the question becomes, why wouldn't they have served anybody in over two months? It's a, And by the way, um, we were never even officially served. Uh, Eric presented himself and just basically said, uh, I, I'm Todd's attorney, you can sue me, you can serve me. Now, it, it's a moot point, but uh, I haven't officially been served, right? Yeah, I mean, we accepted service in the sense because it was already out there, in the, you know, on the internet. Um, and so, at that point, what, you know, why wait? Because we, I mean, at this point, the cat's sort of out of the bag in the sense that we decided to take a, a more aggressive strategy and not just sort of sit back and wait for service or whatever. We decided that we were going to uh, attack the complaint uh, right away and as expeditiously as possible to, to sort of end this. You know, I don't want to call it a nightmare, but you know, to sort of end this whole situation for you and <laughs> right. And but that's but, it. So but, but before you before you get to that, five six seven months. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to ask, and I really don't know the answer. I'm not just asking for everybody's benefit. Um, was I actually formally served? I know you've been communicating with the attorneys, and we've acknowledged it, and you and uh, so we would never claim I wasn't served. But but at the same time, uh, uh, was I served in any way, or was your interaction with the attorney back and forth uh, e- equivalent to service? I don't I, I I don't know the answer to this one. Yeah, that's, that's essentially acceptable service when an attorney contacts the opposing counsel and says, I'll accept service on this client's behalf. Um, that way you don't have to worry about oh, okay. it. So, okay, so, send me the lawsuit, serve me, and then, 
And at that point, we filed our answer, uh, and and we've taken our next step. Okay, so 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 I've been served, but only because we forced it on them. We basically forced my service on them, and then uh, the the other defendants, as far as I know, have not done this. So I believe none of them have even been served yet. Right. At least I haven't seen any proofs of service filed on the on the court docket yet. Yeah, and nobody's told me they have been. So, like, I, the ones I've been in contact with, all of them have told me they have not been. As I said, I've been in contact with uh, multiple defendants here. So that is really odd. And uh, how long do they have to uh, for, for service to be done? By, I'm not talking about people avoiding service or anything like that. That's not just like it's, it looks like it's not being attempted. So given that it's not being attempted, or at least that's what I believe to be the case, how long would it be till this whole thing were to fall apart anyway? Well, so it's an interesting question because usually what happens is right after the lawsuit is filed, there's a summons and a complaint. It gets onto the court docket. It's assigned to a particular department or a particular judge. And a lot of times what they'll do is that judge will issue what's called an OSC, or an order to show cause, raise service, and they'll set it for like six months or four months out or depending on how busy the court is. In Los Angeles, it can be nine months out. And essentially, the party that started the, the initiated the litigation has almost all that time to actually serve everybody and file the proofs of service. Now, generally, as a best practice, you want to kind of do it right away. Just get everybody served, and, or you start to understand at least who you're going to have a difficult time serving, right? Who's evading service, who's no longer at the address you thought they were. So you kind of take this on right away. What's odd in this case is that there are several LLCs and entities that are being sued that all have registered agents for service or process, you know, and that's, that's a legal requirement to have an active company. So serving businesses is like super easy, right? Because you just serve the registered agent. Uh, it's, it's serving individuals that can become difficult. So the fact that they haven't bothered to serve ESPN, uh, upswing poker, uh, poker news, um, you know, crush live poker, uh, and so on, uh, run at once, that, that's kind of odd. You know, these are all, companies with registered agents for service to process, and it's pretty easy to, you know, get them served. Yeah, it looks like there's been no attempt, and that's uh, one of the many bizarre elements of this whole case. Uh, I, I've been discussing this case with, with people uh, in my family and with my girlfriend, and, and everybody agrees it's, it's such a, a strange case in, in a lot of different ways, and now this is yet another wrinkle here where Mike Postle's attorneys say that he has not uh, responded to them in over a month, and they've uh, filed paperwork to get out. So uh, let, let's get to the next part of this here. The next part, which has really nothing to do with the first part, other than the first part's going to impact the second part, but we were doing the second part here anyway. Uh, we had not revealed up until now what we were going to do uh, legally in response to this. We said we're going to be fighting it, but that's we left it at that for the moment. But uh, something has been done, something has been filed, and it's now part of the public record, so we are going to be putting that out there. So go ahead, Eric, uh, let people know. What am I doing in response to this lawsuit? All right. So I want to clarify. I want to clarify something first. In that, uh, this has been submitted for filing, and the courtesy copy of our papers have been delivered to the department in Sacramento. It hasn't appeared on the docket yet, but that's just a, a formality at this point. Uh, I've already served notice uh, to Mike Postle's attorneys, because at least for now, they're still his attorneys. And I served my call directly with his last known address, and, and I also sent an email to his last known email address uh, pursuant to a proof of service that his own attorneys filed. 
And what, what we filed, and it's set for hearing February 10th in Department 53 in the Sacramento County Superior Court, is a special motion to strike pursuant to CCP 425.16, commonly known as anti-slap. For listeners that don't know what anti-slap is, anti-slap is legislation that was passed in California to deal with frivolous, frivolous lawsuits that are meant to uh, chill somebody's free speech or to affect uh, an issue of public policy or public uh, awareness. And the California legislators, legislature essentially passed this code section to punish people that file these frivolous lawsuits. And if the party that files the anti-slap motion prevails by statute, that party is now entitled to all of their attorney's fees and costs involved in bringing that motion. Plus, it dismisses, if they prevail on the motion, it also dismisses or strikes the entire complaint in its entirety. The, it's a 43-page motion, and we have uh, filed it with the Sacramento County Superior Court. We've sent notice to Mike Possel and his still current counsel, uh, and a courtesy copy of our motion and moving papers has already been delivered to Department 53 in Sacramento. So we are on calendar for February 10th at 1.30 p.m. Mike is going to have an additional challenge here. I, I felt he already was going to have a pretty tough challenge beating this anti-slap motion that Eric just filed on my behalf because, as I said, uh, uh, the, the case he has is weak, and, and it really the, this is what anti-slap will very often get dismissed, something just like this. So it's, it would be hard for him to beat anyway with attorneys, but if he has no attorney, uh, he will have to either just not show up or, or try to do it himself. Now, now, what happens on February 10th if he just has no attorney and he just doesn't show? Then what happens? Do I win that automatically? Usually, yes, uh, if there's no opposition filed. Um, but, the, but the judge still has a duty to read our papers and decide if it's merit, you know, merit full or meritless. Uh, as far as our motion goes, um, again, I have no doubt that there's a tremendous amount of merit in the special motion to strike under the anti-slap statute. But nonetheless, a judge has to make a finding of that, uh, even without any opposition. It's, it's it, you know, it's not automatic in that sense. But uh, again, it's not. I don't, you know, if there's no nobody opposing it and no counter arguments are being raised, then uh, you know, I don't think a judge is going to have much choice but to rule in our favor. Um, you know, and going back to the statute itself, you know, this was um, this was enacted in 1992, and real and the acronym SLAP, by the way, stands for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation, and anti-SLAP is the you know what the acronym is for this particular statute, and that's to you know stop that, stop these what are considered to be strategic lawsuits to oppress uh, someone's free speech or public participation in issues that are of uh, public interest. So a simple example related very much to this case is that if there is somebody cheating in a poker game that is in in a place that's open to the public and is meant to drive business into Stone's gambling hall, uh, and he's being touted as a wonder boy and a poker god and all these wonderful things, well, that creates a, there's a public interest in ensuring the integrity of that game. And allegations of cheating or opinions related to cheating are completely protected free speech uh, under this kind of statute. This is exactly the kind of case that this statute was enacted to prevent from happening or to punish 
if they actually go forward. You know, it's meant to be a deterrent so that somebody doesn't just throw around terms like defamation and slander and libel um, without really having uh, strong evidence behind them. Uh, you know, and, and certainly um, it's meant to ensure that people that express their free speech and that exercise their rights under the First Amendment aren't afraid to do so because they're going to get hit with a big lawsuit and have to start to spend tens of thousands of dollars defending themselves. Uh, so this falls squarely into the category that the anti-slap statute was meant to to deal with. Yeah, and I've seen anti-slap actually used by a lot of attorneys in a lot of weird spots you wouldn't expect it, some of which where it's actually used properly you just wouldn't expect it, and some where they're just really stretching, where it's, uh, they're just trying to... Uh, grasp its straws to, to get something dismissed. But this one, I mean, you, you, it's really hard to think of many cases that are more tailor-made for the anti-slap legislation than this one. So this this is, uh, I, I, anyone who knows about anti-slap, I'm sure, thought of this a long time ago as soon as they saw this case was filed, that uh, one or more defendants are going to try to use this tactic. This isn't a shocking tactic we're using, but uh, nevertheless, it's the correct one. And uh, uh, the, the thing is here, I don't believe that Mike will be able to find an attorney to take this on contingency. Maybe he will. This is You, know, you never know who will take what or for what reason, so I can't say he won't. That uh, Any attorney who wants to do it can. But uh, this is going to be challenging because, of course, any attorney who takes a case on contingency has to expect to win or they don't get paid. And I, I believe this is a weak case. And, uh, Erica, you, you believe that as well, correct? Yeah, Absolutely. I think that the the more likely scenario would be that this motion this motion to be relieved as counsel is filed and set, and this might get to where Apostle reconciles with his counsel and they figure something out. Um, I think that's a more likely scenario, and even that I think is probably you know a stretch at this point, but um, that might be the more likely uh, a new attorney to come in and take this case over from where it stands now, especially also with our motion pending. I don't, I don't think anybody's doing that, not on a contingency basis. And, by the way, what's also interesting to note, and this hasn't happened yet, this is just a general rule, not specifically related to this case, but just, you know, generally, uh, if, a, if a new attorney does come on, then the original attorneys, this loan associates out of Beverly Hills, they can file a lien, an attorney's lien, for quantum merit or all the money they're owed, and so that in the event, that there is some kind of settlement from somebody and money is supposed to go uh, to possible as a result of that settlement, they'll have a claim to that first and be paid even before the new attorney. <laughs> and, and so when well, new, right. so, so the new attorney piece, stepping in, but, you know. But does their piece come out of the new attorney fees or does it come out of possibles? Like, well, it, it depends. That would, that would, yeah, that would have to be something a new attorney would negotiate with possible right off the bat. Say, hey, look, if your firm files an attorney's lien, that comes out of your end, and that could potentially leave possible with nothing. Like, you know, let's assume, and again, this is just complete speculation on my part. Let's assume one of these companies, uh, Poker News, as an example, says, you know what, we'll give you $5,000 nuisance value because it's going to be cheaper for us to do that than to pay our attorneys, you know, to, to fight. So if you want it, here you go. And they say, okay, I'll take it. We'll take $5,000, we'll dismiss Poker News. Uh, you know, the attorneys may get 30% of that or 35% of that. And if Possible has to pay his original attorney out of his remaining 3,500 bucks, there's nothing left. So, you know, that's all, those are all risks 
you know, that come with this. When an attorney has to step into an existing case that's already started, and if there's fees owed to the other firm, it, it can become a mess. So it's harder, I think, in a case like this for, right, but there's, uh, but the, you know. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Let me just ask. But there's nothing through the, nothing through the bar that caps the attorney's fees, no matter how much it's chopped up, right? Like, you know, because I was just, I thought maybe it's not right that it would be like, I thought it was like 33% or if it goes to court 40%. And then if another well, attorney but, referred it, or if it had spent some time on it, it would have to come out of that end rather than being able to give the person less than 60%. Well, that's assuming that the first set of attorneys did this on contingency, which they're not. Right, because if they were on contingency, oh, they wouldn't have right. They wouldn't have this motion to release. Right, right. That, that's a good right. point. In fact, I, I didn't even think of that. But yeah, not that we ever assumed it was on contingencies. I, I didn't think so, and I know Eric didn't think so. But that's a great point. This pretty much proves it was not on contingency because, as Eric just said, there wouldn't be a bill. The, the, I mean, the, yes, there could be other reasons they would separate from him here, but it's it's pretty likely this has something to do with payments. So yeah, this really pretty much seals it that this wasn't a contingency thing, which just the nature of this firm, well, I didn't see that firm as one that was likely to take this on contingency, especially a weak case like this. It just didn't seem likely to me. Right. Well, Druff, that's why I was Sam, because if they did do it, but said any of out-of-pocket fees you have to pay, it could even be that he couldn't pay like 1500 or two grand he owed him. That's why I said that from the beginning, you know? Yeah. Could it be that bad? We couldn't even pay that size bill if they did take it on a contingency plus our cost. But anyway. Well, but now, in a, in a case where a firm starts off as a contingency uh, firm, what what the law allows them to do is uh, get certain fees in what's called quantum merit, which essentially means the value of the services they've provided. And so, and what that's meant to do is it's meant to protect attorneys that start on a case on a contingency do a ton of work, and then the client fires them. They, they get into some kind of ruckus and they, or, or dust up, and the client says, you know what, I don't want you anymore, I want a different attorney. Well, that's fine. A client always is free to do that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the attorney that started to do all this work, even on contingency, isn't entitled to something. So there is a mechanism for an attorney to be paid, even if he was on contingency, if he gets fired, or they somehow you know, split off from each other. Um, but I don't think that's what happened here. Uh, you know, I think it's a little bit different. So I think that if there's going to be a new attorney that comes in, uh, I don't, I don't even think that new attorney would be on contingency either. And the original firm will have a claim, uh, into any proceeds, you know, unless they're paid, you know, whatever they're owed before that happens. Now, what if, uh, Postle decides to uh, dismiss this whole thing? What happens to our anti-slap? So let's say, let's say, for example, next week he wakes up and says, you know what? This whole thing was a mistake. Uh, I, I'm out of this, and, and he and he drops the case. Uh, what happens to our anti-slap motion? Well, now that it's filed and it's there, even if he seeks to dismiss, we can petition to the court to hear our motion still, since we had to bring it. And so, and the reason is because there is a a period of time before we filed our motion where we had to do what's called a meet and confer, where we essentially, or or me. I reach out to the attorneys representing Postle and we say, listen, guys, I think this case needs to be dismissed as to defendant Metellus. Here are the reasons why. Here are the cases in our favor. You know, either dismiss him with prejudice. If they want to dismiss you at that point without prejudice, they could. But now that, but, but they refused. So at that point, we were free to file this motion, which we did. Now, if they try to dismiss, we tell the court, no, 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 we want this to stay on. They had their chance. 
right? We offered them to dismiss. They opted not to. Now we had to put in all this time, right, and spend all this money uh, to get this to get this motion on file. We need to have it heard, and then we want our attorney's fees for it, and we can go after them for that. If they dismiss with prejudice uh, on their own, without any kind of agreement from us, we can still then go after them for our fees and costs because we didn't stipulate to a waiver for that, right? Yes. So there's, there are some protections for when somebody files a lawsuit and then, you know, a month later they're like, oh, that was a mistake, I want to, I want to get out of it. Now, if the other side doesn't agree to a waiver of fees and costs, that, you know, that's, then you can dismiss without prejudice, but not with, uh, not without that waiver. Otherwise, they can, you know, we can go after them for that. Yep. So, I, I, at this point, so can they, you go after their chances, the firm? No, they didn't. no, not really. So you, this is, well, you it, can't go for the law firm. No, no, he said no, he can't. No. No, this would have to be asked in possible directly at this point. Fees and costs uh, on a motion like this would be uh, possible responsibility. Right, because I would imagine he's, he's probably, it would be extremely hard to collect from him. Yes, yeah, so we, we think so. I but would he, imagine, you, you, that was just the impression I get. Yeah, well, you, you, would, you would think so, but you never know. Even if that's currently the case, there may be some time in the, in the future where that's uh, it's not as difficult and... Uh, if if money is owed, then that attempt will definitely be made. But uh, basically, Apostle's not getting out of this one easily here. We we jumped on this quickly. I, I don't know if anybody else has. I, as far as I can tell, nobody else has yet. But uh, we jumped on it quickly. And uh, Eric, you know, when, when this whole went when this went down, and I retained Eric, and we discussed what the strategy is going to be. Uh, he he was the one who suggested that we should jump on this quickly. I won't go into the reasons that uh, he said we should do it, but uh, he told me, and I said, you know what? I agree. That's, that sounds correct. So we went after this quickly, and uh, Eric went right to work. You should see how fast he, uh, he he was able to get a lot of this together, and then there was the refining process. And, and it just so happened that uh, right when we were ready to file this anti-slap motion, that the attorney contacted Eric and uh, let him know that he's filing this motion to get off the case but uh we're we're still pressing forward and this is what happens when you attempt to file frivolous lawsuits we're not attempting when you do file frivolous lawsuits that uh it can cost you money and mike apostle is not uh sitting in that great a shape right now in my opinion as far as uh where this is going to go uh we'll have to wait till early next year to what we see what actually happens but at the moment it looks like he's going to have uh no attorney very shortly and he's going to have to either reach deep into his pocket or somebody else's pocket to get another one or, or find one foolhardy enough to take this on contingency, which I don't see happening. So otherwise he'll have to go at this alone in February against uh, Eric in court or not showing. And, and uh, then it's, his fate is pretty much sealed. So uh, as I said at the beginning here, as, as soon as this started, I, I wasn't happy to get this. I didn't want to be part of this. There's, some defendants who wanted to see this play out and wanted to have their moment to take this into discovery and all that, I didn't want this. I, I don't want to be part of defending frivolous lawsuits. It's a, it's a pain in the ass, and it, it sucks, and I find the whole thing very unpleasant. But, you know, if it's going to happen, if I'm going to be hit with something like this, then uh, it, it'll be handled. And as you guys see, it has been handled. And now you see where it stands today and how very different it looks right now than it looked two months ago. Not that it, he ever looked like he had a strong case, but look where he sits now 
with his attorney asking to be dismissed, and an anti-slap motion that's been filed that now he's going to have to deal with. Let's say I win the anti-slap motion, ignoring whether or not he has an attorney at that point. Just let's, let's say I win in February. What does this mean for the other defendants at that point? Well, it doesn't mean anything to them because I don't represent them and I didn't file the motion on anybody else's behalf but yours. So, I mean, they could use the same motion, potentially. I mean, I hate to, you know, promote, you know, copying and pasting or whatever, but uh, if the motion is successful, um, there are a lot of people that will have the same grounds uh, to file anti-slaps uh, as, to this, as to this case, especially if it continues, and they'll be entitled to, you know, their fees and, and costs if they, if they prevail as well. Uh, from our perspective, assuming that we prevail, then the next thing we do is then I'll file the motion for the attorney's fees and costs, and even the time that I have to put in to prepare that motion gets added to that bill as well. <laughs> it's not just the time of already. No, really. That's no, no, I mean, it makes sense. I just lies is funny, but yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, you know, the the anticipated appearance and all that stuff, you you, you throw it all in, and at that point, uh, because those, those fees and costs are mandatory pursuant to the statute. Uh, Essentially, the amount that you get awarded, the court might reduce some or say, look, that, that seems a little excessive or whatever, but whatever amount you're awarded at that point is essentially like a judgment. Yeah. And it has the same force and effect as a judgment, uh, which can be collected on, whether it's to uh, submit uh, possible to uh, serve him with a judgment debtor exam and depose him, um, whether there are assets that we can find or not that remains to be seen. Uh, I mean, I have my personal opinion as to, you know, his net worth, but that's something for a different day. <laughs> well, and, but, but and can can Eric? So can they also pay drop? You know, like his his retired software engineer hourly fee for the time he spent on it. <laughs> no, uh, unfortunately, no. Now, if but, but that's a good question in a different context. In that, if we went all the way to trial and we conducted discovery. Uh, there is a mechanism. This, this gets a little complex, but there's something in the Code of Civil Procedure called a 998 demand. 998, CCP 998, essentially is where you send a letter to the opposing side and say, look, we're willing to settle for X. And if they refuse, and then ultimately you go to trial and you're awarded more uh, than that amount, then they also have to pay your expert costs and some other things. Uh, because they should have taken you up on it and they didn't, and that's a hard lesson. Um, that's another part of it too, is that if we go that far and we get into, you know, if this were to go all the way to a trial and we were to prevail, uh, there might be a way in which we can try to recover costs for experts or something like that. But generally, uh, the American, uh, policy is that each side pays their own. And unless there's some kind of contractual provision, uh, for attorney's fees, um, then that's kind of how it remains. Each side just sort of pays their own way. Yeah, and this and this anti-slap actually uh, makes an exception to that for for the motion for the anti-slap motion itself and everything uh, preparing for it. This is something that doesn't exist in every state. In fact, most states don't have it. California does, Nevada does. I I don't know if any other states do besides these two. If they are, I'm not aware. But uh, this this is one of the few times where there is a provision for attorneys to get their fees back. But but really only for the the anti-slap portion, correct? Right. It's only for the time put in to prepare and file the anti-slap. If there is an opposition filed, time to review the opposition. You can add time to file the reply, appear at the hearing, and then if if the anti-slap party prevails, uh, they file their motion for attorney's fees, and they can also add the time it takes to file that motion, uh, any opposition that comes with that motion, any reply, and the appearance. 
Yeah, and then th- that's the reason for this law, really, because uh, because of the American system being one where uh, both sides pay their own attorneys, that uh, you were having a lot of these cases where, where defendants would win, and uh, but then they'd lose, really, because they had to pay their attorneys. So they don't have to pay the plaintiff anything, but they have to pay their attorneys. So this makes one, excep- one exception where if this is something being done, to, uh, like a f- just totally frivolous lawsuit, to keep someone quiet, to chill their free speech, this allows the defendant to get the money back that they spent uh, defending it if it gets uh, dismissed on these grounds, if it gets dismissed through the anti-slap motion. And that's why it's so important, especially if you think about it. Now, this isn't the case with Possel because he's an individual, but if you think of, like, let's say a large corporation hits you with a frivolous lawsuit uh, to chill your free speech, then uh, it's a drop in the bucket to them for their attorney's fees and they know for you, you may not be able to afford it, or even if you can, maybe you don't want to waste the money. And if there was no anti-slap in place, you'd just be out that money defending it, even if it's totally frivolous, even if you're 100% sure you're going to win, it's still terrible, and you still are thinking, hey, maybe I should just do what they want, and I'll save tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. And this this is what allows the defendant to escape the whole thing when it's all over, to not have lost any money out of it, and the plaintiff ends up getting punished. So that's that's really what this is for, and uh, I, I'm glad it exists in this state, and uh, hopefully uh, this will go as we're expecting it will, and ha- as it should, to be honest. As far as collecting, it, it, there's a while to collect. Don't you have like a how, – how many years do we have to collect? Ten or something in, in the case like this? Ten years of- – yeah, ten years, and then we can renew it and get into judgment. Right, I, I, and it, and it, it, yeah, and it, it gets interest. I think ten percent per annum. Yeah, yeah, so it yeah. It interest as well. That's true. I actually know somebody who collected after ten years. They actually renewed a judgment after ten years, and then finally found the person had a job. Like uh, into year like twelve or thirteen, they found they had a job and they garnished it and they got the whole judgment with that and the interest. So that uh, they were very persistent. They got it. It wasn't me, but uh, someone I know. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you you can be persistent, especially if uh, if you really want to. If it's important, you can. Once you have a judgment against somebody, you can keep uh, keep pressing, and it, it can start to be a pain in the ass. I mean, this I, I was thinking this is part of the reason Ivy settled is because it just it got to be such a pain for him to hide from this judgment. That I mean, it's a totally different topic, but you know, from the Borgata that uh, he finally wanted to just put this behind him because it, you know, like when he entered a poker tournament at the, at the World Series of Poker, the Borgata got his winnings. It was a small percentage of what he owed them, but the, he got tired of it, and eventually they came to terms. So uh, th- this will be, if, if we get a judgment here against Possel for the attorney's fees, I mean, it's, this will be something that can hang over his head for a long time if it doesn't get paid. So even if he's not immediately collectible, uh, this can be a big pain in the ass for him. And uh, so he, he shouldn't have done this, but it's too late, and it's it's, it's happened, well, and... Let me tell you. So first, I can give you the an absolute assurance that should we prevail and obtain a judgment uh, for our attorney's fees and costs, there will be a new definition of the term relentless when it comes to this. <laughs> that, 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 that I can promise you that. And the other thing I was going to mention, uh, it's not necessarily our situation in this case, but I've seen anti-slap awards, like the, the judgment awards, uh, exceed six figures. Wow. And when you have, yeah, when you have big firms that assign, you know, five associates that bill at 650 an hour each, uh, you know, to do all the research and find all the different case law and analyze the cases and interpret 
and find the correct dicta and quotes and then put the, assemble the motion and all these exhibits, you, you know, and then you go through the whole process, deal with an opposition, file a reply, you know, five attorneys show up in court with briefcases and boxes full of papers. You, you can easily exceed 120, 130,000. I've seen awards that high. Now, I don't have 10 associates running around at that kind of billing rate and things like that, but in theory, that could happen. And in these bigger cases where you're dealing with big media outlets like the New York Times and, you know, the uh, even some of the, uh, uh, like, uh, what was it called, the uh, Inquirer, you know, magazines like that that are really these, you know, uh, well, you know, just outrageous uh, stories sometimes. But even they have protected free speech. And these anti-slap awards can become huge, uh, depending on the circumstance. Here's a question about the February hearing. Is that going to be on Zoom? Uh, it's either going to be on Court Connect or uh, Court Call. I don't think Sacramento County is running through Zoom yet. Oh. Um, Sacramento County is also not e-filing like Los Angeles. So everything is actually being fax filed through a service. And then there was actually like a runner that was local up there that actually took our moving people and had to drop it into the uh, courtesy box for that department, 53. Uh, So they're a little behind as far as that goes compared to like Los Angeles County. So it's it's pretty certain, though, that you're not going to be having to travel to Sacramento for this? It's not likely unless there's a huge shift in policy as far as COVID goes in public buildings. Um, Almost all the courts, at least here in Southern California, are close to the public right now. Um, everything is being done by uh, telephonic or by Zoom. Federal courts are completely uh, closed. Zoom.gov is a service that Zoom offers uh, at no cost to the federal courts. And it's actually been uh, quite successful. I've, I've been on several Zoom hearings at this point. Um, and once you kind of get the hang of it, it's it's really not that bad. I think people uh, pretty much understand it here, but... If, if you can take away anything from this uh, segment, number one, his attorneys uh, very likely are not going to be uh, his attorneys for much longer because uh, on January 14th is the hearing for uh, them to withdraw his counsel. And uh, our anti-slap uh, is going forward no matter what. And even if he uh, tries to drop the case, we're going to uh, press on with it and, uh, and go for the attorney's fees there. And uh, we are going to be relentless regarding uh, the collection of these fees, even if it uh, can't happen right away. We'll, we'll try right away, but if it uh, isn't possible right away, uh, as you heard, there's many, many years to do this, and, and then you can even renew it and get many, many more years. So that's uh, that's, that's going to happen here, and we will see what happens going forward. Uh, one more question. I know I was going to ask. One more question. Let's say he does get a new attorney. Can he get that attorney to get this uh, February date delayed because they have to take on a lot of new information and there's no way they can prepare in that amount of time? It's possible that would be up to the judge of the department. They would have to file some kind of uh, ex-party application um, and ask the judge to push out or you know um, continue out our hearing date um, to allow a new counsel to come in and prepare that and and in that kind of circumstance that's that's usually granted uh especially if the new attorney really is just coming in and you know there was nothing nefarious or shady or you know wasn't some kind of setup like that um you know that kind of thing is granted just as a matter of fairness judges you know want these motions to be not appealable and to be you know final on the merits and you raise a question of um abuse of discretion if a judge doesn't allow 
extra time for a brand new attorney to prepare properly and, and defend. Okay, well, that's... So something like that would probably be granted if they bring him on. Yeah, that's what I figured. Okay, well, that's... Uh, so it's not set in stone it's going to happen on February 10th, but uh, there's a good chance, if, unless it's, if he gets a new attorney, then I guess it could be delayed. But if it gets delayed, then it's just delaying what is likely to be the inevitable. So uh, those are our updates here, and you'll have to check out the other defendants in this case to see what they decide to do. Of course, uh, they are completely separate from us. We're, we're part of the same case, but... Uh, we we're doing our own thing here. What is best for us here, and uh, for for me actually, and uh, and then everybody else, of course, is uh, welcome to take their own approach. I, I have to imagine that uh, others might take this approach as well. Now that they, especially once they see he doesn't have an attorney anymore, they might especially want to do that. That's where this stands right now, and that's a really a major development in this case. Just the fact that his attorney has filed this motion and the fact that it's looking uh, questionable whether he'll have an attorney at all going forward. That's an important thing to remember is that even even if his attorney's motions are granted and they're relieved of counsel and they're out of the case, the case doesn't end. Possible is just now pro-pro or, or we're talking pro-se, uh, which means he's responsible for acting his own counsel and he's going to have to do all the things that an attorney would do based on all the local rules in that court. Um, but he might get some leeway, you know, from the judge as far as that goes if he's acting in pro per, but he has to press on and deal with it. Yeah. So that's, that's a list of defendants. The only one to my knowledge that has really done anything yet is us. And I don't think anyone's even been served. And I think that's part of the reason no one's done anything yet is because uh, they figure, okay, well, when we get served, we'll do something. Other than that, we will wait, but we took a different approach and uh, I, I still feel that was a correct approach, and uh, we will see what happens next in this interesting saga, which I wish I wasn't part of, but since I'm part of it, it must be handled. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Trader Ruski, for being on, and thank you, Eric, for being on. Thanks, Drop. Wait a minute. What if I don't have enough uh, internet data on my phone and I can't listen to the show? (laughs) I'll explain that on Friday. (laughs) All right. All right. Good night, Trader Ruski. Congratulations, both of you. Thank you. Well, that's not over yet, but well, it's, it's good. To, well, at least for this staff, it's a good. It's, it's a good. It's it's a good development. More for Eric not having COVID. Not for Eric. More for Eric not having COVID. So. Okay. Well. Good night, everybody. Yeah. See you guys. Okay, we're back live. I hope you enjoyed the little pre-recorded uh, segment here. Very interesting. If you didn't hear it yet, I would advise going back. And listening to it, even someone on 2 Plus 2 who says they hate this show heard that segment when I posted it by itself on Wednesday. And they said, hey, I actually like that segment. That was actually uh, pretty informative. And it was. In fact, whenever we have Eric Benzamokin on here, it's very informative. And that's why I knew he would do a great job as my attorney. And he has definitely lived up to that and more. So we're going to try to find uh, Trader Ruski, get him back on. It's kind of weird. I just heard him. I just heard him. <laughs> on the show here, except it was from uh, three days ago. Now we're going to get uh, real Trader Ruski, not recorded Trader Ruski. And you have real me. This is no longer a recording. It's 10.32 Pacific time. What's happening, Jeff? Is this real or recorded Trader Ruski? Oh, that's real. I, I hear this. Live, the... and there you go. Yeah, but the sound effect, the ACR sound effect's got to be real. Okay, I'm all ready to move on to the next topic, and... I'm glad you were there for the previous topic three days ago. So okay, now and I'm wide awake. Yeah, you're. I'm. I'm I wasn't sure. I thought you might fall asleep during the whole thing, but no. 
And it's not it's not exciting to hear yourself for for ninety minutes, but uh, somehow somehow you got past it. So okay, we will move on to the situation with the dealer known as Patches from the Aria. This has been a big story in poker this week, and uh, I am fortunate enough to have an insider who knows Patches personally, who's been texting me, and he may actually call the show, and he gave me some insight into the situation and says that some things that are currently being reported are incorrect. But uh, before we get to that, let me just tell you what's been happening with Patches. So Patches is the nickname of a dealer from Las Vegas. He's dealt to me before. Uh, A lot of people who have played poker in Vegas have reported he's dealt to them. It seems like if you've played poker in Vegas for any length of time, then uh, he's dealt to you. He is uh, an... Older black guy, not really old, but uh, yeah, definitely not young. When I had him dealing to me in the past, it, it wasn't super memorable, but I remember him, and he did a good job, and he was professional. I have no complaints about Patch's work or his demeanor. Everything was fine when he dealt to me. If someone asked me, do you think he would be involved in a big controversy involving uh, an incident when he was dealing, I would say no. I would not have expected that, though, to be fair, I didn't know him very well. And still don't, but he has dealt to me before. So here's what happened. It's a pretty disturbing situation and shows you how things can sometimes go crazy in card rooms. I've seen fights occur in card rooms. I've seen just really nutty things happen there. I wasn't present for this. This occurred at the Aria at Las Vegas this week. But still, uh, this is something that is going to probably cost someone's job and it's pretty serious business so here's what happened at the aria there was some kind of altercation and it's not totally clear what kind of altercation but there's some kind of altercation i think a verbal altercation between a customer and patches and somehow it escalated and it became a fight. Initially, I heard that this customer was berating Patches over and over and then eventually threw beer on him. And then that led to Patches retaliating by coming after him. And I got to see 42 seconds or so of this on video. This has been going around poker Twitter. I'll play it to you guys. It's not going to mean a whole lot audio-wise, but I'll describe to you what I'm seeing here. So here's it's a 42 second video. So this starts off with it, it, the whole thing's kind of distant, so you can't see that clearly. But it start it's it's called it's a video called "Fight in Vegas Between Poker Dealer and Player at Aria." You can find it in the Poker Fraud Alert uh, forum in the thread about this. But it starts out with the fight already going on. You do not get to see what led up to it. Why? Because well, this is recorded by a customer there, and people aren't recording every second that goes on at the poker table. So. Uh, Someone pulled out their phone and started recording once it became something that was a pretty big deal, which is when Patches was was punching this other guy. And at first you can't see the guy recording it gets closer, and then you can see that Patches seems to be getting the better of this fight, and uh, and there's attempts to break it up. And that's what's going on here. And uh, they pull him off. You can clearly see. Okay, break it up. Break it up. 
someone saying break it up, break it up. You can clearly see now at this point who's involved. You can see it's patches. They're holding them back. And then someone saying fuck you. I think it was the guy who was fighting with patches. <laughs> but, uh, then patches starts uh, chasing him around the poker room. So uh, this guy pretty much knows he's lost the physical fight and is uh, trying to run away, and Patches is actually chasing him around. So he's running away here, and uh, that's pretty much it. So you, you can find the video and watch it. It's, it's pretty much exactly what I described. You might wonder, what is the guy like that he was fighting with? Could this perhaps be a racial issue? Was it a white guy fighting with patches who was black no i'm not sure of the race of the guy who was fighting with patches but it's definitely not white i'm hearing now that it might be hawaiian uh i, I thought maybe he's some kind of mixed race whatever it is it's not a white guy so it's, it's not like a white versus black thing there's no white people involved in this except for some people trying to break up the fight so that probably is not involved though maybe it is but at least it's not like a, a anything involving anyone who's white so what happened here is unclear from this video. The uh, the guy who the, the customer was a good deal smaller than Patches. He was shorter and just a smaller guy. He definitely uh, was scared uh, by the end of this thing. He didn't want any more of the physical fight. He was trying to run away. As you can imagine, this uh, is going to result in some potential and likely uh, actual disciplinary action against Patches. There's a very good chance he will be fired. I had first heard that he was fired, but I've been I've been told by the inside source that he has not been fired yet, but it might happen very soon. And then there's probably going to be an investigation by Nevada Gaming, and he might lose his license to deal. So even if he were to go get another job, uh, he wouldn't be able to continue at that job, even if someone some place is willing to hire him, because uh, if you don't have a license, you can't deal, obviously. Patches' real name is Leandre Wharton. That's uh, L-E-A-N-D-R-E. Wharton is W-H-A-R-T-O-N. Leandre Wharton. Even though he's known as Patches to everybody, and this name is not really going around very much, Leandre Wharton, I'm not exposing anything that's a big secret because this is actually given out publicly on the GoFundMe page for him. And you might ask, what do you mean a GoFundMe page? Yes, there's a GoFundMe page. So why would there be a GoFundMe page for a dealer who attacked a player? Well, apparently, number one, the word around town is that the player kind of had it coming. The player was very abusive. I'm not saying that Patches was right to attack him, but this was not uh, – the player wasn't an innocent victim, a, a sweet guy who the dealer lost at an attack. That's not definitely not what happened here according to everybody who's been giving the story. Uh, the exact details of what occurred is – it's not totally clear – I'll try to get some clarity from the guy who uh, is friends with Patches that's been in communication with me. But the, it, there's not a less sympathy for the guy who was uh, in the fight with Patches. But more importantly, Patches is someone who's been in the poker community for decades, and players like him. It seems like everybody liked him. It seems like uh, just about everybody who posted comments about him on Facebook and elsewhere – had positive things to say, ranging from uh, he's a great guy, he's a great dealer, uh, he's very friendly to the players, he's uh, he's a good person. 
every person with just like one exception said positive things about him, including a number of well-known poker pros. So a number of poker pros took up in defense of him on Twitter, including Farrah Galfond, who's not really a poker pro, but she's uh, the wife of a poker pro. She plays sometimes, but of course that's Phil Galfond's wife. She tweeted on December 10th, if you played poker at the Aria, you've had the total pleasure of being dealt by the legend that is Patches. This sweet man was recently berated and attacked, beer thrown on him, and he did what all of us would have done. He snapped. His license will be lost. Well, I, I, I wouldn't go that far. I would say her, his license could be lost. That's uh, a little bit uh, presumption here, but okay. She says, "'Tis the season for giving. I miss many dealers at Aria while I'm not playing live, but I'm very sad to see Patches won't be there when I return." Please chip in what you can, referring to the GoFundMe. P.S. The person running the account is Patch's good friend. So she's trying to say, don't worry about the fact that you don't recognize the name of the person running the account. It's not a scammer. So uh, this GoFundMe is being run by a person named Kayla Amos Odinas. Never heard of her before. Assuming it's a her. I think the name Kayla Amos Odinas would be, uh, the Kayla part would be a female. But anyway, I've never heard of this person, but... Farrah Galfon says this is legitimate, so I guess we can believe it's legitimate. The goal was only $2,500, which isn't very much, because basically they're saying he's not going to work, and how's he going to pay his bills? $2,500 is not going to get you very far. But uh, as was pointed out by somebody in the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, this is a tactic for GoFundMe, is instead of starting off with a number that's very aggressive that you hope you'll get to, because it doesn't actually stop collecting money once uh, the goal is reached, a lot of times you'll put a low goal so it's something that looks attainable and will encourage people to start donating, and then it'll blow way past it. So at the moment, with the $2,500 goal stated, we've gotten not just past it, but almost a magnitude, uh, an order of magnitude past it. It's uh, $22,541 has been collected for patches so far as far as this GoFundMe effort. Yeah. Now... $22,000 is nice. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that'll definitely hold him over for some time, but still, that's not a ton of money. It's not like he can retire on this, but it's, it's something that's going to be very helpful. Here's what it says on the GoFundMe, which was created just three days ago. It's already raised $22,500. It shows you how this guy was pretty well liked. Patches is a veteran poker dealer in Las Vegas and a friend to many. He showed up at work in the middle of a pandemic to do his job as a professional poker dealer. He was berated and attacked, and he simply protected himself. All of us have experienced someone who has belittled us at work, and we know how helpless that feels. Let's do our part to show him we have us back. And now you get to see all the different people who are donating. In fact, Dan Bilzerian's brother actually donated. Uh, you don't hear that much about Dan Bilzerian's brother anymore, but he does have a brother who also used to play poker. I don't know if he does anymore. He's not very public anymore from what I've seen. At first, he and Dan were about equally public, and then... Dan really took the spotlight. Uh, Adam Bilzerian donated $1,000. That, I guess, really helped. But uh, everybody else seems to be donating 25 50 100 and writing nice things there. Some people knew him. Some people are just doing it because they trust the poker pros who are saying he's a good guy. Whatever it is, there's been a lot of support here, but that's not going to help him necessarily, even if the poker community loves him. Uh, the Aria will probably do what it has to do. And the bottom line is... Unless he was physically attacked first, unless this guy, like, took a swing at him or did something to, like, really actually attack him to where he had to defend himself. Short of that, 
you can't do that as a dealer and keep your job. You're, you're just going to lose your job. It's a, good, it's a company policy that no matter what, you cannot uh, attack a customer, even if most people around would uh, agree the customer deserves it. Now, had there been beer thrown, I still don't think that he could attack the guy back and get away with it because, uh, yes, throwing beer on someone is technically considered assault, but as far as it being something that hurts you to where you have to defend yourself now because uh, you know, like you've actually been hit with something that uh, that harms you, uh, the, the beer is uncomfortable and it's really crappy to do to somebody. And you deserve to get beaten up if you throw beer on someone. I'll give you that. But uh, as far as the, being justified to hit someone, like if someone hits you and you hit them back at work, they're, they're, you're not going to get fired usually. But short of being hit, you, you probably will. And as far as his license, I'm not sure about the rules – as far as that goes, but there may be an automatic dismissal and, and loss of license when something like this happens, regardless of the circumstances. So there is a good chance that what... Right, but but there too, sorry to cut you off, Trump, but he could potentially use some of the money to maybe get some representation to help him keep his license or something. Maybe, but this might you know, be, I'm, this might be yeah, tough unless I, well, there's there's going to be video of the incident. I mean, like real video from the casino. Well, not I, No, I got it, but it wasn't, I didn't see, I mean, I watched the video, but I didn't see like, I don't know if you remember, God, it was probably 10 plus years ago now. And I don't even remember if it was a Commerce or Hollywood Park, or maybe it was even in Vegas. No, I think it was at Hollywood Park. Where the dealer just stood up, walked around the table, and and clocked the guy in seat five. I don't remember that for it was some reason. Like opposite of him. Yeah, maybe it was years ago. Yeah, I don't remember that. But yeah. well, what happened to so, him though? So I guess I guess what I'm saying is, well, that guy got canned for sure. But that was like he just decked him because I think the guy didn't think he was going to do shit. You know, this it wasn't as much. You know, it looked like maybe he caught him a little bit. Right right at the beginning, does he seem to make contact? Well, at the beginning, we're just seeing the fight. It's already happening. So it's hard to see exactly what kind of uh, uh, punches he's getting in. There was definitely a physical fight going on there. Uh, Obviously, the customer wasn't injured that badly because you you didn't see any blood on him, and he was able to run around, so it's not like uh, he sustained major injuries. And it seems yeah, to be broken up. You saw the fear in his eyes. Yeah, yeah, he was he was very scared. The end, he was running. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he he was running away. So, um, and, and I will say that I have seen a lot of very bad dealer abuse. I've seen things thrown at the dealers. I've seen just uh, really really nasty things said to the dealer. Uh, usually unjustified. Usually just people are getting bad cards. They're on tilt. They, they they lose more hands, they get more on tilt, they blame the dealer, which is the dumbest thing you can do. If, if you blame it's the dealer, if you blame it's the dealer... It's not justified, Trump, no matter what. It's, okay, I, no matter what. If not capable of dealing, they're just not experienced, and that's a management issue, too. So yeah. there's really no excuse for you know these guys, because they're just mad at themselves at the end of the day. Oh, by the way, your, your connection to me isn't that great. It's, it's kind of uh, garbly. Okay, I'm going to try to fix it. Okay. All right. So, drop Trader Risky for the moment. What I've noticed playing poker, not at the Aria, I've actually never played at the Aria, but what I've noticed playing poker, especially in California, at Commerce and other places like Commerce, there's a lot of players who abuse dealers. And as I said, almost all of them, it's the player's fault. Almost all of them, it's the case where the players are mad 
because they're losing or they're getting bad cards for the moment or they think the dealer is cursing is not cursing them but is actually causing them to lose because they're dealing them the bad cards and they're the bad luck dealer and that's really stupid and if you get mad at the dealer when you get bad cards then you're an asshole and you're stupid <laughs> that's that's the bottom line and you shouldn't be gambling if you get actually mad at the dealer for dealing you bad cards and I've never had that ever but I've seen it, but I have never done it, nor would I ever do that. I have gotten mad at the dealer a few times when the dealer just isn't doing their job or is rude or says something inappropriate to me. It doesn't happen often, but I've had it occasionally where I've had the dealer either just out to lunch and not paying attention. And I don't mean like just a human mistake. I mean just really not paying attention to what they're doing. And then it affects the game and I get annoyed and I get even more frustrated if the dealer's rude to me. But as I said, that doesn't happen very often. And usually uh, when the dealer takes abuse, there's not even the slightest bit of justification for it. And I always keep that in mind also. Even if I am frustrated with a dealer mildly, I usually don't say anything because I know how much abuse dealers take in general. So I, I don't want to be that guy. I will only say something if it, if I really think it's justified and that really doesn't happen very often. And when it does, I never use profanity. I never get threatening. I never uh, am insulting. I'll just express my displeasure with specifically what they're doing that I don't like. But as I said, this is something pretty rare. I And you can ask anybody who's been there when I've played poker. You don't ever see me berating the dealer. But anyway, there are a lot of players like that. And sometimes these players are tolerated. Because these are the fish. Sometimes you see this and you don't even want to bring this to the attention of the floor because this is the person who's chunking off all the money to the game. If you get this player out of there, then it's going to be a tough game. In fact, you might have not even be a favorite in the game anymore if you get this player out of here. So a lot of times people are hesitant to say anything uh, about a player who's being abusive that is also a fish. And I don't know the story with this guy who, who ended up in the fight with Patches. But uh, I, I can tell you that I see that all the time, where there's a lot more leeway granted to those who aren't very good. And of course, when there's alcohol involved, you've got that problem too, where someone who may not be that bad without alcohol becomes an angry drunk, and then they act very inappropriately, especially if they're losing. So there have been times where I've admired the dealer's restraint to not attack some of these people because <laughs> there's been some people who've just been really, really awful. And I go, you know what? If this dealer could, he would totally clock this guy right now. I've, I've had that thought before, just watching the way some of these people behave. So I was wondering, like, when's this going to happen? And I, you don't see it happen very often. And I'm still not clear with what led to this. The bottom line is, even if you could say the guy who was uh, involved in this altercation, I'm talking about the customer, that he deserved it. You do have to say that short of the guy physically attacking Patches, uh, you can't do that. I mean, you just the dealer just can't do that. And if you grant the dealer the leeway to do that, then next time there's someone who just is criticizing the dealer fairly or expressing displeasure with something the dealer's doing that is justified, then what, the dealer can punch him too? Like, you you just can't have it. You just can't have it where employees can attack customers. And I've said that a long time across all industries. For example, I know this is going to sound different, but it's kind of similar. If you piss off the waiter at a restaurant, 
He shouldn't spit in your food. I know people say, oh, they, you know, you're going to get your food spit in. Well, maybe. I mean, <laughs> you do have to watch out for that. But that shouldn't happen. That should not be allowed. In fact, I've, I've always felt that should be a crime. I feel that if you spit in someone's food or do anything unsanitary to someone's food that you're serving to them and you're caught, I feel that there should actually be a, a criminal charge against you. So similarly, I, I, I've never been a supporter of employees attacking customers unless they are actually attacked and have to defend themselves. At the same time, if a guy is really, really, really awful at the poker table and just really, really, really being nasty to a dealer who's just trying to do his job and the dealer finally snaps and attacks him, you can't feel sorry for him. Like, I'm not, do not take this as me feeling sorry for the customer if that's what was happening there. So here's what the person who's been uh, texting me about uh, Patches, and this person claims to be a friend of Patches. I, I haven't had this verified to me. Patches hasn't come to me and said, yeah, this is my friend, but I, I have no reason not to believe this guy. He's communicated with me before. This is what he says happened, and this is not really out anywhere. All that we're hearing on social media and on other forums is that uh, you know, there was some belligerent player who was an asshole and finally threw a beer on him and then Patches attacked him when his shift was over. That Patches actually waited and then when his shift was over, when he was leaving to move on to the next table, instead he went over and uh, and, and attacked the guy. That, that's that's the story that was going around, but I, you know, I thought maybe that isn't the true story. Maybe it is. Well, this person texting me is saying that this isn't what was happening. This is what he said. He said, here is the sum and substance. Every time the action was on the fellow, the fellow being the customer who got in the fight with him, each and every time the guy was either clueless or trying to antagonize everyone, but regardless, Patches had to say, it's on you, action on you, sir, check or bet, or some variation thereof, the player was intractable. Patches became mildly exasperated. Patches finally stopped announcing to the guy it was his action. A silence ensued. Finally, the guy says, why the fuck are you looking at me? Patches says, because it's your action, sir, raised to you. Dude says, if it's my action, why the fuck don't you say something? Then an endless string of F-bombs ensued. Dude finally says, do, do, my fucking, do your fucking job, asshole. Patches says, I will do my job. Floor? That's, he calls the floor man over to take care of it. Now, that's pretty standard up to this point. Like, I've seen things like this. I've seen things where, I've seen actually customers in, in, intentionally delaying the game because they're losing and they just want to be jerks. And often these are also fish where they're losing and they're just, it gets to them and they just sit and sit and sit and sit. And they've got seven deuce offsuit. They don't, they know they're folding. They just wait. And they're just trying to be passive aggressive jerks to punish everybody because they're losing. I've seen this before. And then sometimes if the dealer says anything, they go off from the dealer. So this is not unlike anything I've seen. So this guy goes on to write, floor is slow to arrive. Dew does not stop. Patches is almost at his wit's end. He has thick skin to begin with, but this guy does not stop. Does not stop meaning that this guy is continuing to berate him while the floor man's coming over, which is taking a long time. Finally, the floor man arrives. Patches gets up and takes a step in the direction away from the table and away from the guy. The guy pokes the bear again and says, fucking right, you better walk that way. Don't you dear come near me, you fucking pussy. Wow. That remark was what broke the camel's back. Like John J. Rambo having a flashback, Patches snaps. First time in 35 years, and Patches lost his cool. He does an about face, and the video shows how a man who loses his clarity, Patches, and is auto operating on autopilot behaves. 
It was like a scene out of National Geographic that reminds me of a predator stalking prey. That that part is kind of true. <laughs> the, the the customer was very scared and running off. The fellow knew his bluff had been called and shit was real and he cowered. Patch is not a man of slight stature. That's true. It was that ultimate remark directed to Patches about the direction of his departure that tipped the scales. Interesting. So it doesn't look like anything was thrown. It looked like this guy was taunting, 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 and then when Patches was finally moving on to the uh, next table that the guy tried to act tough and said, hey, you better run away. You, you better you better walk that way. Don't you dare come near me, you fucking pussy. And then Patches is like, you know what? I will come near him. This guy thinks I won't do anything. He thinks he can talk this way to me because he's in a poker room. I'm about to show him he can't. And then he snapped and attacked him. Well, you know, I hate to say it, but if that's true, he's going to get fired. Because there was no physical attack. Now, was this customer being an asshole, if this story is true? Yes. 100%. Is the customer someone who is deserving of any sympathy that this happened? No. Is it kind of uh, satisfying to hear that someone like that finally got <laughs> some some comeuppance for that type of behavior? Yeah. I mean, that's it doesn't offend or bother me that this happened. And... I've never heard of Patches attacking anybody in his decades of dealing. He was dealing since the 80s, and I've never heard of this before, anything like this. So, yeah, I mean, he was taunted until the point where he snapped. This this guy just texted me, that was the culmination of every bit of dealer abuse Patches has ever incurred. Yeah, I mean, there's that too, that you he's just day after day after day dealing with abusive players, and finally this one guy who was just really awful and relentless and then tells him he's a pussy, as he walks away, he just snapped and and just went after him so unfortunately for him it's not going to be justifiable from the standpoint of keeping his job most likely and probably not going to be justifiable to keep his license so i i see why farrah galfond well she didn't seem to know the whole story she th- she thought beer was involved but i i can see why someone observing this thing would see would believe he's probably going to lose the license and definitely lose the job so it hasn't happened yet according to this guy and he said re his job uh, he's going to lose his job, but uh, not his life. That's not over. He'll be fine. And fine as a poker dealer. His career's not over. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'll have to get it somewhere else. He'll, now, he has worked in other cities before. I've heard he's worked in uh, Atlantic City before and other places. He's dealt for 35 years or whatever. So, I mean, it's very possible he'll bounce back from this. He wasn't arrested or anything. It looked like they just uh, sent him home, and then he going to have to face his supervisors at ARIA about this and, as I said, probably get fired and then face whatever hearing about his license and then go from there. I have been in situations before, and keep in mind I've never done anything like this, but I've been in situations before where I've been in some kind of argument with an employee. And I have thought at times, okay, the person I'm arguing with is still just you know, he, he is just another dude. And if, even though we're at the workplace, if this, if this person doesn't seem very stable or responsible to begin with, so I can picture this person could attack me. This person could fight me. I, like I, it's never happened before, but there have been times where I thought it could escalate to that point. And if I think it's starting to escalate to that point, I'll sometimes, de-escalate. I'm not going to back down or be afraid, but I but I will sometimes... I'm not going to 
make the mistake this guy does and just say, oh, okay, well, this guy's at work. No matter what I say, he's not going to attack. I've, I've thought before uh, this, this person's getting close, and even though they're totally in the wrong and acting irrationally, I think I'm just going to walk away and I'm going to go to their supervisor tomorrow. You can't just assume that the person who you're dealing with there is not going to come after you just because they're at work. They, usually they won't, but there's times they will, especially if you really, really give it to them. And that's what it looks like here is it's just the guy was just really giving it to him. And then the final comment of, oh, yeah, you're not going to do anything. Yeah, run away from me, pussy. And <laughs> Bash is like, what the fuck? I've, I wouldn't run away from this guy if we weren't here in the area. If we were on the street, I would not run away at all. And he's a lot bigger than this customer. Like He's like, I'm not afraid of this guy. I just can't do it because I'm at work. He's like, oh, you know what? Screw it. <laughs> he just went after him. It's an interesting situation. Like, I can totally see why he'd get fired. I can totally see why this is inappropriate. I can also see why people have sympathy for him, especially those who have played in poker rooms and who have observed these terrible, abusive players who are very, very nasty and difficult with the dealers and sometimes insulting. Sometimes they will even throw things. That's why the throwing beer thing wasn't totally hard to believe. I haven't seen beer be thrown before, but I've seen cards and chips actually thrown at the dealer. I've seen both men and women do it. You, you should see some of the women at Commerce. They're brutal. Like, <laughs> some of them scare me. The way so, so these little uh, women at Commerce, you should see how angry some of them get. Wow. But the dealers, they just take it. I will say one thing for the Commerce dealers. They usually just take it. Like They take a lot of crap there and just keep like a stone face. They don't even react. Once in a while, they call the floor. But boy, do they take a lot of crap in commerce. I would not want to work as a dealer there. So it's, it's, it is kind of a tough job in that way. Imagine you have to have that job day in, day out. And we have some dealers that listen to the show. But imagine you have that job day in, day out, and you have people like that who are treating you that way. And then you're not supposed to respond. So I guess for decades, he didn't respond, and finally he just snapped. He couldn't take it anymore. Dealt with one of the worst he had dealt with, and he finally went after him. So if, if a lesson is to be learned here, it's that, uh, one, if you're an asshole customer and taunting the dealers, there's no guarantee that they're not going to snap and attack you eventually if you push it too far. And number two, if you are a dealer and this happens, just know you're going to be losing your job at the very least. There's no such thing as you get to keep your job because the guy you attacked was a jerk. That is not uh, something that can be justified as far as keeping your employment. And that makes sense. I'm not even going to criticize the ARIA for firing him. Like if I if I were his boss, I'd have to fire him. In fact, there's even liability issues. If they didn't fire him and then he were to attack somebody else and actually hurt them and maybe someone who especially didn't deserve it, then that person could sue the Ari and say, look, you already saw he attacked another player. You didn't fire him. So that's uh, there's a number of reasons that this is automatically going to happen, especially at a large casino, which has uh, policies that are pretty set in stone with this sort of thing. With a lot of people who are, you know, since a lot of people are backing him, since a lot of players are speaking of him in such a glowing fashion, this really does look like someone who is a good guy that just got pushed too far. And there there have been some dealers with, with attitudes and dealers that I just uh, I haven't cared for very much. But uh, the, I didn't know him well, as I said, and he's only dealt with me a few times. But 
uh, from what everybody else is saying, it's, it seems like he's well-liked in poker, and it seems like he's treated players well and tre- treated players with respect and done his job well. And that's why the players are trying to take up for him and trying to raise money for him and saying that they feel bad for him because they think this is a good guy who just reacted, uh, who kind of overreacted and went too far. And now it's going to suffer consequences for him. So this can happen sometimes. You, you, you have people that you like in your life that make mistakes. And sometimes they have to suffer the consequences, but you can still be supportive. That's pretty much happening here. That is uh, what happened there. There's not that much more to say. I, I do want to read uh, I'll read one other perspective, just to be fair. Because uh, I will say before I read this that just about everything said about him has been positive. And this is from a lot of sources. Uh, Big-name poker pros, recreational players, uh, kind of semi-pro types, just a lot of people who've been dealt by dealt cards by him over the years. Some who've been dealt a lot by him, some have played with him a few times as the dealer. And almost universally, everybody's very positive. So when I read this one negative comment, just keep that in mind. And it's possible what this guy's writing isn't true. I don't know this guy. But this was posted on uh, as a comment on Alan Kessler's Facebook. Alan Kessler has an open and public Facebook, meaning you can read the content of Alan Kessler's Facebook without being a friend of Alan Kessler's. So if you just search Alan Kessler, you can find this. So I'm not giving away anything private, just letting you know that. But this was posted on Alan Kessler's Facebook. Kessler posted this video and asked for comments. And a guy named Sean Van Pham Again, I don't know him. I don't know if you can trust him. For all I know, he could be making this up. But this is what he wrote. Patches has been dealing for a while. He has had many problems before. He is a degenerate that loses his tips on break and gambles away all his earnings on a weekly basis. That leads to him having a general negative attitude when he returns to deal and just lost his money. He has dealt in New York City and had issues. He had dealt at Taj Mahal Atlantic City and had issues. He also plays poker and has had issues at the Orleans Poker Room with players as a player. I'm not surprised. Okay, so that's, that's what this Sean Van Pham posted publicly on Alan Kessler's open Facebook. As I said, I don't know him. I will say that nobody else, from what I've seen, has verified that any of this is true or told similar stories. So I would have thought we'd probably hear other stories besides this if what Sean Van Pham wrote was true. You'd think we'd have some people coming out of the woodwork saying, ah, you know what? There's some things about Patches that you guys don't really know. And uh, he's had a lot of problems and a lot of issues. Like, you'd think we'd have a lot of people writing that, not just this one guy. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're just staying quiet because <laughs> they don't want to be shouted down by the big-name pros. Or maybe they, they see the crowd is all on Patches' side. They don't want to be the naysayer. So it's possible this is true. It's also possible... None of it's true. It's possible this is just a troll. You never know on the internet. I've had horrible and nasty things written about me on the internet, most of which is not true. So believe me, I am one who knows that uh, trolls can say things about you that are absolutely false. There's been something trolls have written about me where I go, where the hell are they getting this? Like, this is not even close to true. Sometimes trolls will take something that is like 10% true and just like embellish it to where it doesn't really resemble the truth anymore, but at least it started with something that has like a little bit of truth. There's been things written about me before where I look and go, what the hell? I don't know where this even comes from. You know, take it all with a grain of salt. Again, everything else very positive, 
And several poker pros, like a lot of poker pros, came out in his defense. And all wrote positive things and encouraged people to donate to the GoFundMe. So is the GoFundMe still open? Yes, it is. If you want to find the GoFundMe, if you want to donate the money, I'm not encouraging you or discouraging you from donating to it. You can do what you want. I uh, don't really have an opinion on that. But if you want to donate to him, the GoFundMe is linked from the Poker Fraud Alert page. You can also just Google uh, Patches Aria GoFundMe. I'm sure you'll find it. On GoFundMe, it's called Poker Dealers for Patches. So apparently this Kayla Amos Odinas is probably another dealer who works with him there. And this is to help him pay his bills while he's looking for other employment because he's presumably going to lose his job. So I will say if you uh, feel bad for him that he lost his job over this and that uh, the guy who was attacking him and taunting him was a jerk and he just kind of snapped and you don't want him to go hungry or not be able to pay his rent, then if that makes you want to donate, then by all means do so. And if you don't, and you don't think he deserves it, that's fine too. It's your money. You do what you want with it. He has raised over $22,500 already, so he will be fine for some time. And I assume more will come in. You know how these GoFundMe's go. When something kind of starts to go viral, these things can make a lot of money. Now, this is not going to make a fortune because the poker community is not that large. When there's a big story that goes viral, then sometimes these GoFundMe's can break a million bucks, even in cases where the person's only looking for like a few thousand and where they really only need a few thousand. You'll see it break over a million or 750,000, and it's just because the public gets into it and everyone wants to to donate because they kind of want to be part of it. And that's just kind of human nature. It's kind of like a uh, follow the leader, or I hate to say it, but people being sheep just – you see everyone's donating to what looks like a good cause and it's tugging at your heartstrings. You want to donate too instead of looking and going, look, this person's already got $750,000. They don't need my money. But people don't think that way. They just want to kind of be part of it. Now, that's not going to happen here with patches because the poker community is not that large. So we're not going to see a tremendous sum of money. But he's got a pretty good sum already. He got 22000 It's pretty good already. As I said, it's not going to hold him off, hold him forever. In fact, it's not even going to be enough for a year or anywhere close to a year. But, you know... It's something. It's better than zero. So if you want to donate, then by all means do it. I think this is going to keep going up. And we'll see if Patches ever deals again in Nevada or if this is it. He might be able to get licensed again elsewhere or maybe in Nevada after some time if he cites the fact that he doesn't have any uh, other black marks on his record and he's been working for so long. So that can help him. What can help him is that he didn't just start dealing two weeks ago when this occurred. If you've been dealing for 35 years and you have a spotless record, then you can say, look, this is a one-time thing, and the guy was just relentless, and I, I, I lost it, but I won't, let it ever happen, I won't let it happen again. And I have a feeling he's going to say that. I have a feeling that's going to be his uh, pretty much his defense. I don't think he can deny it. I don't think he can claim the guy hit him first if the guy didn't hit him first. Uh, how would I feel if he gets his job back? You know, fine. Like, I, I don't... On one hand, I don't think he should have done that, and I don't think dealers should ever do that unless they're actually hit first. But at the same time, I, I don't think he attacked a nice, sweet guy who uh, didn't deserve it. So, 
there, there's been times people have been at my table, and I think, you know what? If this guy got punched, I would not feel bad for him. <laughs> that That's what I have thought before watching some of these things happen. If you play live poker or if you plan to again when the pandemic's over, just think of the dealer and don't be a jerk. Don't yell at the dealer. Don't curse the dealer. Don't berate the dealer. Just be nice. Just understand they take a lot of abuse. and It's, it's not a nice thing to do. It sucks to lose. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating. And I get frustrated when I lose. Most of us do. You, you have to be very, very even-tempered to not get frustrated when you lose. Or I guess if you're like a total desensitized degenerate gambler who's so used to crazy swings and losses that you don't, you, it just doesn't phase you anymore. But I'm not. It, it, it affects me when I lose. But I, I keep it under control, both in my poker play, I, you know, I, I don't tilt, and also in my demeanor. And I don't get, uh, I don't abuse people when I'm losing. You can see the difference in my mood. You can see I'm not happy. But I don't ever abuse anybody, especially the dealer, because they don't deserve it. It's not the dealer's fault that you're getting bad cards. In fact, sometimes when I'm losing, I'm mad at myself. Sometimes I think about a hand I didn't play well or whatever. And I'm never mad at the dealer. I wonder where Trader Ruski went. We just, we just lost him. Let's try to get him back. I mean, I was hoping he'd clear his connection up, but I didn't mean he'd disappear. Here we are. What's up? Hey, Droth. Hi. Well, good to have you back. Oh, there we are, the ACR yeah, sound again. I'm shutting that off. <laughs> Damn, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on. I want to give you an update on the 21 Blitz story, uh, a story that no other poker podcast or radio show has covered, or even a gambling radio show to my knowledge. I don't think it's been covered really on any show. It's been covered by a few articles here and there, but we've done the – most extensive coverage on it, and we did this back in February. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing because it would take a long time. But uh, very quick recap, and if you want more, go back to the February ep- not February the September episode. Early September, we did an episode, early mid September, something like that, about uh, 21 Blitz. I think even the title of the episode was like "Putting on the Blitz," something that was making reference to that. This situation didn't have that much to do with poker but it personally interested me because it was a game i had actually played it's an app called 21 blitz it is owned and operated by a company called skills s-k-i-l-l-z that runs a lot of these type of games you've probably seen a lot of ads for games like 21 blitz and solitaire cube and stuff like that if you play any games on your phone because when you watch ads to get power-ups or whatever it is that you, you play, you know, a lot of these phone games have ads in them. And when you run an ad, you, you, you'll often see something for 21 Blitz or something similar. And I had, and it actually worked on me. Eventually, it, it kind of browbeat me into downloading the game because I saw it so often. I'm like, okay, I'll finally check this out. I've seen the ad 200 times. So I, I downloaded it and played I was trying to see if it was beatable. And I kind of determined at the time it probably wasn't. I said, I think almost everybody in here loses because the rake is so high and they actually force match you with someone that they say is the same skill level as you in order to prevent uh, 
quote, unfair matches, which it's, it's how is it unfair if you're playing someone less skilled than you? That's exactly how poker works. But uh, the truth is they try to match exactly skilled players so they collect the most rake. They hope that everybody just splits it and they just keep getting the rake over and over and pretty much nobody ever withdraws because it's always evenly matched players playing each other. And as you get better, then they match you with better people. But I, I notice it's even worse than that. To me, it looks like they even match people to already completed matches. They they don't match two already completed matches together. Which they, they guarantee that in their terms of service, but they do not guarantee that they won't match you with somebody who already completed, or, nor that they don't make that a, a factor in deciding who to match you with. So if somebody happened to have hit a really high score, someone who isn't that good, but let's say they just happened to have done really well in that uh, particular uh, deck, and then you get matched with them because the app wants you to lose, then apparently they can do that. I don't know if they actually do it, but... I think they can, and I suspect they might. So I've been very skeptical of this, and for that reason, I never uh, put any kind of real money on there. And I just kind of messed around with it to see if there was any opportunity there. Because it seemed like a lot of gamblers that I knew that could be good at it, like good poker pros or uh, good advantage players, they didn't know about it. Like, nobody knew about it. And so I thought, okay, this would be an opportunity. Sure enough, the two two of the biggest winners on that app were two complete unknowns to the gambling community. And uh, these were, there were two people. One was a, a guy named Anthony Prignano. He looked, I, I saw a picture of him. I, I don't know how old he is, but he kind of looks like 30s. And then the surprising person as being one of the best people on the app was a very young woman named Alyssa Ball, who was 19 years old from Las Vegas and very pretty. Like, you would never look at her and think that she'd be one of the best on that app, but she was. So they were winning on there, and especially Anthony Prignano. He was winning hundreds of thousands on there, apparently. Uh, Alyssa Ball was also winning, but not quite to the same level, but she was definitely a winning player on there. What happened was both of them eventually got banned. Anthony claims that he was banned because he tried to claim a prize he won, kind of like from frequent player points. You get to, You earn these things called tickets that earn you uh, prizes, and he accumulated tickets to get their very best prize, which was a Porsche Boxster. And they didn't think anyone would get there, but he played such a high volume, like all day and all night, that he actually earned the Boxster. And he claims that they stalled him and gave excuses and then finally raised the requirement for it after he had already earned it and said, oh, actually, you didn't earn it yet. This is the new requirement. And then when he complained about it more, they banned him. That's his story. And then Alyssa Ball claims that they banned her because she was complaining about a cheater that had been beating her and Anthony Prignano and that this cheater was basically using an exploit on there where you could pause the game uh, after every card dealt and then at the end know the deck because you just note down every card that was dealt and uh, it gives you a big edge. Now, I noticed this exploit early on. I, I didn't try to use it because I didn't think it was ethical, but I, I had figured all the big winners on there were probably using that. Uh, they were claiming they weren't, uh, Prignano and Ball, and I think they actually weren't. I think they really weren't using that exploit, but uh, this other guy that was beating them was, and uh, they. Uh, she said she complained about this, and then she got banned too. Supposedly, Anthony Prignano got over $200,000 also confiscated when he was banned, and Alyssa Ball had $28,000 confiscated. And I do see proof of the 28000 because... Just before they banned her, she did a video for them to prove who she was because they, they they were doubtful that she was real. They were like, you know, when they were when she was 
complaining about the cheaters. They're like, well, we want to make sure you're real. So they made her produce a video of her playing the game. So I saw this video. It wasn't meant for the public to be seen, but it was on YouTube. So I found it. And yeah, there she was. She played. It was the same girl. I quickly saw the $28,000 balance when I paused it at a certain moment there. So it was all legit. Like, I, I don't know about their claims. And, and so anyway, Alyssa Ball and Anthony Prignano and a third person who goes by Jane Rowe, which is, of course, an alias, is someone who's hiding their name to prevent the shame of being a fish on 21 Blitz. I kid you not. Uh, they hired attorney Mac Verstandig, who mainly takes poker cases, as you know, but he took this case. I guess it has some association with poker. Mac Verstandig basically, basically runs a uh, – uh, gambling rights law firm where he really specializes in the, those type of cases. That's really his entire practice is cases that have something to do with uh, with poker or gambling, usually poker. So in this case, I, I don't know how they found him, but uh, he took this case, I presume on contingency, and they sued Skills. And I reported this back in September. Well, we have an update on that case. And I'll tell you, before I give you the update, I'll tell you where it was left off. Because this was a very active case when we reported it in September. And if you haven't heard about this, I really encourage you to go look this up because it's a very interesting story. And I wrote this up on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum on Poker Fraud Alert if this seems kind of complicated to you. There was even a funny little side story to it, which is actually included in the lawsuit, but I, I really don't think it's going to matter very much, uh, that the CEO was a 37-year-old named Andrew Paradise, that uh, when Alyssa Ball added him on Instagram to talk to him about this, that he mistook it that she was interested in him. So she's, he's like, oh, wow, do I know you? You're so beautiful. Like I, I don't think I'd forget you. And he, he put up some really, really cheesy lines on her. And then so she's talking to him, and then she – broke it to him that she wasn't messaging him because she was into him. She was messaging him because she wanted to talk about 21 Blitz. And then he's like, okay, well, that's not what I was hoping for. But all right, maybe I could parlay this. So he's like, hey, uh, I'll be happy to talk to you about this, but uh, only if we could do it on video chat. (laughs) (laughs) You think if I found him that way, because I had an issue. Do you think he'd want to talk to me on video chat, or you think he'd be okay with the phone? I, I have a feeling that the CEO there, Andrew Paradise, I have a feeling that he wouldn't want to talk to me on video chat. But he wanted to talk to Alyssa Ball on video chat about this, which he agreed. She's like, okay, whatever. I'll talk to you on video chat. And then and then he backed out of that and basically said that his board of directors said that they don't want him talking to her, and that's that. I think he probably told them the story, and they're like, no, 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 don't talk to her. So... <laughs> So that was that, and then they filed the lawsuit. So anyway, uh, Skills claimed back that Ball and Prignano were actually cheating, and that this woman who the, the third person is Jane Rowe, who lost on there. See, Prignano and Ball were at least winners. This third woman just like lost the whole way. She just was a fish on there, and was suing them for misleading advertising, which I agree is like super misleading. They try when you like to this day the ads that Skills runs are implying that if you just play it, you'll win. You'll just make extra money. They, they aim it at like housewives who just need a little bit extra money. It, they, don't, they don't promote it of what it actually is, that it's a skill game, and that very, very few people end up winners. They don't say that. It makes it look like you just you play, you win. And there are kind of games like that. There, there are games out there. They're very boring, but there are games that are like 
full of ads and the game itself is boring, but if you put the time in, you'll make a little bit of extra money every month, like you know, 40 bucks or something, but you will make money. You won't lose. There are games out there you can play that if you put enough hours in and watch enough ads, you will actually get real cash sent to you. I wouldn't advise that you'll make less than minimum wage, but you can do it. So they kind of imply it's like that, except even better, and in reality, it's it's a gambling game. It's like a skill and gambling game where you lose, where almost everybody loses, from what I can tell. So this Jane Rowe lost like $60,000 on there, and uh, Skills claimed that they kept trying to ban her, but that she was such a compulsive gambler that she kept making fake accounts and getting back on there. So that was their response to that. As far as Prognano and Ball, they said that, that they were actually the cheaters, not with a pause button, but they were cheating in other ways, and that was the reason they were banned. And they, I, I didn't really believe Skills' response for the most part. I, I believed maybe a little of it, but I, I really did think that Prignano and Ball were in the right here for the most part, and I do think that they really screwed Prignano with Porsche Boxster. These are just my opinions, by the way. I have no real evidence either way of who's right or wrong, but just, just from my observations and also my observations of skills and how they operate and the way the app operates and some of the misleading ads they run. I mean, I, I don't think very highly of skills. I think that uh, they, they seem very shady to me. They seem very... Uh, they're taking advantage of the fact that the whole industry is not governed by very strict laws at this point. Laws are very immature as far as covering either in-app purchases, in-game currency, uh, quote, skill games that uh, technically don't fall under the banner of gambling when they really should, like this one. All that stuff is not really regulated. And the company can basically do what they want to screw who they want. There's very, very little you can do in, uh, you know, do back to them. There's very little you can even sue them for. So it's, it's, they really need a lot of law governing these apps. And I'm not a big person in who believes that regulation should be everywhere, but there do need to be some regulations. There do need to be, there needs to be something done here because, uh, these companies are really taking advantage of people. But anyway, back to this specific situation. The way it was left was that the biggest matter was that there was an attempt to compel all three plaintiffs to do this through arbitration. And indeed, all three players did agree through the terms of service that they would take it to arbitration if there are any disputes. So you may say, okay, well, that should be very black and white. If they've agreed that there will be arbitration, if there's any disputes, then there is a dispute. It should be an arbitration, right? Well, Mac argues that this is buried in a very long terms of service and that they purposely make it very difficult to even see that you're agreeing to this because they put it in a tiny font to click there to read the terms of service compared to everything else where the font's much larger and that you can click through without ever having clicked that. You, know, like you don't have to even read it. You can just uh, either don't see it, or you can see that tiny thing and not bother to click it, and you can set up an account. So it's very easy to set up an account without ever having read that. And if you do read it, it's buried way down there. And he says that uh, the terms of service are just very, very skewed toward making it to where they can't be liable for anything. So it basically says you have to take them to arbitration, not court, and you agree that the maximum they can ever owe you is $50. So he's saying for the amount that's being played for on there, for them to cap their liability at $50 is very, very one-sided and should not be legal. I, I Definitely I agree morally. Legally, I don't know where that stands. 
So that's where it was left. That's where it was left on September 12th when I last reported on this. I'm reading my uh, forum post about this right now. Well, there's an update, as I mentioned. And unfortunately, much like the uh, Mike Postle case, not the one against me, but the case where Mike Postle was the defendant, where Mac Verstandig was the attorney for 88 plaintiffs, much like in that case, the result so far is not very good. On November 12th, U.S. District Court in Nevada granted Skill's motion to compel arbitration. So arbitration is happening. The court had previously granted Skill's previous motion to compel Jane Rowe, the third plaintiff who's under that alias, to use her real name in the lawsuit or be dropped. Jane Rowe was trying to claim that this would humiliate her, that she lost so much in this app and that she was tricked into playing it and chunking off like $60,000 and that she should not have to give her real name. And the court said, oh, yes, you do. (laughs) This is not a good enough reason to keep your name anonymous and that it is true courts generally frown upon people keeping their names anonymous in court filings. Basically, if you want to take something to court, you've got to bear a lot of stuff. There's uh, there's not a lot of privacy when it comes to court in civil cases. So, especially if you're the plaintiff, you want you want to bring a case against someone, you've got to be honest with who you are. I I, I agree with the court there. Like, there's, there's not a good enough reason to. Yeah, she's embarrassed about losing gambling. Okay, well, then you can just be embarrassed and not try to get the money back. Or if you're going to try to get the money back, you've got to say who you are. I, I agree with the court there. Anyway, they were compelling her to say who she was. I mean, Skills knows who, they know who she is, but Skills is saying we want her listed her name listed on the lawsuit or throw her off of this and the court says yes we agree but since this can't be taken to court anyway since this needs to go to arbitration this is moot so that doesn't really end up mattering but the whole thing is being pushed back to arbitration the judge wrote this because the plaintiffs agreed to the ter- terms of service by creating accounts and skills app And two, the arbitration agreement in the terms of service is valid and enforceable. I grant Skill's motion to compel arbitration. It is therefore ordered that defendant Skill's motion to compel arbitration is granted, and this action is dismissed without prejudice to the plaintiff's ability to arbitrate their claims in compliance with the arbitration agreement minus the agreement's fee-splitting provision. So what does that all mean? It means they have to go back to arbitration, but that this is being dismissed without prejudice, so Mac could refile or they could even refile with a different attorney if they decide to not continue with Mac. But that So this isn't dismissed where they can't refile, but uh, the way this court sees it here, that uh, as filed, this is being dismissed because this needs to go to arbitration, and that uh, they basically have to keep to whatever they agreed to regarding that. So that has been the decision. Mac is apparently appealing this. I don't know if the appeal is going to be successful, but at the moment, this is not very positive for the plaintiffs. I had actually thought that Skills was just going to settle, and they weren't going to give a lot of what Mac was asking for. I was guessing that what was going to happen is Skills was just going to pay out the balances, because there really wasn't that much of a question that Alyssa Ball and Anthony Prignano won what they said they won. So I thought Skills was probably going to give them their balances and then give Prignano the Porsche, not give them a penny above that, keep having them banned from the platform. And then as far as this Jane Rowe, maybe giving a, a few token thousand bucks back and be done. That's the, that's what I thought they were going to offer. 
and that this whole matter of being cheated and them not doing anything about that cheater, I, I had a feeling that was going to go nowhere and that they were going to, Skills was going to say, no, he wasn't cheating, prove he was cheating, and they were not going to be able to, and that was going to be that. So uh, I didn't think the cheating thing was going to go anywhere, but I thought that they'd at least get their balances off. Because it's pretty obnoxious they're not going to get their balances. And it's pretty obnoxious that Anthony Prignano is not going to get his Porsche. And that's very, very unethical, in my opinion. But these companies really do believe they can just do what they want. So here they just ban these two and said, okay, you're gone and we're taking your balances. Crappy. Very crappy. I really feel very strongly that these apps that involve any kind of real money that uh, not just gambling apps, but any kind of gaming app where you're continuously spending money, either on in-app purchases or through some sort of uh, competition, whether it's gambling or otherwise, that they need to be regulated. There need to be very clear regulations of what these apps can do and can't do, and there needs to be uh, a government body that enforces complaints, kind of like the gaming commission that exists for casinos. They need that for these apps. Because I see abuses again and again and again. And you may say, oh, we don't need that. We don't need regulation. Just let, let the free market regulate it. No, because the, the free market can't. Because uh, these companies would rather they have some unhappy customers who bitch on social media but be able to operate the way they do. They'll, they'll take a little bit of a loss of people not playing the games because they see bad reviews on social media uh, compared to – all the gains they will get by behaving in what they feel is the manner that will get them the most optimal profit. And that's the whole point of regulation, is that uh, the free market can't take care of everything. And I'm actually a believer of the free market in a lot of realms in life. I, I just don't think this is one of them. I think this is open to too much abuse and with too little recourse at the moment, especially with the law being as immature as it is for apps like this and even games that have in-app purchases that are not uh, competitions where you can re- win real money. In fact, I posted on Poker Fraud Alert that I'm having a problem right now with Roblox, which is a kid's game that Benjamin loves. And they basically straight up ripped me off for 48 bucks. And there, unfortunately, there's not much I could do because if I charge it back on my card, they're going to ban him. And I don't want that. That would devastate him if they ban him. So I, I, I feel trapped. I can't even do anything about it. I have to beg their outsourced support in the third world to give me my money back. And I don't think they're going to. I'm not going to get into that whole story. You can you can go look on Poker Fraud there. I posted the whole thing on the Flying Stupidity Forum. But I, that was the first thing I thought of was that this is so awful that they can just make up whatever rules they want, and then that's that, that's just the way it is. They're judge, jury, and executioner with my money, and I really have no recourse. And is it a U.S. company, Jeff? Yeah, it's a U.S. company, but uh, there's the, the problem is the law for these things is very immature. There's there's a lot of ways, a lot of loopholes they can get around what little existing law there is. And uh, I, I talked about this a while back. There's another game I play. Well, I, Roblox, I don't play. This is something Ben plays. But there's a game I play where uh, I bought some in-game currency. And I, I don't spend a ton. Like, there's some people who spend thousands of dollars on these games, which is crazy. But I, I spent a little money on a game I liked. And there was a certain in-game currency that I bought. And then I accidentally banged a button to purchase something I didn't want, which was super easy because there's no verification. Do you really want to buy this? Yes, no. Nothing like this. It's like The second you touch it, if you're – like let's say you just bang against it somehow or it's in your pocket and bangs against it or you, 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 know, you your, your finger slips and it, it hits the wrong spot, then you've just bought it. So 
I thought it should be very simple. I'll write to them, write to support, and say, hey, can you take back the purchase? No. Tough luck. You bought it. I go, but this is like there's so many ways to accidentally buy something. There's like the way the interface is built, it's so easy to accidentally buy something, and people do it all the time. Yeah, well, our policy is tough luck. That's why it's built that way. Yeah, it's it's a right. That's why it's built that way. And and there's nothing I can do. Well, maybe complaining to Apple and getting it kicked out of the App Store or something. I mean, that might be the way. Well, right, and that's that's actually that's actually what I did. I actually got a refund from Apple because Apple will refund if if you complain. But 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 the thing is, there's. Uh, there's if you're not doing it through Apple, if this is something like Roblox, Ben isn't playing through Apple, so uh, things like that, and same with the skills thing. It's, it's, it, yes, there's uh, you're not making a lot of these purchases through the App Store. You're you're uh, you're, you're buying the in-game currency in, in a different way you're, on, on skills because it's, you're, you're buying real money. Well, right, but you can still complain though, and maybe that you know maybe put some pressure on them from Google and Apple. To- correct these things. Yeah, and that, that's all you can do at the moment, right? And that's, that's really your only recourse at the moment, and even that's hit and miss. So there, just, there needs to be laws about this, and they need to be intelligently written. They shouldn't be too restrictive, but they also need to exist. They, because these companies, we're seeing it right now, they're not behaving responsibly. And this is what I said about online poker a long time ago. Back in the 2000s, I said, online poker needs to be regulated or it'll be a disaster. We can't trust the companies that are providing us the poker to behave in a responsible manner. They're going to behave in the manner they think that they feel like behaving. And that's it. They're not going to care about us. And people said, oh, how can you say that? We don't want a regulation. It's terrible. Look how great Poker Stars is. Look how great uh, Full Tilt is. Look how great UB is. The, you know, they're doing fine. Everybody, Everybody's honest. It's great. Well, look what happened. Look what happened to the UB. They cheated us twice. Look what happened to Full Tilt. They stole all the money. Poker Stars, they were the best of the bunch. But even they uh, gave a little bit of a screw job with the frequent flare points. Uh, the, the bottom line is they need a regulation. And regulation isn't perfect, and we see a lot of the fails of WSOP.com, which is regulated, and they need better regulation. It's it's not regulated well in Nevada right now because they, the Nevada Gaming Commission doesn't understand online poker very well, but that's a whole different story. That doesn't mean we don't need regulation. It just means we need good regulation. But when there's no regulation, the companies will always do what they feel benefits them, not what benefits you. So... In these type of situations, you definitely need regulation. And sk- with skills, like you should see those ads, they are so misleading. They are incredibly misleading. I wasn't tricked by them, but uh, I can totally imagine how the average person watching this, one who is not wise to this sort of thing, like we are in this industry, uh, would be tricked by this. And I also see a lot of practices of the way they operate the app that uh, pretty much guarantees that almost everybody loses. And that's also something that is not good. So these, these things need to be regulated and some of these practices need to be illegal. And eventually we're going to get there, maybe in 2025, maybe in 2030. It's not going to happen now. It's not going to happen next year. And it's sad because these things are getting very, very popular, very, very common, probably even more popular in 2020 with people staying home and needing things to do. Let's move on. I want to give you an update on Daniel Negranu and his match with Doug Polk. This is going on every few days, it seems. And, of course, Polk is the one with the edge because he's the much better heads-up, no-limit player. He's arguably the best heads-up, no-limit player in the world. Negranu, of course, uh, with an excellent overall record in poker, over the years, including recently, but 
Still, this isn't his specialty. He's more of a limit and mixed games player who is uh, definitely good at no limit, but not, uh, yeah, especially heads up no limit, uh, definitely not great. But, you know, he was training, he was trying to adapt to it, and I've seen his ability to adapt adapt to the times changing in poker, and he's not one of these guys who got left behind. So I figured, you know, I think he's got a better than 4.25 to 1 chance to win, which is the odds I got. So I, I placed a bet with somebody, and I put up 500. That person put up a little more than 2,000, and uh, right now my bet's not looking that good, but it's only 500, so whatever. Where we left off, uh, Doug was uh, doing pretty well. Doug was already a good deal up. At first, they were kind of trading sessions, and uh, uh, Doug was up. At, first, Daniel was up, then Doug got up, then uh, Daniel got back up. So at first, it looked pretty good for my bet, but then uh, it started to go in the toilet. And uh, the last time I did the show, Doug was up, I think, $578,000, and they had played... 6,200 hands. Remember, they're playing 25,000 hands, but either one can choose to end the match at the 12,500 mark. They have agreed that they're going to play no matter what and no matter how badly either one loses. They're going to play through the 12,500 hand mark. Then either person can opt out, and if neither one does, they will finish the 25K hands. So there's no bailing out except for that middle point, which we're getting closer to. So that's where we were last time I did the show. Eight days ago. Here's where we are now. On December 9th, Doug won $101,000 more in 662 hands to put him just a hair under $800,000 over Negranu. And uh, that was through 8,100 hands. So then uh, Doug put a further beat down on Daniel. It was starting to really look bad for Daniel at this point. He... Uh, won $173,000 over 980 hands to put his total at 957000 over almost 10,000 hands. So they were about 40% through. They were getting close to that halfway mark where Daniel can opt out if he wants, or I guess Doug could too, but it's very unlikely he would being up this much money. And uh, Doug is up uh, now a lot of money after almost 10,000 hands. That was as of December 10th. That's pretty good for Doug. Now, I will say in Daniel's defense that every time he gets into a big spot where there's a lot of money going in on both sides, that he seems to be on the wrong end of it, not because he's not playing well, not because he's a fish, but because he's just been unlucky, that all the cooler spots just keep seeing, seeming to be going to Doug. That just Whenever a lot of money gets in, it's going to Doug, and it's not even necessarily because Daniel's putting it in bad. It's just that there's spots where it's going to go in on both sides no matter what, and then it always seems like Doug wins those. So that's just very unlucky for Daniel, and Daniel's been saying that, and he has a point. But uh, it's also been acknowledged by those watching that Doug is just also playing a lot better. So in the smaller spots, Doug is also outplaying him. But whatever it is, at that point... Doug was up almost one million dollars. Now, as you can imagine, Daniel, who hasn't been all that stable recently, he's been very 
easy to agitate as we've seen on his Twitch stream. And this, I'm talking about before this challenge, like when you saw him playing at WCP.com, where he had these meltdowns, where he was talking about he was going to break his computer, and he was shouting obscenities. And this was a side of Daniel people hadn't seen before. And people are starting to go, whoa, I thought he was like this kind of fun-loving, good-natured, happy guy. And he seems like he's always like, the, the real Daniel we're seeing on Twitch here looks like he's like roid-raging. It's very strange. So we've talked about that before on the show, and whether that's always been him or if that's something that's been happening recently and why, and I'm not even sure of the answer there, but that's been alarming a lot of people. Well, as you can imagine, Daniel being in these type of moods lately, he could not be very happy about losing this type of money to Doug Polk, even if he's getting backed here. It's still, there's still the embarrassment that he's losing to someone he hates, someone that's been trolling him for years. And then he agrees to this, and now he's getting his clock cleaned. And at first it was going okay, but now it's going downhill. So after the session where he lost about 100K to be down about 800K, uh, here is uh, a rant that Daniel had when he appeared on a post-game show where they were talking to him about the session he had just played. Daniel, I mean, that that sucked, man. That sucked at the end. I, I feel like, you know, that flip... Not flip, but you know what I mean. If that goes goes the other way, that has the the real chance to to turn the tide, to give you all the me- momentum to use, you know, whatever cliche you want to use. What the fuck's going on? I yeah, mean, that works too. Yeah. Do I fucking have to start every motherfucking cocksucking session, flopping a fucking or turning a motherfucking straight with a fucking club when he fucking makes a flush? What the fuck, dude? I have trips. He has a fucking flush. I flop a straight. I turn a straight. He makes a fucking flush. I have, holy fuck, dude. And then I probably pick up Ace King suited and think yeah. maybe one motherfucking time this guy cannot hold with aces, right, in a cooler spot. And, of course, they tease you the hardest yeah. possible with a couple clubs and give you the king just in case he would have queens or jacks. Every other four-bet pot I had tens. What he's talking about here is a very brutal hand. This is heads up, of course. So this is where you, you can't always give your opponent credit for having something huge because the heads up, uh, of course, there's a lot of times your opponent's totally missed or doesn't have that big of a piece of it, but they're still putting, playing pretty strong because they think you have worse. So Daniel had ace king of clubs and Doug had aces. And if you think that's bad enough, the flop is two seven three with two clubs. So they get the money in and so Daniel's like, oh crap, well at least I have the flush outs and then he just bricks, bricks. But then as, as the final kick in the ass, he gets the king on the river, which of course doesn't help him. That's what he's talking about there. The board king, king jack, king, king jack. I was lucky enough to win one with tens against nines, mm-hmm. but of course the other tens against queen jack. It is fucking epic. Like heads up poker is bananas. Like wait till you see this fucking rant video that I'm going to put together for tomorrow. Holy fucking shit. I I mean, why am I not losing more? That's the only fucking question. I should feel like I should be losing $20 million by now in this motherfucking cock-sucking game. Now I have to go get money and fucking put more money in because I don't have enough to play. Son of a bitch, this is a joke. Well, yeah, you figure like, all right, well, I went through the worst possible fucking run I could, so yeah. that's not possible to happen again, but the poker guys mm-hmm. the cards don't know that, right? And every, any motherfucker in the chat who starts saying, go, 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 you should have folded the ace-king suited if I see you, well, I can't say it because I'm. No. <laughs> if I see you, I'll just say thank you for the feedback. That's what I'll do. Uh, what the fuck, man? This is just fucking dirty, right? And then it immediately gets paid back with you know he has top set versus your river two pair. Oh, that motherfucking yeah. cock's fucking dick hand where I have fucking top pair kings with a motherfucking flush draw against these three fucking bullshit kings, and then I fucking check it back like a fucking pro, you know? 
looking to play a river. Here we go. And then I make the fucking yeah, kings and threes to just get anally fucked pretty hard right there. Yeah. Wow. The hey, hey, anally fucked pretty hard. It pretty is. unlucky. You think? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus fucking joke. So, I don't know. He's, he's, you know what this motherfucker texts me? No offense, but this fucking guy texts me. Oh, yeah. Because they said a few beats. He's like, what did he say? He said that King Deuce was pretty reasonable for you. Sorry I fucking split one motherfucking hand where you had the nuts. Pardon me for having the audacity to fucking tie you on the river and win half the fucking pot. Holy shit, dude. What the fuck, man? Everything was going okay after the grind back. It's like every yeah. fucking session I get stuck, like making a straight and then fucking he has a flush or some stupid shit. And then I'm grinding my way back. It's been like six sessions in a row, so clearly fucking annoyed. What I'm most annoyed about... Like, not even the poker. Like, I, if I had another million in my account already, I would be like, whatever. But now yeah. I have to go down to the fucking thing and do a wire and all this kind of shit. And- yeah, he's been complaining about that. In fact, that actually interrupted a session where Daniel simply didn't have enough money to continue. Remember, they're playing for a lot of money here. And this is on WSB.com. So Daniel actually has to put the money on there. And uh, so he actually said that the, he has the indignity of having to go down there and, and wire, like, another million in there. And that it is the thing he doesn't want to do, but he has to. And that's what he's complaining about there. And in fact, it interrupted one of the matches when he just didn't have enough money to continue playing at the level they were playing. Fucking put more money in. Have I cursed enough yet, or do I need some more? I mean, I think you've cursed an appropriate amount. You know, sometimes you just got to get it out. It's a, it's not good to just always sit there bottled up if you're going to. Yeah, I understand. I only lost two and a half buy-ins in the second, somehow. Oh. You know, when it starts like that, it'd be easy to fall into the trap of, oh, here we go again, whatever. Well, it's fucking here we go again, because every motherfucking session is the same. It starts like that. So it's not like, it doesn't go, here we go again. I'm like, oh, obvious, fucking standard. I'm going to put a fucking cooler in. And the fucking worst part about the straight hand, when I had seven nines, I also had a club, right? Yeah. For extra insult injury. What the fuck, man? Just to make it even more of a call, you know, there's no silver, yeah. Not like I was folding anyway. I have a straight hand. Yeah. That's the thing, too. I played really good in this session. I felt like, well, what are you going to do? Man? I mean, I say that every time, right? People are like, oh, you say you just keep losing, fucking change it up. Maybe start throwing some curveballs. What the fuck, man? That's crazy. I'm going to do it at the end. I'm going to look at all the big pots. And we'll count the fucking setup, motherfucking setup hands. And we'll see yeah. how many motherfucking setup hands went his way. This is what you fucking people don't get about poker, right? You take two people, right? They play poker. Fucking, if one guy has eight setups, the other guy has two setups. The guy who has eight fucking setups is going to win mm-hmm. every fucking time. Every fucking time. And it's been like it's been like that for a couple weeks. So, man, definitely disappointed to lose this session. Yeah, I mean, he raises some good points here. I, I can't completely argue with all this. Uh, it is very easy to, make, to cast judgment upon the person losing in a heads-up poker match who isn't getting the better cards. It's very easy to say, oh, that guy's a fish. Oh, he sucks. Oh, he should have done this better. He should have done that better. Oh, he's getting killed. Oh, you know, the, the one who's winning is so much better than him. And I've seen this before. I've seen this when I've played heads up. Now, I don't play heads up no limit, but when I've played heads up limit and I've gone through some brutal stretches of, of the other person getting all the hands. And when I do get a hand, they find a way to bad beat me. And, and I'm just losing, losing, losing. And I've had people watching before and, and just, saying very obnoxious things about, uh, oh, this person's so much better, oh, he's crushing you, oh, he's... They're not saying, oh, they're not being honest. They're not saying, look, it looks like you're on the wrong end of this, or even 
saying something like, well, it looks like you've gotten very unlucky there, but I still feel the other guy played better. Like, I, I wouldn't hear that. I hear, like, just a lot of really nasty things being said. And I've seen the reverse. I've seen it where I'm beating someone heads up and everyone's mocking them for being so awful. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, they, they deserve better than this. They're not a bad player. They're just uh, not running well. So it is true. Daniel hasn't run well here. It is true. And what he's trying to say is if whoever gets the big spots in this one, whoever, if, if whoever's winning most of the big spots, just by the way the cards fall, they're going to be the winner, and people aren't understanding that, and instead they're criticizing him. Where he is making a mistake, first of all, you don't go and rant like this about how unlucky you are. You you can point it out. You can say, look, there's been a lot of big spots. If you go take a look at all the big pots, most of them have gone to him in a lot of hands that were going to play themselves, and that's a reason I'm down a lot, but he's played well so far. Hopefully the luck will go better for me, and it's frustrating to me, but I'm going to have to just keep my head down and not let this bother me and just get back to it. That's, that's what he should have said, or just say nothing. You know, to, to go on and rant about how lucky the other guy has been and then to bitch about people criticizing you, here's the point. This isn't just some heads-up match occurring on a poker site and you're having trolls bother you. This is a match that you're having with an enemy. Remember, these two are enemies. So you're having a match with a longtime enemy, a guy you hate, to basically be a spectacle. Both of you are making this into a spectacle, which is fine. It's fine. If both of you want the spectacle and the poker world wants to watch, that's great. But if you're going to make a spectacle out of it, you're going to have people who are going to say things to you that are negative or try to give you unsolicited, unhelpful advice on what you need to do to improve. You're going to have all these comments, and you've got to expect it. You can't get mad at the people for making these comments. You can think these people don't know what they're talking about. You can think they're idiots, but you don't say it. You don't verbalize it. You just... Take it, and you realize that that's par for the course when you're on a losing streak, especially in a match where there's going to be people who have an emotional connection to the uh, to who they're rooting for. Because these are two people who have been very vocal on Twitter, two people who are very uh, controversial, two people who put out a lot of very strong opinions on Twitter, and two people who have people who like them and people who hate them and people in between. I'm kind of in between with both of them, to be honest. So that's going to happen. And you can't be mad. If you're going to be mad, you shouldn't have had this match. You should not be having this match if you're unhappy with what the trolls are saying about you. Yeah, it's frustrating when you're losing almost a million bucks and, and trolls are saying how awful you are, or how they, they'd be doing better. But you you got to watch how you act. And Daniel just, a lot of times he speaks without really thinking. But, fuck, I mean... Uh, the, the, yeah, the only thing I'm annoyed about is having a deposit. That's it. Yeah. Like, otherwise, I'd be like, I would have kept playing. Just let's go. I felt good. You know, I, I, the only reason I folded that hand, but the only reason I quit after the ace king suited is because I don't think I had uh, the full reload, and we got to play 100 big blinds deep. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's it's a problem you don't want to solve, and you'd rather be focused on studying and improving and figuring out what went wrong. Well, I know what fucking went wrong, Patrick. I fucking know what went wrong, and the video tonight is going to be special. I cannot wait for the video around. tonight. I, I want to send you off. You get the money situation sorted. You figure out what to do tomorrow, and then you put together an all-time fucking uh, club. Two fucking clubs came on the flop, right? That's what happened. Two fucking clubs, and then it came. Yeah. On the yeah, we were about to go nuts. I mean, I again, and that look. just turns the tide yeah. completely in this set. I didn't even see it. It was all a blur. I saw aces. I was like, fuck. Oh, well. <laughs> I haven't put a fucking all-in beat on this guy once. Not once. There's a, not one fucking hand. Not one hand in this whole fucking all-in thing yeah. where I've had the worst hand and yeah. made the best team. 
Not one fucking hand after eight, nine thousand hands. I've had jacks against tens, lose. I've had fucking whatever. Queens against eights, stick it up your ass. It's like, holy fuck, dude. Poker can be super annoying, and you're getting me fresh right out the exit. Yep. Room, so you get maximum tilt, and I give zero fucks about how many fucks I said. And I got texts from people saying, your mother, I think it was Kurt Morrison, who just texted me, said, mama wouldn't be happy with your mouth. I'm going to tell him, ha ha, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> An appropriate response. Holy fucking tilt, huh? Jesus, what the fuck's going on here? Yeah, you know. I will certainly not read any fucking comments because all these fucking armchair idiots who fucking stand there. Bah, 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 bah. What, what, I'd like to see which one of those motherfucking coolers they don't lose all their fucking money on. Sure. Mm-hmm. Fucking one of those today. Holy yeah, see, that, that's that's what you don't do. Here. See, that's that's again. Yeah, there's players who are much worse than you, Daniel, who are commenting here, and ones who would be doing worse in this match if they were playing Doug. I agree. But that's part of having a match that's broadcasted to the public of two big figures in poker who hate each other that are playing in a grudge match. You're going to get those guys who play 50 cent $1 that watch this and somehow believe they could do better than you. You're going to get that. And then you just have to understand that and understand you're going to get trolls, especially if you're losing. And you don't have to shout at them on these interviews our youtube chats credit nobody has said you should have folded the ace king so hey at least well not yet you know. don't worry right, don't right, think right, maybe, gonna... yeah. don't you think maybe you know like because people like even madison madison's been looking for you know i don't know man yeah. you should have there you know ace king like suited i mean what is he gonna have there bro yeah you know but, i mean you can't beat nothing you just put in fucking 27 big lines and fold for another hundred because you know I, he might would be the only one in the world who, who would go yeah i don't i wouldn't have I wouldn't have called it because you because you have a read that he had it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Madison and Helmuth, they're your team, they're oh, your squad. Okay. I mean, listen, I have three buy-ins left in there, so we can yeah. theoretically play. But then we we run the issue of you know not if I get stacked on the fucking first hand because I have a fucking flop straight or some shit, and he makes a fucking cock sucking dick fuck flush. Right? Yeah, then I would have mm-hmm. to go into things right away. So and that'll right? go you know, down. I'm, never fuck, I'm gonna play. I, I want to play fucking hundred thousand hands. Because I just want, I really do. Now I want to make the match fucking 100,000 hands because I want to see how much longer that can fucking happen. Where- so there, Doug responded to that saying, okay, sure, let's do it. <laughs> if you're really serious, yeah, let's play 100,000 hands. Of course, Doug wants that because he knows he has the edge. But I wonder if Daniel's serious about this, about extending this to be 100,000. I mean, he'll probably lose a fortune if he does that, unless things really turn around. And I wonder how Amanda's feeling about all this. Now, Keep in mind, it is possible that Daniel's money is not really at stake here. It is possible that he is being backed. It's possible that Bill Perkins is putting up the money. It's possible that Dan Bilzerian is putting up the money. It is possible that GG Poker is putting up the money. It's even possible that all of these entities are putting up some or all of the money combined. Or maybe Daniel has a small piece of himself, or he has a half piece of himself, or a quarter piece of himself. Who knows? You don't know what the real situation is here. You can see Daniel's down almost a million and then say, okay, I mean, it sucks to be him, but if it's not really his million, yeah, he doesn't like to see it, but it's not quite the same thing. So we're not sure about that, uh, where this money's really coming from that's being gambled here, but you you can't say for sure this is Daniel's money is being lost. At the same time, if he really does have a substantial piece of this and he really wants to play 100,000 hands... How is Amanda going to feel about that? Is she going to be okay? Is she going to think that maybe Daniel's going to chunk a large portion of their net worth off on this grudge match? 
Most wives would not be happy about that. Most wives would say, nope, you're not doing that. <laughs> okay, to a point, and then now uh, you got to stop. But who knows? He's just saying that there. He isn't committing to playing 100,000. Doug didn't say this is committing. It just Doug's like, yeah, if you want to, okay, let's do it. I do think that when they get to the 12,500 mark, that they're not going to quit. That Daniel's going to continue. And that even if he's getting backed, I am guessing that he's probably sold the idea to the backers that everything's fine. He's just run really bad. And he can prove it. He can show hands, hand after hand after hand, where they got a lot of money in, where it was pretty inevitable to happen. And say, look, if these didn't happen, I'm doing okay. And the backers probably say, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. But it is possible to be in those spots and also be outplayed. And I kind of feel like that's what was going on there. So I'll, I'll finish this up here, and then we will uh, move on. I'll tell you there's one more session that's been played since then. Like, if I'll ever get even on all NEV or any shit like that, I will play yeah. fucking 100,000 hands. I will kick up the stakes, the whole fucking deal, and go get a whole bunch of millions, throw it in there, fucking play. Yeah. Eight tables all at once. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> Doesn't massive, sound terrible to us. Let's extend fire this thing. <laughs> All right. Fuck, I got to figure what I'm doing now. Yeah, so those were kind of highlights from that. These weren't all at the same time. It's like about seven minutes and change highlights from there. You heard a lot of profanity. Obviously, some people were kind of put off by that or asking, why is he always saying, fuck, cocksuck, this, that? You know, like, he doesn't really have the ability to have these conversations anymore without just every other word has fuck or cocksuck in it. So... I understand the criticism. This isn't the Daniel that we're used to from the past. And I think he should think about these things. Can I jump in? I think that's, listen, it sounds like he had a brutal session. You know, he's getting a little animated. I mean, give me a break. Yes, you'll put a million in the account. I mean, for that, I think it's... I understand the frustration. Well, I'm not not criticizing him for being frustrated. I would be too. And I, I do agree that he's been in some frustrating circumstances with these hands that have gone down, that it's the, the big hands are just falling in Doug's lap. But uh, since he is somebody who has, he really is a public figure of poker. He is a, a big face in poker. He's the face of Gigi poker. I, I, do, I do think you just need to show some restraint and not act in that way, especially when responding to the trolls. You just, you just gotta, he has a real hard time ignoring like random trolls. And he just shouldn't respond to them. Like we had that incident a few months, not we, but you know, he had that incident a few months ago where he went off on that one guy who was saying something about Amanda and was saying he's going to feed his teeth to him anally. <laughs> so, like, you, you just have to, when you're a big name in poker, there's going to be trolls, especially if you're one who is very outspoken. So just ignore the trolls. That's all you have to do. I'm just surprised he has such a hard time with that. I'm not saying any of this is terrible. This is just a, a rant. People were kind of entertained by. Just I, I thought some of it wasn't the wasn't really well thought out to be doing. Uh, so he had one more <laughs> session. Well, I'm sorry, Jeff. Wasn't anal mentioned in this latest rant too? This seems to be a uh, pattern. Yeah, yeah, it might be. It might be onto something. The final session, to my knowledge, unless one happened today, was yesterday. And uh, Doug actually lost. Doug lost one hundred forty-three thousand dollars over eight hundred thirty-four hands. At one point, he was down about two hundred k. 
Overall, Doug ended up still ahead 814,000 in the entire match, which now has played at 10,784 hands. Doug wrote, crazy one today. It would be nice to play a session where I don't have a hand where I lose two buy-ins bluffing with no equity. Wonder if there's any way to prevent that. Anyway, we move on. Great week overall. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to be okay with that when you've been crushing for a while. Then, yeah, you finally lose one. Big deal. And he was kind of self-effacing there, saying that uh, he shouldn't have to... He's got to be more careful about not shooting off two buy-ins with bluffs that have no chance if they get called. Apparently he did that. But obviously he's happy overall with his play because he's doing very well thus far. So that's where it stands at the moment. We've got about, like, looks like 1,700 or so hands before Daniel has to make the decision whether he's going to quit. If they play all the way through the 25,000 hands and they do not quit, what will Daniel lose if he continues at exactly this pace? Which, of course, there's a lot of variance, so you can't assume he will. But let's just say, hypothetically, that he he continues at the pace he's at now. What will he lose over uh, 25,000 hands? And the answer to that is 1.89 million. So getting close to 2 million that he would lose in this challenge, plus uh, their side bet. So that uh, would be a hit to whoever is bankrolling this if it continues on the pace that it is currently going. Now, is it possible that Daniel could come back and win this? Yes. Look at some of the numbers we're seeing per session here. And each session is like you know, 800 hands, 600 hands, that, that 900 hands, that type of thing. We're seeing a lot of swings where one person or the other wins over $100,000, and we've seen a few over $200,000. So given that's the case, and we've seen Daniel's been able to win some of them. He won this last one for 143 who's up over 200 at one point. We had uh, another one where Daniel won over 200000 So you string a few of those together, and all of a sudden they're back even. And, yeah, it's, it's a long session that they're playing here of uh, – 25,000 hands total, but it's not that long, as you see here, in these little mini sessions of 800, 900, 600 hands, whatever they play, there's a lot of times it swings 100,000, 200,000 either way. So if one person starts getting really lucky, then the other one will really get crushed. So yes, it is still possible Daniel can come back and win. If Daniel was down 2 million at this point, I'd say he's pretty much done. But he has a chance here. Obviously not a great one, but he has a chance if he can string some good sessions together and kind of spin his wheels the rest of the time. and He can squeak out a win. My bet has nothing to do with the amount won on either side. It's just, does Daniel win overall or lose overall? If he wins overall, I win my bet. If he loses overall, I lose my bet. I'm actually holding all the money at the moment, so it'll be me having to send out the money that's being held, all of it, including my 500 if I lose. Otherwise, I just keep everything being held. We will see what happens there. Druff, what what did you get uh, the bet at? At plus 425. And what's the current line? I don't know. I don't want to look. <laughs> it's worse than 425, though, I'm sure. Yeah. Now I was just curious what, what you could get at that. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's funny. Once I took that action, like people, others wanted to give me the action. I'm like, nah, you know what? I, I've kind of changed my mind. Credit to Seriously Serious. He actually uh, warned me after I, you know, he actually said he was looking to bet on Doug, 
But he, he could have just taken the action and that would be that. But instead he said, I want to warn you, I know some things just from uh, talking to Doug about it because he works for Doug and he's friends with Doug and the, uh, of what really makes me believe that Doug has a better chance than 4.25 to win. And uh, so before I take your money by booking this bet with you, I want to let you know what I know and then see if you still want to do it. Once he told me, I'm like, okay, no, I'm not going to do it. So, And he could have easily done it because it's, it's not like there's any – like the match isn't fixed or anything. He was just saying what Doug – had observed and uh, something Doug had told him of why it really seemed like Doug had a better chance than uh, people were giving credit for. And people thought Doug was the favorite, but like how much of a favorite was he? And uh, Sirius the Sirius from knowing Doug felt that uh, Doug had a lot of good points with that. And this, a lot of these things were things that Doug had not put out publicly. So uh, yeah, he, he could have bet, bet me knowing these things. And I knew that he knew Doug, so it's not even like that would have been a surprise to me, but. I'll give him credit for uh, warning me about this before taking my money there. So once he said that, it's like, I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to take this bet from anyone anymore. I'm just done. I'll just I'll stick with this 500 that I already bet. Obviously, that's locked up. Nothing I can do about that, and just hope it wins somehow. And that's still what I'm doing, but yeah, it's not huge money here, so whatever. Just at least it's something to keep the match more interesting for me. All right, uh, we're going to move on here to the next topic. It's also about uh, poker being played for high stakes, but this is actually about high stakes poker. High stakes poker is returning. And if you want to feel good with uh, the way life is today, which is hard for a lot of people in the year of 2020 and the coronavirus and all the other issues that have gone on, you can wish for a simpler time. And in a way, the simpler time is back because high-stakes poker is back. And that was a very popular series back in the 2000s and through 2010 when it was last on. If you think of high-stakes poker, which was a TV show at the time, you kind of think of pre-boom poker. Or not pre-boom, pre-Black Friday poker, that's what I mean. Black Friday, April 15th, 2011, was the day that changed online poker forever and therefore changed poker forever, or at least for many years. And we still are feeling the major effects of it today. High-stakes poker was on at a time when the money was flowing, when the sites were making the money hand over fist, when sponsorships were easy to come by, when people were playing at very high stakes, and when poker was constantly on TV You'd turn the channels and you'd find it on like four different channels at once, different poker shows. Some being high quality poker shows, some being very low quality. High stakes poker was known to be the highest quality of all the TV shows and they also tended to get the best lineups. But after 2010, when poker on TV started to lose its luster, people stopped uh, finding it as interesting as they had in years prior. High stakes poker went off the air, and it was assumed it would never be back. But Poker Go has been attempting to revive some uh, beloved institutions of the past, and they have revived high stakes poker. Not only have they revived it, high stakes poker is going to have uh, two familiar faces in poker that are going to be announcing it. 
you're going to have A.J. Benza and Gabe Kaplan. Gabe Kaplan, of course, being the star of Welcome Back, Cotter. Now, he wasn't just a celebrity who decided he liked poker. He actually goes back to poker. I'm talking about Gabe Kaplan. He goes back decades to the poker world, way before poker had really entered uh, popular conscience. And uh, a lot of people don't know that about it. A lot of people just thought he kind of showed up in poker when all the other celebrities did. That's not true. Gabe Kaplan actually has a lot more in tournament caches than I do, as far as the total caches. He has about double what I do. He has almost $2 million. I only have about almost $1 million. And uh, now he's been playing much, much longer. His first cash was when I was seven, or not only seven, almost seven years old, in February 1979. I was actually still six when he cashed in his... Uh, very the very first time this was in the Amarillo Amarillo Slims Super Bowl of Poker in Las Vegas he was uh, in eleventh place this is a ten k buy in the first tournament he won was a year later in that same event and he got one hundred ninety thousand dollars for it. it must have not been a big field with a ten thousand dollar buy in first place being one hundred ninety thousand and uh, he actually uh, cashed in that again and again and again he cashed four years in a row. And uh, he's had a number of World Series caches since then. Uh, he, I'm not sure if he has any bracelets. I don't think he does. I know he finished second in uh, 2005 at uh, Limit Hold'em, of all things. And he also finished uh, ninth in horse, in the 50K uh, horse in 2007. So he's, he's very big... <laughs> And he used to play a lot in the cash games, yes. too, Druff, like in the Frank Mariani, like Jerry Buss games like at Hollywood Park in the mid-90s. Right, right. He, he was very big in the cash scene. I should say that's, that's actually more of what he was doing than the tournaments. But, but he's obviously been in the tournaments, too. So he's, he, and so he was right there when the poker boom started. And uh, so he's actually going to be one of the announcers of high-stakes poker. And they're actually going to have a lot of big names for high stakes poker, I'm going to play the trailer for you, which again I'll have to narrate because some of it is uh, not going to mean much audio wise. But uh, I'll play the trailer here. A lot of big names here from the past and present. This season on high stakes poker, I can already picture Gabe yeah. Kaplan with that dope voice saying. And on tonight's episode, we'll have our first million dollar pot of the new. That's uh, John Robert. <laughs> well, it's been a minute, hasn't it? Nearly 10 years have passed. The players are a little older. There are a lot of new faces, but the good news is we look and sound the same. Speak for yourself, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd say that. Yeah, yeah of course, they were uh, They were in this role 10 years ago, so they're really bringing it all back. You're like a total dog. Show me a four. Oh, wow. Holy. All on. There's Phil Helmuth and Doug Polk being shown here. Insane. Just such a monster raise. That's Polk. Try 14. I got nothing. You're nothing beats my nothing. Rick's out here treating me like Paris Hilton. I can't do a thing about it. Rick Solomon in the game there. And uh, Rick Solomon is one who's really known to put in a ton of action to try to make people feel uncomfortable. Whatever the game is playing at, he makes it feel like it plays a lot bigger because he's just super aggressive. <laughs> That's gonna be everywhere. That hand it's gonna haunt you. Come on. Do you recognize that voice? Tom Dwan. Tom Dwan coming out of his hole in Macau to play in this. You guys are impossible to bluff. It's amazing. Nice job. 
Get two pair and a flush drawing, you fit forever there? I didn't know what the hell to do. I like to play fast. Hmm, whose voice is that? Yes, Phil Ivey. I like to play fast. I, I just go up to my ball in front of people, everything. I like to just... Uh, hit it, go. You, you are. Pick it up. Phil once on TV said, if it was about skill, I'd win every day. And I think that was one of the best comments I've ever heard. If it was about skill, Phil, I'd be... That's <laughs> uh, needling Phil Helmuth. I talked myself into folding and I looked up at that big stupid wine glass and I was like, wait a second, what am I doing? Tonight the wine is from France. I believe you're trying to give it to me. I know, I am. Yeah, I mean, I don't love my hair right now. That's some mother <laughs> That's 7,000. I had Ace of Nine on a King King 10 board. What are you meant mother. to do? I don't understand. I learned from the best. Tom Dewan. <laughs> I'm going to gamble against my man, James. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to pause this here. So among the people that are going to be featured on there, uh, at least the ones shown in the clip, uh, Doug Polk, Phil Ivey, Bryn Kenny, Rick Solomon, Tom Dewan, Phil Helmuth, John Robert Belland, Nick Petrangelo, James Board, Brandon Adams, and uh, even uh, a former Major League, bit, Major League Baseball pitcher, Michael Schwimmer. So uh, a lot of big names in this thing. And... Uh, Seriously Serious commented there because he, uh, knowing Doug Polk, and he got uh, to hear about some of this. He said, I'm not allowed to say much, but there, I was there for most of the taping, and I confirm there are some insane hands this season. I don't think the set recaptures the same cozy feel of classic high-stakes poker. It's clearly a soundstage, but the stakes are big, and the lineups are great. Rick Solomon, in particular, really juices up a game. But yeah, he does. <laughs> So that's uh, that's coming back on Poker Go, and we will see if uh, this is regarded as highly as the previous one. However, you're going to have to pay for it, because Poker Go is a pay service. This is not something you're going to be able to watch for free on late night TV anymore. But I, I will give them credit for trying to recreate this. I mean, they bring back A.J. Benza, they bring back Gabe Kaplan, they bring a lot of these players who were there 10 years ago. Tom Dwan, Phil Ivey, John Robert. Uh, I mean, they're, they're really trying to restore what it was. It's pretty good. We will see if people enjoy this. This is one of those things that you kind of think back to those days and say, oh, wasn't poker nice then when you could play on Poker Stars as an American and the games were good and it was easy to get money on and off and we could watch high-stakes poker at night and, well... We can have one of those things. All right, let's talk about what you can't have, and that is a room at the Palazzo. The Palazzo, which, of course, is kind of like a second hotel and casino of the Venetian. It's kind of like a second Venetian, and they're very closely associated. But the Palazzo in Las Vegas has announced that they are completely closing the hotel Seven days a week, you just absolutely cannot stay there anymore. This, of course, is because of the pandemic. Vegas is struggling big time trying to fill rooms. There have been other properties that have been closing midweek, but uh, the Palazzo now closing the hotel for the entire week is not a good sign. The Venetian remains open. And the casino at the Palazzo 
also remains open. They will be closing a few restaurants, but the restaurants for the most part are also going to stay open at Palazzo, and the casino will have some table games closed, but again, it will mostly be operating, but the hotel completely being closed. This actually cuts down a lot of their expense. All the hotel expense can now uh, be dropped. They don't have to worry about staffing maids, staffing managers, uh, staffing maintenance men, uh, paying for utilities. They can just completely shut down that tower and uh, keep it running for a, a pretty small amount of money. It's not going to be nothing because they still have to keep it up, but it's it's a lot cheaper not to have people there. And if the occupancy is low, it actually becomes uh, a money loser to remain open. It's actually cheaper to shut it down even if the casino is open. Other properties in Vegas have been doing partial closures already. Park MGM, which is the former Monte Carlo, Mirage and Mandalay Bay, all MGM properties, closed their hotels from Monday afternoon through Thursday afternoon. So you can stay Sunday night, but then you, once you check out on on Monday afternoon, you have to leave. Or you, you have to check out. You can't stay past uh, uh, checkout time on Sunday or on Monday is after staying Sunday night. And then you cannot go back until Thursday afternoon. You can check back in to stay over the weekend. The casinos for these hotels all remain open. Encore, which is the second version of the win, kind of like what the Palazzo is the Venetian, Encore is entirely closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. There's no casino, no restaurants, nothing. The entire Encore shut down two days out of the seven. It is likely that uh, Vegas will continue to struggle and will also struggle during New Year's comparatively. Of course, they will get more people for New Year's than a normal weekend, it also does help that New Year's is on a Friday this year, which is where it happens to fall. So this will bring some more people out there. However, a lot of the things people do on New Year's, they will not be able to do in Vegas. I do not believe there's going to be any kind of big uh, street celebration where everybody goes on the street and watches fireworks. I have to imagine that's going to be canceled. I don't know if there's going to be fireworks at all. The big crowded New Year's parties, you have to think, are a thing of the past. They may have them, but people have to socially distance, you know, all that. Like, it's not going to be what it was before, where everybody crowds into a New Year's party in various parts of Vegas. So you're not going to have the crowded New Year's party. You're not going to have the outdoor street parties and the fireworks. You're just not going to have all that. It's just not the same to go there for New Year's. And I'm also concerned there's going to be a lot of violence, a lot of crime, as we have seen with a different element coming to Vegas than typically did before. So I have a feeling New Year's is going to be pretty harsh for Vegas compared to what it is most years where they really make a lot of money during the New Year's time. The room rates are very high. The restaurants actually will often mark up their menus and force you onto a price-fixed menu and make a lot of extra money there. The casinos raise their limits. People get drunk and chunk off a lot of money. It's going to happen to some degree, but to a much lesser degree. And Vegas then is going to struggle big time, I'm predicting, in January when this is all over, when there's no more New Year's, when there's uh, we're past the holiday breaks, and when COVID is getting worse and worse. And Vegas must pray that the vaccine for the coronavirus is going to make a difference, that that's going to be a game changer. Because if it's not, I don't know what they're going to do. Because right now, they've got two problems there. they got two big problems. Number one... People are afraid to come because people perceive the casino is not safe. Actually, there's three problems. There's number one, people perceive the casino isn't safe, and I agree with them. Number two, and when I say not safe, I mean not safe from COVID. Number two, 
they just think it doesn't look fun. Too many things are closed. You have to wear a mask. Uh, it's just not the same. It's not like you're returning to 2019 Vegas. You're returning to this weird alternate version of Vegas that isn't very fun. A lot of things are closed. Number three, there is the violence, which people are becoming more and more aware of, that the clientele in Vegas is very disruptive and there's a criminal element that comes in that did not used to come in before, at least not in large numbers, and now they are dominating the strip and people just don't like being there. So it's just not a nice place to go to right now. In general, Vegas is not what Vegas was before and they are suffering for it and they are just really, really hoping that this goes away quickly and we can return everything back to normal. I would not even want to go to Vegas right now, even if I already had the coronavirus and wasn't fearing getting it again, of course. But I still wouldn't go because it, it just doesn't seem appealing to me. I just don't really have a desire to be there the way I've heard it described. And just because if I had the coronavirus already, I couldn't just say, well, I'm not going to wear a mask. I already had it because you, you can't really prove that to people on site. So I would still be expected to wear a mask. It just seems uncomfortable. Like I just, I'm not one of these anti-maskers who's saying that I shouldn't have to wear a mask. I'm saying that I would not enjoy going and wearing a mask because it's not comfortable. I wouldn't find that an activity that I would want to do. I just would stay home. I just wouldn't go. So to me and many others, it just doesn't seem appealing to go there. Trader Risky, when was the last time you were in Las Vegas? For more than 20, yeah, I had to drive there to do something, but God, it must have been like the October 2019, maybe. Oh wow, so that's that's. I've been there since you have. I I was last there for Super Bowl weekend, early February. That was it. And wow, yeah. So it's it's uh, and I don't know what I'm going next. I mean, it could be uh, all the way into 2022. Who knows? Now maybe the vaccine will really be a game changer. I, mean, I think it'll be a game changer somewhat, but it would have to be a major game changer to where I feel the virus is pretty much gone or that the, they improve the vaccine enough to where the chance of me getting COVID is very small once I'm vaccinated. So uh, that's that's what will have to happen before I go to Vegas or any kind of uh, casino or card room. And I still wouldn't go if it's the way it is right now. If I have to wear a mask the whole time I'm playing, I'm not interested. If I uh, have to be among a lot of uh, people who are committing violent crime or the, 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 a criminal element surrounding me constantly. I don't want to go there. It's just Why do it? It just doesn't seem appealing to me. I want to go back to the old Vegas, not the present Vegas. And when I say old, I mean like last year old. Just day and night compared to what it used to be. So you, you see these hotels starting to give up and shut down. And the casinos, yeah, they remain open, but it, it's really hurting over there. It's really hurting and I don't know how much longer they can take this. And the problem is it's a one-industry town. So what are they going to do? they just got to try to ride it out and hope that uh, everything gets back to normal sooner rather than later. But the Palazzo closing like this is the first hotel to close seven days a week of the ones that have reopened. As I said, we've had the ones that are closing midweek. But for one to close seven days a week, a major property like Palazzo, that definitely is not a good look. For Las Vegas right now, it really makes it appear that they are struggling very badly. And I don't see this changing, especially with all the news recently about how bad the coronavirus has gotten everywhere. So uh, what they said at uh, 
the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, which is what owns Venetian and Palazzo, they said uh, the Venetian Resort is making a temporary adjustment to its hotel operations to better effect, uh, better reflect occupancy patterns. Beginning December 7th, suite reservations will be offered exclusively in the Venetian Tower through December 23rd, 2020. When they say suite reservations, they mean everything. They call everything a suite there. The guest experience at the Venetian Resort is not expected to change. The Palazzo will remain open, including most restaurants, bars, the casino, parking garage, and Grand Canal shops. However, there have been minor adjustments to operating hours, and the Palazzo Casino floor will will have limited table games available. So uh, that's the way it's going to be. And uh, they are going to pay the employees of the Palazzo that are being temporarily laid off while the casino is being closed. Or no, the casino is being pared down and the, the hotel is being closed. So that's good for those people. But that can't last forever either. Uh, they reopened the casino industry on June 4th, if you remember. It was closed down for a few months during the beginning of the pandemic and then finally... Governor Steve Sislak, under tremendous pressure, reopened Vegas, and then it's just really been tough going ever since. And something they just didn't expect was the change in crowd there, which occurred because they had to lower room rates to attract people, and then a lot of people started coming in who hadn't really gone to Vegas that very much before. And then a lot of them would also kind of pile into the same room. So you get a room super cheap, pile six, eight people into it, and uh, all of a sudden everybody can go there for very little money and uh, create trouble. So that's not good. Okay, moving along here, I want to play something to you guys, and I want to tell you, I'm not one who's been piling on this person. I'm talking about a former poker player and now uh, kind of the right-wing social media figure, uh, Anna Kate. We've had her on the show twice. She was nice when she appeared on here, seemed very reasonable. She uh, appeared on Survivor as one of the contestants in one of the seasons. She first came on the show as an unknown. When she came on here, she was here because she was a victim of a scam, of a fake poker tournament. Fortunately, she didn't lose any money. She was They were trying to hire her as like a, a spokesmodel for it or something, and she saw through it that something was wrong with it, as did others. And while a lot of people canceled other commitments to make themselves available for this fake poker tour. Uh, no one at least directly lost any money yet, and this was called out, and this site was very instrumental in that. We, we were the main ones calling them out and uh, exposing them for what they were, and she came onto this show to talk about her experience with it and to pr- pretty much completely call out the guy who was behind this, and at which point he shut everything down and ran off. Uh, I met Anna in person at the World Series, I think either that same year or the next year. And she was very nice. I I happened to see her in the Diamond Room where you register for World Series events if you're a Diamond or above. I don't know if she was a Diamond or just talked her way in there, but whatever it was, she was in there. I met her in person. She told me she enjoyed her appearance on the show, and she thanked me for giving her a chance to expose all this, and I told her she did a good job. And she was very nice, very down-to-earth. She wasn't one of these uh, pretty girls in poker who was arrogant or expected her to kiss her ass. She just was... uh, acted very normal, and from what I've heard of, from those who've played with her, that at the table she does not act arrogant or or that you have to treat her any different than the dudes at the table. She just wants to be there and play. So in these ways, the, the, these were all very positive things about her, and then she appeared on the show a second time when she got to be better known, 
and uh, was a contestant on Survivor. Now, I will say she never seemed to enjoy any kind of success in poker, at least not in tournament poker. Maybe in cash she won. I don't know. There's no way to know that. But in tournament poker, she never really went anywhere. And eventually she exited the poker community, as many have who have uh, briefly touched upon the scene and then moved on to other things. And that's fine. Not everybody is a long hauler like myself. But uh, at some point there was a change there was a change in her focus on social media, which alarmed some people. And what happened was she very much got into the extreme devotion to Christianity thing. She was, became very, very Christian. And I'm not talking about just a person who uh, is a religious Christian, but otherwise comes off uh, like everybody else. This became like a major part of her identity where most of her tweets had something to do with uh, with being Christian or with Jesus or whatever, or they had to do with right-wing politics. And so she became uh, very, very uh, far-right. She was very, very religious Christian and a very, very big supporter of Donald Trump. And, of course, this made a lot of people in poker hate her because, for the most part, people in poker are on the political left. There are ones who are not on the political left, like me, but uh, most people are on the political left, or at least the center left in poker, so uh, people didn't take to this very well, especially because she wasn't a really respected figure in poker as it is. It's not like she had uh, tremendous results or, uh, or or was really a big part of the community. She was just kind of like a, a pretty girl who got some notice in poker and from Survivor, and uh, she wasn't really close to a lot of these name pros, so they very quickly turned on her and started insulting her. Now, I will say that I, there is a certain amount of hypocrisy that exists with some of these uh, virtue-signaling left-wing poker pros in that uh, they think it's very bad and horrible to ever uh, speak in a degrading or nasty fashion to or about a female that uh, they, you know, they believe in feminism and you can't treat women this way and you have to always talk to women with respect and not talk down to them, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're very quick to say that, except when the woman is right-wing. And then all that goes out the window. Then you can say the most nasty and degrading things and all those other beliefs you have about how you speak to women, those are out the window if the, if the woman is right-wing. And uh, I find that to be very hypocritical. You, you've either got to uh, behave in that fashion or not. If you, if you want to be a Dambelzerian and, and call people a hoe, then you can be the Dambelzerian type and call people a hoe, and you can make that your identity, and people can judge you for it. Or you can say, I'm not going to talk to women that way, and I'm going to treat them respectfully, and I'm going to uh, not talk to women in a degrading fashion, no matter what, unless they talk to me in a... It's, it's one thing if the woman talks to you in a degrading fashion, you respond. But but if, it's just, if you just don't like what they have to say, if you're going to talk to them in a degrading fashion, then you do not have the right to call yourself a feminist or chide others for how they talk to women or talk about guys mansplaining. You can't do that when you're talking in a very nasty and degrading way to a woman who is on the right. You can't just say, well, but she believes this. She votes for Trump, so I can treat her. No, you can't. She, now, she might tweet controversial things, 
that you want to respond to. And, of course, you have every right to respond to the content of what she writes. You can say what she writes is stupid. You can explain why it's stupid. You can explain why you disagree with it. You can explain why she's acting foolish. Because that's responding to the content of her messages, and that's fine. Of course, she, she doesn't uh, have a license to just write whatever she wants without uh, people responding in, in a negative way. That's part of social media. If you want to post your opinion out there, you have to be ready for people to come back with uh, disagreement and often with... Uh, some vitriol towards the opinions that you're expressing. But when the vitriol turns to you personally and you start receiving personal insults, when you have not insulted that person first, when the personal insults are just based upon your own politics, um, once that starts to happen, you, you have to look at what you're saying and why you're saying it and who you're saying it to. And if it goes along with your belief system, you claim to have. And if you want to claim that women should always be talk to with respect and not talk to in a degrading fashion, and then you violate that just because the woman is right-wing, then you're a big hypocrite. And I, I see a lot of that in poker, and that I don't agree with that, and that shouldn't be happening. And I, while I feel that she is inviting a lot of the criticism and that she's intentionally coming out there and saying a lot of really provocative and controversial things from uh, either the point of view of uh, extreme Christianity or uh, extreme right-wing politics... And I feel if you do that, then you definitely open yourself up to criticism. And if you can't take that, then then you shouldn't be doing it. But I, I do see a lot of unnecessary, like really nasty hostility, which I think people uh, somehow think they have a right to do. But putting that aside, I will admit that she's acted kind of bizarre. I, I will admit that I sometimes, <laughs> I, I just scratch my head and go, why is she writing this? Or does she really believe this? Like there's some really extreme things. And you guys know I'm, I'm a conservative and I, I will look at some of the things she writes and go, wow, I just, I can't relate to this. Even I can't relate to this. And I'm not just talking about the Christian stuff. You guys know I'm not Christian, but I can't relate to even some of the right wing stuff or pro Trump stuff. She writes that just, uh, way too far, like believing that Trump really won the election. You're going to see he's going to be president on January 20th. No, he's not. He's not going to be president January 20th. He did not really win the election. He did not get cheated. He just lost. She writes stuff like that. and She's written like much more bizarre stuff than that. So here's an example. On November 21st. This country has gone too far toward wickedness and abominations, which the Lord warned us about, and we are finally making a U-turn back to righteousness and godliness. Praise God that souls are awakening. We are not down with evil. This is God's country. Hallelujah. Listen to this. This was, uh, she appeared on some kind of uh, right-wing show, one of a right-wing uh, either internet streaming show or TV show. Someone who didn't even know her, named Seth Coulter, or Seth Cotler, earlier today, was just kind of saying, hey, look at this, look how crazy this woman is. <laughs> it turns out it's Anna Kate. He wrote, the preacher at this MAGA rally today just led the crowd in a Jesus chant standing in front of this flag bearing a middle finger. Let's listen to this. This is crazy stuff here. And I have a message. The second message is for the devil and his minions and all the wizards and witches that are watching right now all over the world. This is for you. We're going to do a chant right now. We're going to do a chant because it's awesome to insult Trump. Trump is our anointed one. To bring justice back into this country. But we're going to lift the name above every name. 
In Jesus' name, on the count of three, we're going to chant Jesus. Because the entire world, Mr. President, again, that's just from China, Iran, the underground church, and every tyrannical country is praying for you, President Trump. We are with you, President Trump. But we're going to give the glory to Jesus because he promised he's open 2019. Two times he's going to open up a red sea. The red wave is open. We are walking through and our enemies, the Pharaoh, has a prideful heart. Pride comes before a fall. So we're going to watch our enemies be judged. Wow. That's some pretty intense stuff, isn't it? <laughs> she, I mean, does she, can she get medication or something? I don't know. It's, 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 that's not the Anna Kate I remember that I, this is not what I remember from when I met her at the World Series, that's for sure. Just made a laugh, a U-turn. I mean, she, she was seen normal, right? Yeah, totally normal. When she was on here, she was, uh, very, uh, soft-spoken and normal. When I met her in person, same thing. And, and people who played with her, played poker with her said the same thing, that everything was fine. Here, here's, here's more of it. Listen to this. We repent for all the blood sacrifice that has been poured out in this nation, Lord. We repent for abortion, Lord God. This sacrifice is to bail. We exalt you, Lord. On the count of three, we're going to count Jesus. One, two, three. Jesus. 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 Glory to God. We're going to see a miracle. Amen. Okay, that that is strange. That is strange. That was actually on C-SPAN, believe it or not. <laughs> I think this is where this was being uh, broadcast. So is she a preacher? Or was she just speaking out at somebody else's event? I don't know. I This just happened to be found... When when people were on Twitter, and they noticed who it was. The, the people were posting this, having nothing to do with poker, going, "Hey, look at this!" And then uh, someone found it. They're like, "Hey, I think this is Anna Kate," and that's who it was. So I don't know how she got involved with this group, but uh, she actually got, has a decent following because of Survivor. So there were people who followed her on Twitter, and then so she already had a big following from there. Not a huge following, but a big enough following. Maybe 8,000 people or whatever. And then she started all, all this, and then she started to get a different group following her that probably spawned off the first group. And there she is. And if you take a look at her Twitter, like, yeah, you have all the poker players that are attacking her every time she writes something. But then, like, a lot of people are very supportive of what she writes and saying, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I totally agree. Like this, that's, that's mainly who follows her these days, or at least mostly who comments there aside from the poker players bashing her. So I, I don't know what's gone on here. Something's definitely uh, changed. And I, I even corrected something that she posted about the coronavirus that wasn't correct recently. And I, I think she was writing about how she's not going to take, take the vaccine and kind of like, like the whole we're not taking the vaccine, we don't need the vaccine sort of message. And I said, well, that's not really correct. And in fact, uh, people who are, like, you're you're fairly young, Anna, so if you don't want to take it, it's understandable. But uh, for people who are older, uh, it's, it's a mistake for them to just absolutely say they're not taking the vaccine, especially people who are very old, that that's really risking their lives, that the coronavirus is very dangerous to people of that age and even somewhat dangerous to people who are middle-aged. So if you're young and you say, hey, I think the vaccine is more of a risk than I'm going to gain from it. That's totally a reasonable position, but not uh, not to be saying a blanket statement that nobody should be taking the vaccine. That's not a smart thing to be saying unless you want us to remain in the position we've been in in 2020.
I, I've seen her tweets, but I hadn't actually seen her in action in person with all this stuff. But there she was, and that that wasn't going to be a planned topic today, but this just came out, and I'm like, wow. And I, I really want everybody to understand, I'm not piling on here. I'm one of the few in poker who doesn't bash her. Like, I, you'll see, look at the tweets I've written to her. They're all written respectfully, and I usually just don't even respond. I usually don't even pile on, because I, I, I see so much of it from the people on the left in poker that just all they want to do is bash her in a the really nasty way. But so I, I don't want to join with all that. But I, I'm not going to pretend this is all normal. I'm not going to pretend that she's acting rationally recently because she's not. I'm not sure what's going on here. I now may, maybe this is calculated. Maybe that uh, maybe she's she wants to become a the major figure in the Christian right and figures that she could use her, uh, her her looks to do it. Maybe she'll be successful. Maybe she can parlay the what notoriety she had from Survivor. Maybe maybe she's doing this on purpose and doesn't really believe all this, but I kind of feel like she does. I kind of feel like this is actually her now. I don't know what the hell happened here, but you get you get a lot of interesting characters in poker, that's for sure. But I do want to say, even if you find all this off-putting and weird, and if you don't like it, uh, you do have to look at how you're tweeting to her and how you're tweeting about her, and if you don't think women should be treated in that way in general, then you shouldn't do it. And some of the people, some I should have saved some of the stuff. Some of the stuff that uh, some of these uh, so-called uh, male feminists on the left have been writing to her from poker, they should be ashamed of themselves. But again, that's not to say you can't criticize her. If you want to criticize this type of stuff, uh, that is very reasonable because there's a lot of weird things she's saying. I will acknowledge that for sure. Okay. I want to play some things from the Christopher Mitchell video that he made. I mean, he makes a lot of videos, but he made a video a few days ago that I thought is worth playing out here because <laughs> it's just so stupid. It's not major news or anything. It's just so stupid. So most of his videos are essentially the same thing, and that's not what we're going to play you. I'm going to play you something that's a little bit different. Most of his videos are basically saying... I'm a great Baccarat player. I win 99% of the time. I, uh, I'm i selling you my system for $500. Uh, buy it from me. You don't want to be a, a broke, working stiff like you are right now. If you want to become rich and not have a 9-to-5 job like me, then buy my coaching and I'll change your life. And that's basically what every video is, and it's all bullshit. His system that he's selling is negative expectation. There's there's nothing he's come up with that has any validity in terms of uh, a system to win. He's just taking negative EV casino games, usually Baccarat, and martingaling. That's basically all he's doing. It's, it's some form of that. And it's with stupid things. Only oh, if you're winning, you'll leave in the first 10 to 15 minutes. Just dumb stuff that doesn't matter that he's too stupid to figure out is not uh, a winning system. And then he lies about his success, claims to be a millionaire claims that uh, this is what's supporting him, claims that he's a, a winning high-limit gambler. All this is BS. But uh, he put out a video that, uh, as I said, like a, like a few days ago, he put out a video that I found a lot more interesting. And actually, at the beginning of it, had some truth to it, which is shocking because he rarely tells the truth about anything. So this video kind of, if you read between the lines, you... Oh, sorry, I thought I'd jump the gun playing a little bit. But if you... 
watch the first uh, 15 or so minutes of it before he goes out into the weeds and tells crazy stories, uh, you actually start to understand where he's coming from, not identify with it or, or give it any credit. But I start to understand him, why he is uh, doing what he's doing. So basically, Christopher Mitchell, from what I can tell, this is just from watching this video that he made on, uh, what day was this? December 9th, where the video is about uh, his 2020, review of his 2020 gambling. And at the beginning, surprisingly, he admits to some things like losing $74,000 in February, which is funny because he he said he won 74000 in February back in May. He was bragging about that. You should buy his coaching because he won 74000 in February. Uh, now, all of a sudden, he makes a video talking about how February was his worst month, that he lost 74000 <laughs> You'd think that would be a thing you don't confuse yourself with. You'd think if you had your worst month ever and lost 74000 you wouldn't be making a video bragging about how you won 74000 That's a kind of a tough thing to get confused with. But uh, putting that aside, he said near the beginning of this video that uh, he was winning a lot in at the end of 2019 and in January 2020, and that he was carrying around his, quote, bankroll of $50,000 and that he admitted that he was carrying around the $50,000 from casino to casino because he had been poor all of his life and that it felt really good to carry this around. And this is the first admission he'd ever made that uh, that he was just very like temporarily flush with cash. Before, you're supposed to think he's this great millionaire. He never really addresses, like later in the video, he then reverts to the, the old BS. But he doesn't really address how he can explain why... That, like, how was he such a millionaire, great gambler, If and why is 50K so exciting to him? He doesn't bother to explain that. But I believe it. I actually believe that in January he was winning. He went on a lucky streak, like a lot of negative expectation gamblers do at one point, and that he ran up $50,000. And that he was so happy he had that 50000 and so badly wanted to feel like a rich person. He's always been obsessed with being a rich person, with being one of the rich people being one of the successful people without having to work. He was very, very big on that, always. So his dream was finally coming true. He finally had money. He, he didn't have massive money, but he had enough to carry on $50,000 cash. So he said that he actually carried around the casino just because it felt good, because it made him feel like a rich person, which I'm like, okay, that's like the first true thing he's ever said. And uh, I actually believe him. Now, if you remember when we had Kevin Davis on the show, there was a little bit of a debate between me and Kevin about this money he was flashing on his videos earlier this year that Kevin said it was all Chinese prop money. You can buy this prop money from China, which isn't going to really fool anybody. If you try to use it in person, you'll get in trouble and go to jail. But you could flash it on a YouTube video and no one could tell the difference because you can't buy money like that. You can't buy fake money like that in the U.S. You can't sell fake cash legally in the U.S., Uh, for obvious reasons, but uh, of course from China you can get anything. So the accusation from Kevin was that Christopher was buying a lot of Chinese prop money to flash in his videos. I was saying, no, I think maybe it's real. Then I came around to believing Kevin that it was fake because indeed when Kevin would challenge him and say that it was Chinese prop money, Christopher would get offended, say he's going to prove it, but every time he would supposedly prove it, he either wouldn't do it or he'd prove like one or th- one or two of the bills is real and then stop, 
or like every attempt to prove it wasn't really proving anything. And then when called out about that, he delete the video. So I'm like, okay, if he really had this 50k cash, he just he would totally prove it and shut Kevin up because Kevin was really getting to him. So I said, okay, Kevin, I think you're right. I think I think as much as I kind of believed at first it was real, now I think you're right. It was fake. Well, now I'm back to thinking we were both right. I think that Kevin was correct that. At the time we were talking about it, that the money was fake, but I think back in January, the money was real. I think when he first started doing those videos, trying to sell his BS Baccarat system, I think the money was real because he was very proud of it and he was flashing it like, look at me. Now, I don't even think he was selling it believing he was scamming anybody. He was lying about his results. He was claiming he was a millionaire. He was claiming that he made way more money than he actually did. And, of course, he wasn't acknowledging that he just got lucky because he didn't even realize it. He really thought he came up with a winning system. He actually thought that the Martingale system, which is just simply doubling your bet every time you lose, was the secret to beating Las Vegas. (laughs) And we've been over this before. We've been over this other times we've talked about him. So we're not going to get into that again. But the new thing to me is that he really believed in January – that he had the system that was going to make him a millionaire. And then in February, I really do believe he lost 74K. I think that's probably an accurate number. And I think there went that 50K cash, plus whatever else he had, maybe that he scammed from other people for coaching, whatever it was, I think all that cash was gone, or almost all of it was gone, and he was either broke or close to it. Well, at that point, he already had this uh, whole scam going that he's teaching people how to play winning Baccarat, which I think he believed he was really teaching them winning Baccarat because he was just an idiot who didn't understand his system didn't work. And he still didn't understand his system didn't work. And at the time, what was on his mind was, I have a winning system. I just got really unlucky in February. If only I could build a bankroll again, I'm sure I could run it back up just like I did in January. And I will become a millionaire because my system works. I just got really, really unlucky in February. And he thinks he's teaching people a legitimate winning system. He really thinks that. And the reason I think that is because when they show up to get his coaching, he plays with them at high stakes. And if he knew his system was crap, if he knew it didn't work, then he wouldn't play with them. He'd find excuses not to play with them. Or he'd sell them the coaching without actually having to meet them and play. There would be many ways he could do it where he wouldn't actually have to play his non-winning system. He believes it's a winning system. I think he really believes it. And he closes his ears to those who are trying to explain to him how it is not a winning system. And I believe that he, where the scam comes in is that he's lying about his results. He's not saying, hey, I've gotten my ass beat, but I did have a lucky run back in January and December where I ran up 50K, so I'm hoping to do that again at the moment I'm broke, so please buy my coaching. That would be the honest approach. Instead, he's claiming to be a millionaire. He's claiming that the uh, Baccarat play supports him. He claims he wins 99% of the time he goes to the casino. Just outrageous stuff like that when it's not true. So that is where the scam is taking place because he's selling people the coaching based upon false results, which is actually illegal. It is actually illegal. He could actually go to prison for doing so, especially because he's accepting money that is being sent to him across state lines. He's actually committing federal wire fraud by doing this. Uh, it's it's not against the law. It, you know, you could you could sue him civilly, but it's not a criminal offense to sell a crappy gambling system. It is a criminal offense to sell this on false pretenses. To sell this claiming it had such and such winning results that it didn't really have. You can't claim that system made you a millionaire and wins 99% of the time when you know it has not. 
that that is where the crime is coming in. Okay, and he's doing that. He's committing a crime. That's why I cover him on here. That's why I call him a scammer. That's why uh, I, I could easily prove he's a scammer, and he and he knows it. And he will never show proof of his results because his results are losing results. But the thing I didn't realize until I saw this video was that he really thinks that he's got a winning system that is going to make him a millionaire. It's going to make him the rich guy he's always dreamed to be because he got a taste of that at the beginning of the year. And now he just needs a bankroll again. So now he just needs to sell the coaching to these people to build the bankroll and then have that hot streak start again and then he'll have the bankroll to run it all back up. And that's what he's been chasing all this time. And that's why he's never going to quit. He thinks that he's that close to becoming the millionaire that he thought he's always wanted to be and deserved to be. So all he has to do is lie to people about his results, and he says, hey, I'm teaching him a winning system anyway, so what if I'm not telling them how I'm really doing? They just wouldn't understand that I've got a bit unlucky. I, just have, I have to tell them I'm winning because it is a winning system. They just don't – they won't understand otherwise unless I claim I'm a winner. So that was the psychology that I got out of this whole thing of, of why he's doing this, and I hadn't completely understood that before. I, I had wondered before why is he playing – if it's a losing system, and I thought maybe he's delusional, but I, I didn't really think about how he was winning initially. The money then was real. Then he lost it all, and then he's got the prop money. Then he started flashing the prop money that you know, he was claiming was his, when in reality it was just money that was useless because it wasn't real money. And it was a prop at that point to show off how he's winning when he really wasn't. So, okay, the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because after that point of the video, then he starts going off into all these absurd stories. And that's that's the main point, is I want to play you some of these absurd stories because, you know, if you're trying to sell this crap and you're trying to sell this whole thing about you being a, uh, a famous or semi-famous Baccarat player that everyone admires and that uh, you've changed people's lives, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you're going to tell some tall tales and I think it's crappy to do that and to mislead people like that and to trick people into buying your losing system. Because not only are they wasting their money on his system, but they're also wasting a lot more money trying to use it in the casino and losing, believing they're going to win, believing they have a 99% chance of winning, and then they get their ass beat and, and their entire nest egg is gone. He's ruined a lot of lives and it's very bad, and that's why I cover him on here. But we're not going to be serious. Here. We're, we're going to cover something that's funny because it is funny. It, it, if you hear the stories, well, you're going to hear the stories he tells. They're funny. And they're funny because he actually believes anyone could possibly think they're true. Like, he doesn't even try to make them sound realistic. And I realize he's trying to reel in the gullible fish here, but I have to think even the gullible people have to be, like, shaking their heads going, there's no way this happened. Listen to this. Since I'm reflecting back on 2020, I figured I would share five true stories with you that I experienced this year. Five completely different stories, completely random Things that have happened to me, and uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy these. So, the first true story that I have, this is, uh, it's, it's quite touching. And uh, hopefully I don't get emotional. I'm starting to get emotional just thinking about it. Um, okay, so he's already starting to act here. Uh, I'm already starting to get emotional. Uh, starting to think about it. He pauses for a second and like touches his eyes, almost like he's starting to preemptively wipe his eyes because it's about to make him really emotional and sad. That's not even how it works. I mean, think back to something that's happened in your life that made you very sad at the time. Maybe it was the death of a relative, for example. Maybe even like the death of your dog. Uh, something that was very sad in your life. Okay? 
I, I don't mean it's something that just happened yesterday. I mean something that's it's been a while, but it's something that's sad. As long as you think back to it and you're still sad about it, something you never get over. But uh, think back to that. Okay, now at the moment you start thinking about it, are you going to choke up? No. After enough time's passed, you're not going to choke. You're, you're not going to say, uh, like I've never heard someone talking about their dad that died 10 years ago and say, um, so my dad and I think I'm going to get choked up thinking about it. Like they'll, if they think too deeply about it, yes, they'll, they'll start to cry and start to get very emotional remembering their dad and he's not here anymore. But, uh, the, the second you think about the fact that your dad isn't here anymore, you're, you're not going to choke up like a long time after. You will shortly after your dad passes away, but you're not going to, uh, it's going to take some more deep thinking about it to cause that level of sadness to where it, it pops out within seconds. So, and he's not even talking about anyone close to him here. If you think he's going to be talking about like a family member that passed away, no, no, that's not at all. He's going to be talking about strangers here. Listen to the story where he's already choking up. He went from very jovial and happy to choking up in seconds just because he's starting to tell a story and he's, he's already getting the crocodile tears ready to fall. So my wife and I, my son and I, we were uh, at Mayfair Supper Club, our favorite restaurant. And, um, we, we just finished dinner. We came out of the restaurant and we're walking through the Bellagio, the Bellagio Casino to the parking garage where we parked. And as we're walking through, we walk by and we hear this woman like blurt out, Oh my gosh, it's Christopher Mitchell. And of course, <laughs> so we have to jump. We're walking this way. This woman walks this way. And we hear her yell my name as she goes past me. So we kind of stop and turn around. She runs up to us and she immediately starts crying. Now, everything I'm sharing with you is the God's honest truth. So this woman starts crying. (laughs) My son is in my wife's sack. You know, we carry him around in a sack. And this woman is looking directly at us. She put her left hand on my shoulder. She put her right hand on my wife's shoulder, and she's doing this. And she has tears coming down her eyes. And it took her probably about 60 seconds to, like, compose herself to where she could actually start talking. Hmm. So what do you think happened here? So this woman recognizes him as like, oh, my God, it's Christopher Mitchell. Like she's seeing some major celebrity rather than a, a, a YouTube scammer who sells a bunk Baccarat system that has, like, uh, 2,000 views on each video he does. That's the length of his uh, notoriety. Most of people most people who view these videos, by the way, are just doing it for entertainment, like me. <laughs> the number of people viewing it who are really viewing this were like as if he's some sort of uh, person to admire, the, the number is very low. But let's put that aside here. Uh, supposedly this woman comes running up to him, is so excited that she's seeing him, but something's wrong with her. She's sad. And she comes and puts her arm on his shoulder and his wife's shoulder while his wife's holding their child. What is wrong with this woman? So my wife and I were looking at each other like, oh, my gosh. Like, we're thinking, what in the world? Is, is this good? Is this bad? We have no idea what's going on. And um, after she composes herself, she calms down a little bit. She goes, Christopher, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe I am looking at you. I cannot believe I am meeting you guys. She goes, A month ago, she goes, my husband idolized you. 
She said he would watch her videos every single night when he would get home from his job. And he would always tell me, honey, I'm going to do what this guy does. I'm going to start gambling in the casino and I'm going to start making money and I'm going to take care of you the way this guy does. And that's what this lady is telling us. She said her husband absolutely idolized me. And she said um, about a month ago, a month before she met me and my wife. Let me, before we get to what happened a month before this uh, mysterious woman met him and his wife, how narcissistic is this guy? His Her husband idolized him and said, one day I'm going to be like him. One day I'm going to take care of you like he takes care of his wife. One day I'm going to make all the money gambling in the casino instead of just working this ordinary nine-to-five job. One day I will be like this man, and what I do every day when I come home from work is watch Christopher Mitchell to idolize. I mean, this is this is the story he tried to sell us, and then it just so happens that this woman sees him in Bellagio. But listen, listen to what the tragic story of what happened a month ago. She said her husband was watching a video in his study area where his computer is set up. He was watching one of my videos. And he paused it because she asked him to go to the grocery store and buy her something. They were making dinner or something. So he said, Uh-oh, we know what's coming here. We know what's coming here. How many times have you seen it on TV or in the movies when the nice, loving husband goes out to get something for the wife? Maybe she just needs ice cream late at night. Maybe it's to run to the store to get something from her. Okay, honey, I'll be right back. I'll get it for you. What always happens to the husband in these stories? What always happens? What always happens? Sure. So he paused the video. So my face is paused on the video. He's watching one of my YouTube channels or one of my YouTube videos. He pauses the video and goes down the road to get something at the grocery store for her to make dinner. And, uh... He never came home. Dramatic pause. He got killed in a car crash going through the grocery store. <laughs> he got killed in a car crash. Came to the grocery store. You believe it? My face. My face is on his computer. He got killed. Just going to the grocery store. And this woman's in the Bellagio and sees me somehow. <laughs> and um, this lady is telling us this right in the middle of the Bellagio. Oh my gosh! And uh, she said, Christopher, I flew here by myself. She lives on the East Coast. She flew to Vegas by herself. This is a month after her husband died. And uh, she said, I just had to get away. And she goes, I took this trip by myself for my husband because my husband and I were going to come to Vegas. And um, she said... Your YouTube video is still paused at my house. She says, I refuse to take it down. And uh, this woman is sharing this with us, literally, in the blast. You swear to God. <laughs> swear to God, yeah. You better hope God didn't hear that. Wow. Can you imagine? This woman supposedly left up this video, paused on the computer. So the, the husband, let's review real fast. The husband idolized Christopher Mitchell and wished that he could live like him. He wished that one day he could basically be him. One day, that's my dream, honey. I'm going to be like this guy. I come home from every work and just from work every day and watch him. That's that's what I do with my evenings. 
And then he has to go to the store to grab something for his wife and got in a car accident and he died. And not only did he have to go to the grocery store to get something for his wife and died on the way, but he happened to be watching Christopher Mitchell's video when she wanted him to and happened to pause it with Christopher's face right on there. And then the wife could not bear to turn off the computer. Like, why? Like, even if the story was true, why would she not turn off Christopher Mitchell's face? They didn't know him. This Christopher wasn't like – it wasn't like Christopher died and they left him up there because they couldn't bear to turn it off because now he's gone. Like, he's still alive and well. So why would – if her husband died, why would they not turn off Christopher Mitchell on the computer? It was because he loved Christopher Mitchell that much. It would just – he wouldn't want her to. Like, what the – how does this story even make sense? And then she flies all the way from the East Coast – from from the East Coast to the Bellagio, to Vegas, to go to the Bellagio, and lo and behold, happens to run into Christopher Mitchell. Amazing coincidence. And uh, my wife and I are crying. She's crying, and she goes, the fact that I'm looking at you two right here, the fact that I'm meeting you two, she goes, I feel like my husband is looking down on me. So, um, that was a true story. That, uh, that was uh, something that I experienced this year from uh, one of my su- subscribers' wives. Oh. All right. The second story I want to share with you guys. <laughs> He's like, wait, 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 hold on, I didn't hear that. He just jumped right into the, the, the regular tone of voice. So um, that's it really happened this year as a story I wanted to share with you guys. So the second story I'm going to be sharing is like, <laughs> just moving right into the normal tone of voice. And you can watch the his face in the video change. If you want to see this video, it's called Life is a VIP High Roller, $74,000 Loss. And it's on his uh, Change Your Life Vlog channel, Change Your Life Vlog. And this is like around the, uh, starting like the 31 minute mark or 31.45 mark. The, the good parts happens around like the 35 minute part, but you just watch the whole five minutes. It's But you can watch his face like go from the fake sad guy to, okay, we're done with that. I'm totally normal again face. It was like, how do you do that? So this choked him up so much, but then, okay, we're going to move on. So moving on, folks, uh, <laughs> let's, let's hear that again. I swear to God. And uh, my wife and I are crying. She's crying and she goes, We're all crying. The fact that I'm looking at you two right here, the fact that I'm meeting you two, she goes, I feel like my husband is looking down on me. So, um, that was a true story. That, uh, that was, uh, something that I experienced this year from, uh, one of my su- subscribers. Su- subscribers. Su- subscribers. All right. The second story I want to share with you guys. I actually totally forgot to put it on my whiteboard, but I want to share with you. This voice is like totally back to normal. Totally back to normal. This is exactly the same voice he had like way before he told the story. And for the rest of the video, just that the sadness is gone. Okay. So that's, that's the first ridiculous story. Let's go to the second ridiculous story. There's actually a lot of ridiculous stories, but here's another one I want to share with you. You'll enjoy this one too. And, um, let me give, uh, uh, one more true story. This is crazy. My uh, kitty cat. What's up, Bubs? So, um, this is a true story that happened at the Venetian Casino. So my wife and I had dinner there, and we're walking through the casino, and again, somebody yells out my name. Now, this wasn't a fanatical scream. It wasn't like some psychopath 
But I hear someone say, oh my gosh, Christopher, I'm a huge fan. So my wife and I turn and we see... This guy's a celebrity everywhere he goes. Oh my God, Christopher, it's you. I'm a huge fan. It's never like, oh my God, Christopher, you're a scammer and you sell a bunk system and you ruin people's lives. Oh my God, I love you, Christopher. But okay, let's go on. This kid, now he's not running, but he's like walking pretty briskly. He was probably about 10 feet away from us. He said, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. So we're right literally in the middle of the casino floor. Right in the middle of the casino floor, this kid comes up to me. When I say kid, he was probably around 22 years old. And he starts telling me and my wife his story. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm going through a hard time in my life right now. He's like, I've watched all your videos. He's like, dude, you inspire me. He goes, I want to be like you. I want a life just like you have. And he's telling us his story. And we're listening to him. Me, my wife, and my baby boy, literally right down the casino floor, we're listening to this guy. And uh, as God is my witness, he said, listen, man. He goes, I'm going through a hard time in my life right now. He said, I need a lot of help. I don't even know where to start. He goes, I know you guys are Christians. He's like, we are Christians. honest true story. He asked me and my wife to pray for him right there on the casino floor inside the Venetian. Sure, why not? Crazier things have happened. You know, we're in a casino surrounded by a thousand cameras, surveillance and everything. People are all over the place. And a complete stranger comes up to me and asks me if I will pray for him. So my wife and I put our hands on this guy and we prayed for him right there in the casino. And whoever you are, if you're watching this video and that was you, do me a favor and comment below. I'd like to know how your life is since that day that we met you. I hope your life has improved and I hope you're doing well. So, those are a few of the true stories of things that I've experienced yeah, very true. this year at casinos. Very true. So, this kid ran up to him. Kid, like, early 20s, runs up to him and says, Christopher, I'm having such a hard time. You're so great, Christopher. I love you so much. But, man, I'm, I'm having such a hard time in my life. All I want from you, not money, not not your winning Baccarat strategy, all I want from you and your wife, Christopher, is pray for me. And not later, not when you get home. Right now, right here, right now on the Venetian floor, I want you two to pray for me. And he and his wife did. Why not, he says. I can do that for you. I'm a good Christian. Folks, folks, I can, I can pray for him. And he prays. He prays right there. He and his wife together pray for this poor soul in the Venetian, right on the Venetian floor. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful story? Isn't that a beautiful story of Christian triumph? I'd actually kind of believe it if Anna Kate did it. <laughs> if, if, if someone came up to Anna Kate and said, pray for me, and she did, that, that, that story I totally believe. <laughs> even, even in the Venetian. Even in the Venetian. I've heard there was a secret card that David played and it pleased the Lord. And that was you. Do me a favor and comment below. I'd like to know how your life is since that day that we met you. I hope your life has improved and I hope you're doing well. So, of course, I'm a hard time in my life right now. He's like, I need a lot of help. I don't even know where to start. He goes, I know you guys are Christians. He's like, will you please pray for me? God's honest true story. He asked me and my wife to pray for him right there on the casino floor inside the Venetian. 
Dead serious. Dead serious. Okay, we'll move on here. <laughs> How does anyone give this guy money? Definitely a narcissist. There's no question about that. He wants everyone to believe that he's important, that people admire him, that people look up to him, and that people look to him for guidance and support. Can you imagine inventing a story about yourself that someone's husband died while your video was on pause and she couldn't bear to turn off the computer with your face on it? Who would even come up with that story in their head? Like, who would even have a fantasy story about that? Who would even picture that occurring? Forget telling this on YouTube. Who would even make this story up in their own head to make themselves feel better about their face being left on pause when their husband dies going out to the, uh, going out to the supermarket? Come on. He said some ridiculous stuff before, but geez. So I see that hasn't changed with Christopher. It won't. He'll be the same Baccarat coaching scammer that he's always been for a very long time. Okay, well, we have a request. It's a request I'm going to grant. That request is for yet another segment of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. And I wasn't planning on doing that today, and I didn't prepare for it, but then I had to quickly go forth and prepare for it because there was a request from Desert Runner from the forum, who I actually know personally, and he actually suggested a topic for me. And then Dwy on the forum, who also listens to the show, seconded it. And he wanted also to hear the next installment of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. For those of you that don't know, this is a new segment I've been doing every few weeks or so where I give you the history of something either in the Mojave Desert or in Las Vegas and give you the story behind it. And It's something you may have heard of before but didn't really know the details. I give you the details, and uh, when we're all finished, then you know a little bit more about that topic. It's always about something either in Las Vegas or in the Mojave Desert, which is near Vegas. So this week we're going to be doing the Mojave Desert. We first did the Mojave Desert, then we did Vegas, now we're back to the Mojave Desert. So what am I going to pick next? Well, this was suggested to me by Desert Runner, and I agree. It's, it's a good one to do. This is one I meant to do eventually. When I, when I thought of the Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history segment, this is one of the things I thought about eventually covering. But uh, now my hand has been forced because I have been told that uh, – this is a request. This is what uh, they want me to do. So let's do it. This is about the infamous Lake Dolores Water Park in Newberry Springs, California, which is now closed but has quite a history. If you have driven from L.A. to Vegas during the day, or the other way, Vegas to L.A., Somewhere in the middle of the drive, you have probably passed a very weird water park, or at least the remains of one. And I'm sure the first thought in your head was, what is this doing here? Why is there a water park in the middle of nowhere, and who would go here? And that's a great question, and it's a question I never got answered. This is a water park that has taken on many names, but has actually been open a lot longer than you thought, or shall I say it was open a lot longer than you thought. It's no longer open. It hasn't been for a long time. But it was open for over four decades. 
most people think it was a newer thing, kind of like popping up in the late 80s or early 90s and lasting through the early 2000s. They don't realize it goes back to 1962. It is in the Mojave Desert community of Newberry Springs, California. So where is uh, Newberry Springs? Well, it's not a very prominent place. It's it's actually the best known recently for an earthquake that occurred there, like a fairly large earthquake that didn't really damage much because Newberry Swing Newberry Springs is so small. But uh, Newberry Springs is right. It's it's along I fifteen, kind of between there and I forty, and uh, you do pass through it on the drive to Las Vegas from L.A. or vice versa. It's actually closer to the forty. But what we're going to be talking about is off the 15. It's actually kind of between both. It's a little bit past Barstow. It's between Barstow and Baker, but it's a little bit past Barstow. Maybe about uh, 15 miles past there. There's a few neighborhoods in the area. It's a, it's a pretty small community. It's a small desert community. This water park called the Lake Dolores Water Park, among other names... The strange thing about it is that uh, it never looked viable from the start, and yet for some time it survived. Now, what's weird about it is, as I said, it's in the middle of nowhere. It really is in the middle of nowhere. And when something's in the middle of nowhere, the only way it can survive, I'm talking about a business, is if it gets a lot of traffic going through, which you might say, well, it does. It gets a lot of cars that are going from L.A. to Vegas. Oh, okay. But a car going from L.A. to Vegas is only going to stop if it finds a reason to stop. It's only going to patronize the business if it is offering a product or service that people want. And you would think a water park is something that most people would not want when they're trying to get from one place to the other. It's not like stopping to eat. It's not like stopping to grab dessert. It's not stopping for a quick activity, like a roller coaster. Like a roller coaster is believable. Okay, there's a roller coaster in the middle of nowhere. Okay, maybe you want to stop and take the kids out and, and let them go on the roller coaster to break up a long drive. That would make sense. A water park, you have to have swimsuits with you. You have to have access to them. You have to have the willingness to take the swimsuits out of the uh, suitcases and, and then find a place for the kids to change and, and maybe for you to change. You have to want to do the whole thing. You have to want to get back in the car wet. There's like a lot of things that you may not want to do that involve a water park to where it's not really a good thing to stop for in the middle of a long drive. And they're really not going to get any kind of visitors from the local area because there isn't much of a local area. There's Barstow, like uh, as I said, like 15 miles maybe uh, southwest of there. And then there's really not much else. And Barstow doesn't have a very big population. That's not going to really support it either. So I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did. And there's one other problem, and that is it's actually not right off any freeway exit that no matter what exit you get off, you're going to have to drive a good deal back the other way. (laughs) So I never understood this. And the first time I passed it, I was like, wait a minute. Did I miss an exit for this? And then the next time I pass, I'm like, nope, I didn't. <laughs> there is no exit for this, which is funny that they couldn't even get an exit built for it. But they, there was no exit for it. So let's go back to the history of the Lake Dolores Water Park. It was originally designed and built by a local businessman named Bob Byers. And uh, it was called Lake Dolores because Dolores was his wife's name. 
He did not build it actually as a business. He wasn't looking to make money on it. He actually built it as a little water park for him and his extended family that lived in the area. So it's kind of just a fun place for him and, uh, I guess, cousins and nieces and nephews and everybody else who wants to go there during the summer to cool off. It wasn't really meant to draw in outside traffic. So they started constructing it in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And they uh, were able – they got a uh, an expansive land that was uh, off of I-15. It was only 100 yards off of I-15. But as I said, it's not by any uh, exit. It wasn't super far from any exit, but you couldn't just get off and be right there. You had to go like, I don't know, two miles each way to get over there, which is already a pain in the ass. And it kind of makes you, it makes people feel like they passed it already by the time they get there. But as I said, the, the goal at the time in the early 60s was just to build something that was for extended family in the area, not a serious business. They actually had a campground that existed. It wasn't theirs, but it existed near this uh, water park, this Lake Dolores water park. So that was there too. So that, that did bring some people there. And people who were going to the campground thought, hey, cool, a water park's here, and they go there too. So that actually got it some business, and that's what kind of kicked off the whole thing, where it went from, hey, this is, this is just for my family, to, okay, let let other people in too, because a lot of people from the campground think it's cool, and they want to come in and pay for it. So, uh, so this started to make the whole thing grow. And between 1962 and added more and more rides and attractions, and then they actually started to advertise on TV. It was advertised with a slogan of the fun spot in the desert. And uh, at this point, they had eight identical uh, water slides that were uh, 150 feet, and they were uh, mounted side by side on a hill which is actually a man-made hill. It's a hill that they actually built themselves. So it's flat desert there, but they built a hill for the water slide. And uh, so basically it was eight slides all next to each other that were identical, but this was allowing bigger capacity. And riders would get on uh, some kind of a plastic thing that they would uh, float down the water slide. And then uh, when they would get to the end of the slide, there's a little lagoon at the bottom, and it would allow them to slide across the lagoon at the bottom. People thought it was pretty fun. They also had uh, two V-shaped water slides about the same length where you would actually ride them standing up. And then uh, you, it would at the end, it would kind of shoot you out at the end like a human cannonball. They had a zip cord ride, what they called, where riders hung from a handheld device attached to some kind of wire and uh, I guess it was, it's kind of like I guess it's kind of like a, a zip line and uh, at the end you would it would stop the, the thing you're gripping onto would stop and you'd fly off of it and then you'd land uh, in the water so they they had stuff like that then there was also something called uh, the big bopper which was a fast long raft ride where a bunch of people would get in a raft together it was like a group raft ride then there was a uh, another raft raft ride, which was just a, an easy one, I guess, for the people who don't like wild rides. Uh, Lazy River raft ride. They also had bumper boats. You know, when you get on a little lake and you 
bump people there with the boats. Kids love that thing. And then they they also had a uh, a jet ski water race track and a swimming pool. This actually had some popularity in the 70s and 80s, at least through the mid-80s. Uh, I'm not sure where they were getting all the people, but maybe the campground was doing it. I'm not exactly sure how they were so viable and able to make enough money to build all this stuff. And It just doesn't make sense to me why people would stop their driving to Vegas, and that was never really made clear to me. I'd love to be able to explain it to you, but I just uh, don't really understand it. So... It did get popular. Here's a commercial they played in the 1980s. Lake Dolores, the magical water world that features the most exciting high-speed water slides. The family fun place that offers relaxation and incredible thrills just off the I-15 Las Vegas freeway near Barstow. Call now for special rates. Glide down the 200-foot water slides up to 50 miles an hour. Good, clean, safe fun. A thrill a second. Bring the kids. Picnic. Camp overnight. Fly the giant swings at Lake Dolores, the magical water world that guarantees a fun-filled time. That sounds super 80s, doesn't it? <laughs> Lake Dolores, the magical wonder world that ensures a fun-filled time. But they eventually started to lose business. I'm not sure if it's because the campground closed, but, but something happened towards the late 80s, and uh, people stopped coming. It just lost attendance and they started losing money and finally they had to close. So they closed in the late 1980s. So if you don't remember Lake Dolores Water Park in the late 80s and early 90s, the reason is because it was closed. You'd go by it and see it. You probably would notice it driving by, but it was not an active water park at the time. But you may say, wait a minute, I remember driving to Vegas in the 90s and it was an active water park. What do you mean it closed in the late 80s? I go, well, it did, but it reopened. It reopened then in uh, 1998. It was called Rockahula, a, a 1950s-themed water park. What happened was that in 1990, in August 1990, when it had been closed uh, for, I don't know, a year or two, this uh, original owner, Byers, sold the closed water park to uh, another owner that was based out of California, out of Southern California, named uh, Terry Christensen. And Terry Christensen is the one who uh, thought of this 1950s theme. His fantasy was to have a water park that uh, kind of uh, had a 50s theme throughout. So what do I mean by 50s theme? Well, they played 1950s and 1960s rock and roll throughout the park. Uh, they had uh, just a lot of other little features around there that made you feel like you're back in that time. For some reason, that guy thought this was going to be very appealing to people combined with the water park, which I don't quite understand. But anyway, that's that's what they tried. And uh, that it reopened as Rockahula. So that's probably what you remember if you drove by it in the late 90s or early 2000s. They actually were able to get EDC over there. Remember EDC, the Electric Daisy Carnival? That actually took place in June 1999 at Lake Dolores Water Park, now called Rockahula. I bet you didn't know that, unless you went to EDC every year around then. They were considering building an RV park next to the Rockahula Water Park, thinking that this might uh, get some more customers, but uh, somehow it didn't happen. 
Now, what ended up being a real killer for Rockahula was an accident. And it was an accident where, to be honest, they got screwed in court. They should have had uh, attorney Eric Benzamokin, who wasn't an attorney back in 1999, but still, they should have had him anyway, because he could have done better than their attorney even before he was an attorney. This is what happened. There was an employee there who wanted to go on one of the rides when uh, he really wasn't supposed to. So he was there preparing some stuff uh, for his shift, and uh, he wasn't even on the clock yet. And there was a ride there that he really liked, but uh, whenever it was actually open, it was super crowded. And he just didn't like that. He's like, you know, it would be cool if we could just like open the ride for just us, and we could just go on it with like without anyone else here. So he convinced another employee to help him open the ride just for the two of them. And uh, and he went down the slide or whatever it was, and there wasn't enough water at the bottom. And then uh, he noticed something was wrong and like lifted his neck, and that made everything worse. And so he ended up slamming into something and really hurting himself, especially with his neck out like that. I don't know the full details of exactly how badly he got hurt, but uh, he ended up getting $4.4 million in damages when he sued the park. And to me, this was absolutely crazy because this was not something which he was instructed to do by the park. In fact, it was the opposite. This was against the park's policy. The employees were told they can't go on the rides when the park wasn't open. The employees, uh, while the park was open, if, if they weren't on shift, could go on rides. But uh, this was not what was going on. The park was not open yet. They were preparing it to be open. And to get ahead of the crowds... Uh, he and another employee opened it up early just so the two of them could go on, and he got hurt. So you'd think that there's nothing that the park did wrong. They they didn't set up the ride correctly, and uh, they jumped the gun. They went on it too early. There wasn't enough water in it, and the guy got badly hurt. I mean, it kind of sucks. It's It's kind of tragic that this guy got hurt badly, but it was his own fault. He and that other employee did something stupid. Well, somehow the court ruled that uh, the park was... 52% at fault. <laughs> Does that make any sense? That he was 52% at fault. I mean, where do you even get that number? He's 52% at fault. <laughs> I mean, he's 52% at fault. And the, the, or they, they were 52% at fault. The, the park was 38% at fault. And that the rest of the fault was the other employee there. So that, that's really dumb. But that's the way it was eventually uh, decided in court. Jurors said that uh, 52% was the park, 38% was, was him, and uh, yeah, the last 10% was to the, uh, the that employee, the other employee there. I, I think it was 0% the park's fault and 50-50 uh, his fault and the other employee's fault. But the other employee couldn't be sued because they did this together. I think there was two idiots who did this and then one of them really got hurt. So... Uh, this guy was 23 years old when this happened, and uh, they uh, – so anyway, he won $4.4 million for his injuries, and they did notice – that they did note, even the jury that awarded this did note that the park derived no benefit from him using that slide off hours, that in fact – 
this was actually harming the park because number one, it cost them money to operate the slide and, and water and electricity fees, and that uh, there's some liability that could be incurred, like what happened here, so that the park gained nothing from his, him using the slide when he wasn't supposed to, and in fact, would only lose from it, even the best case. And uh, still... They awarded him four point four million dollars. I don't understand the rationale. I just I just cannot figure out why that would have been awarded. They even admitted that uh, this is different than an employee getting injured during a recreational softball game that's associated with the workplace. Like if you if if your workplace has a softball team and that outside of work hours you go play on the softball team and get hurt there. Could you qualify for worker compensation? It actually was ruled around that time that yes, you could because it was still uh, connected to work activity. But this was distinguished from that. Even the judge said that this isn't the same thing because again, this guy was not acting within the scope of his employment. He was doing something he wasn't supposed to at work. So I don't understand that ruling. It, it was a terrible ruling, but let's get back to the impact on the new Rockahula Park. So this had just opened a year prior in 1998. So in 1999, this guy gets hurt there and he gets uh, awarded uh, $4.4 million in damages. And uh, that really hurt them. They also already amassed uh, $3 million in debt from the operation of the park anyway. So between the park losing money plus this $4.4 million that was awarded in damages... They were screwed, and they declared bankruptcy. After the bankruptcy in the year 2000, the bankruptcy judge actually returned the property to Dolores Byers, the one it was originally named after. Now, why not to Bob Byers? Well, Bob Byers died in 1996, so couldn't go to him. The only one uh, remaining to give the property back to was his wife, Dolores. I don't know how old she was. I have to imagine she was pretty old by then. Dolores got this back in the middle of 2000, presumably because uh, these people who bought it, maybe they did it on financing or something, it couldn't continue to pay. Whatever it was, the end result was returning it to Dolores Buyers, and the debts were discharged for the people who had bought it and made uh, Rockahula out of it. Then Dolores Buyers decided she's an old woman, she doesn't want any part of this, and she sold it to something called SL Investment Group that was out of the City of Industry in Southern California, in September of 2001, and then in October 2001, Dolores Byers joined her husband in the afterlife. She died as well. So no more Byers. Dolores and Bob were dead. And now the park was under the ownership of this SL Investment Group. Well, SL Investment Group was delusional enough to believe they could make this thing work. They thought, well, it worked in the 70s and 80s, and... Uh, well, if, if we could prevent employees from riding our slides after hours and hurting themselves, this, this may th- really make us rich. So, first of all, they did a $400,000 renovation, and then they opened it in May of 2002 with a very generic name, Discovery Water Park. So, they decided Discovery Water Park was not going to attract sufficient uh, uh, sufficient traffic during the week, so they decided they're only going to leave it open on weekends. Well, there's a problem with this. 
you're not going to be open that many days because this is mainly a summer thing. I mean, yeah, you have some shoulder seasons with uh, fall and spring, but you're not going to have this open in the winter. It's cool in the winter there. So the only time people are going to want to go to this water park would be in the summer and, and the late spring and early fall. So if you're only open two days a week, you're not going to be open that many days. So that was already a problem. I don't know why they'd spend $400,000 renovating it after spending whatever money they did buying it just to leave it open two days a week for only part of the year. And then in 2004, they started to get erratic with when they'd be open and not open. It's not clear why, but uh, some weekends they were open, some weekends they were not. It just kind of seemed like it would randomly open, randomly close. Finally, at the end of the summer of 2004, they decided they were done and shut it down, and it has not been open since. So is that the end of the story? No, it is not the end of the story. Some uh, other things have happened there since uh, the time it closed. At one point, this is even before it closed, when it was heard that it was struggling in 2003, Ron Brown, who is... uh, an Olympic gold medalist and former professional football player, he decided that uh, he actually wanted to buy the park and turn it into a camp for disadvantaged youths. Now, that's kind of a weird thing to do. Like, if you want to start a camp for disadvantaged youths, that's fine, but why would it be a water park? Maybe maybe a camp that has water park, like a water park is part of it? I don't, I don't know. But uh, he was trying to make it happen. It did not work, so that didn't go anywhere. The... Big Bopper that I talked about, that water slide, if you want to still go on it, uh, or actually, I was going to say you, uh, no, no, actually, I think you still could. You can still go on it. Uh, there is a water park near Vancouver, there's a, near uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, called Cultus Lake. And if you go on the ride called Colossal Canyon, that is the new Big Bopper over in Vancouver, at something called uh, Cultus Lake Water Park near Vancouver. You can still do the Big Bopper, just not in California anymore. As you might imagine, this attracted vandals, and you've probably noticed that if you've driven by. You've probably seen graffiti everywhere. You've seen it kind of fall into ruin. That's because people would go by and see it's a closed water park and say, what the hell is this? And they get off one of the exits and drive there, and there's nobody there. And then it was kind of easy to get in there, and it was just kind of weird. You're walking around in this abandoned water park, so... People started going in there and and spray painting things and tagging and all that. So uh, things started to really look ugly over there. People were also grabbing the things from the park as souvenirs. You also might remember a giant Coke can that was uh, sitting on one of the hills of the park. The giant Coke can was actually part of the Rockahula theme, you know, the, the whole uh, 50s Coca-Cola thing. So it was like, uh, you, I, I don't even know what you did with the giant Coke can. Maybe that's where they sold Coke, but there was a giant Coke can that used to be there. That sat for a long time. There were no trespassing signs there, but there was really nothing keep, keeping people out, so it was very easy to walk in there. You're wondering if I ever did. I did not. I did. Con- I considered it. I considered stopping there sometime and checking it out, but I never did. On a reality show called Robin Big, this is an MTV show, they actually uh, went to the park. This was with authorization. I don't know who gave them authorization, but they got authorization. They went to the park, and uh, they actually were skateboarding in the Waters Park 
in the these areas that were now dried out that were former pools. So that was done on MTV. In 2011, a group that was called Oasis Theme Park decided that they want to take a shot with it. Why doesn't anybody learn? Like, why doesn't anybody see this thing has no chance, has no shot? But they decided they're going to purchase it and renovate and reopen the park. But somehow this never came to pass. I think maybe they realized how stupid they were being. And uh, in 2013... A group of artists from New York City called Trustocorp uh, transformed the park into what they called Trustoland, and they repainted many signs and buildings with what's, quote, unusual images and messages. I don't know if this was with permission or no permission. Later in 2013, there was a group called Boards of Canada that actually played at Dolores Water Park. They played their album first at uh, at their Dolores Water Park. And then they put on YouTube showing that they were playing it there. Again, I don't know if they were doing it with permission. It's appeared on TV a few other times, but most notably, since it closed, the biggest event was in mid-October 2018 that some jerk came to the park and decided, you know what would be fun? I'm going to set this on fire. And he did. So some... Guy came there in October 2018, set the park on fire, and most of the buildings burnt to the ground. They still had a Lazy River Cafe and arcade building standing at that time. By the time the fire was over, they were no longer standing. They were gone, and most of the park is now pretty much a goner, thanks to that fire. And at that point, they finally hired security guards to protect the property and not let unauthorized people on it. I don't know who's paying for them and why, but there are. So what a mess that whole thing is. I still don't understand it. I don't know why there's ever been interest in keeping this thing alive. It just doesn't make any sense. I actually do see the potential for some kind of attraction for people driving to Las Vegas Hey, maybe you want to break up the drive. I mean, this is kind of right in the middle of the drive. So that's the good thing. It's like you're, it's kind of a, like a, almost like a halfway mark between Vegas and LA or Vegas and San Diego. So that's not a bad location in that sense. That's why a lot of people stop in Barstow. You've got to have, some, have something people are going to want to do that's easy, that is not going to leave you all wet getting back in the car, and that doesn't require swimsuits that you may not have on you, and that don't require, that doesn't require the weather to be hot. So if you are going to run a water park, it needs to be something that's going to get a lot of traffic during the months you can be open. Like having one in Las Vegas would make sense. Having one in any other warm area during the summer makes sense. It does not make sense to have one in an area where nobody lives, where people are just driving through. So that's the weird story of the Lake Dolores water park. And you'll still see the remains of it. If you want to look for it, if you're driving north on I-15, once you pass Barstow, wait for about 10 or 15 minutes to pass, then start looking to the left if you're driving north. If you're driving south, look to the right, and you will see it there. As, again, it's not often exit, so don't be confused. Don't watch, don't watch for an exit and then look for it because you'll miss it. And you can see it there. Presumably, you cannot go visit anymore and see the ruins of it because they probably have those security guards, but who knows? They may not be there anymore. They 
installed the security guards after the fire, but it's been two years, so who knows? Especially during the coronavirus pandemic, maybe this is a time to visit what remains of the Rockahula water park. But this is something that, the second I saw it, I said, I don't understand how this could work. I don't understand how this could be successful. And I've seen businesses like that before, where I just say, you know what? Even if what you're doing here looks kind of cool, I just can't see how it's going to work. And I, I sometimes wonder how some of these things ever get built. Then there's other things I'll see and I'll go, oh, I, I 100% know this is going to be a success. Like there's some things you just know when you see them are going to work. This is the opposite. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Harris, New Orleans is the nicest Harris property in the portfolio. They have a lot of different brands of hotels within Caesars, and this is even before their merger with El Dorado, where now they've added a number of other brands. But let's talk about pre-El Dorado. They had mainly Caesars and Harrah's, then there were also some horseshoes as well. But it was mainly Caesars and Harrah's, if you think of uh, Caesars properties. And I know in Las Vegas, there's some other brands, but that's because they picked up some other hotels that were not originally Caesars or Harrah's properties. Uh, things like uh, Bally's and Paris and the Rio. I mean, these all didn't start out as theirs, so that's why they have those. But if you think about non-Vegas areas of the country before the El Dorado merger, uh, pretty much everything tended to be either Caesars, Harris, or Horseshoe. There's a few exceptions, but it was one of those three for the most part. Generally, Caesars were the nicest ones. Anything that was Caesars branded was kind of supposed to be the luxury version of the brand. They weren't always that luxurious and sometimes a bit run down, but that's where they tried the hardest to make them the nicest and to make them the most upscale. They only have three Caesars properties in North America. Of course, there's Caesars Las Vegas, there is Caesars Atlantic City, and there's Caesars Windsor, which is in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, which is right across the river from Detroit. It's really serving the Detroit market. So those are the three Caesars. Other than that, everything else is not Caesars in the Caesars portfolio. Believe it or not, there actually was a Caesars in Lake Tahoe, which uh, now is no longer Caesars Tahoe. So that uh, That is not a Caesars property. That was actually the, the first Caesars that I ever stayed in, was Caesars Tahoe. But that was before Caesars and Harrah's were the same thing anyway. So I was at Harrah's New Orleans for the first time in, uh, well, I, I gambled there, but I didn't stay there. In 2002, I was in New Orleans for the first time in my life on business. And uh, when I was done with the business stuff, I went there as a tourist. I went around there as a tourist. I was there for business. I was by myself, and it was in June, and it was very hot and humid. But I made the best of it. I walked around the French Quarter. I went into Harris and, and gambled a little bit. And uh, that was my first exposure to Harris New Orleans, but I didn't get to see much of it other than the casino and other than having it as something to walk through to get away from the heat when I was trying to walk back to where I was staying. My first real trip to New Orleans that wasn't for business where I got to spend some real time was in 2013 when I went with my uh, current girlfriend. And, uh, of course, Benjamin came with me too. 
and I stayed in Harris, New Orleans, and I got to stay there for free as part of my Seven Stars trip. My Seven Stars trip, which uh, entitled me to four nights of a hotel anywhere in the country that uh, Caesars owns, and a $500 food credit, and a suite upgrade if available. So it was available. I had a suite. It was very nice. We stayed actually over New Year's. We actually stayed there twice. We we went on a cruise over Christmas. We did a Christmas cruise. So we it, it left from New Orleans. It came back to New Orleans. So we showed up in New Orleans. And it was really strange. We show up to New Orleans, and it's like 80 degrees at night, 80 degrees and humid and kind of like rainy and showery. Okay? So very warm, very warm, humid, rainy. Kind of seems like Miami. And then we uh, go on the ship the next day. And I remember it was, it was raining and it already cooled down. And then we get back and it's cold. We get back a week later and it, like the high is like 50 and it's it's also kind of rainy and cold. It's like totally different weather. It's like way, way, way colder than when we first got there. But anyway, back to uh, Harris, New Orleans. We stayed one night before the cruise but didn't get much of a really impression of it because we just hadn't uh, been there very long. But then we were going to be there like four nights to explore New Orleans and that was uh, right after the cruise. Harris, New Orleans was uh, a pretty nice place for a Harris. In fact, it seemed to me much more like a Caesars. It was semi-upscale. It even had a doorman. It had. Uh, uh, it, it was really a hotel that reminded me a lot more of Caesars Palace than any of the Harris properties that I had been to, which tend to be kind of more like mid-grade, uh, hotels that are not attempting to be luxurious at all. It's kind of hotels that are attempting to be fun, but not luxurious. But uh, Harris, New Orleans was like kind of attempting to be luxurious, it definitely a lot more than any other Harris was. I thought our, our room was fairly nice. We did have a weird incident where, this is on January 1st, 2014. So this this is what I wake up to on New Year's. This is how my New Year gets kicked off. I wake up on New Year's. We we had a nice New Year's Eve. We actually watched the fireworks over, uh, over the uh, water, and we were able to see that from our room, so we didn't have to go down there and be cold. So that was that was a nice thing to do, especially with a little kid. And uh, then we went to sleep, and at about seven in the morning, I wake up to hear this. So it's like bang, 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 bang. But I can't tell where it's coming from. Kind of sounds like it's out of the walls. Well, it was in the walls. They were doing plumbing work right below me. And I was hearing them banging on the pipes or whatever they were doing for it. So I, that was annoying at 7, 7.30 in the morning. But I, I was trying to sleep through it. And then at about 9.30 in the morning, my girlfriend wakes me up. Oh, my God, you got to see this. And we go. I, I go follow her into the bathroom. And I see the bad news that this really nasty black liquid has bubbled up through the shower and the bathtub and is everywhere. Didn't know what it was. It was like this black, gross liquid that was all over the tub, all over the shower, and it also bubbled up and splashed in places and actually got some uh, clothes we had uh, dirty with it. I wasn't sure if the, any stains of this would come out, but it wasn't pleasant knowing whatever sewage that is got on our clothes. There weren't many clothes, but it was kind of clothes that were kind of hanging off the side of the of the bathtub that was supposed to be dry. So I called up and I said, what the hell's going on here? 
Oh, sorry, we're doing plumbing work on the unit below. We didn't realize it would have that effect. We're really sorry. We'll move you. So I was really annoyed, and I said, well, yeah, this is a pain in the ass. We're already established here. Now we got to go move rooms? Like, why? why? Oh, yeah, you know, we didn't know this was going to happen. We thought we could do I said, well, why are you doing plumbing work at 7, 7.30 in the morning anyway, waking us up? Oh, yeah, you know, it was a plumbing emergency. So I was very unhappy about this. Anyway, the good news was they moved us to a very, very nice suite, like probably the nicest suite in the place, like a huge, huge, super ornate-looking suite that had like two bedrooms and giant living room, and they moved us to that for free. We only got like one or two more nights there, though, because we were checking out, so I would have rather just not moved because we just weren't going to be there that much longer, but that is uh, that was my first experience there. For a long time, they had good video poker there, if you knew to look for it. It was one of the best places in the country to play video poker to earn tier credits under total rewards. It's no longer like that. They've degraded it, but for a long time, that was the case. So if I was going to go to New Orleans, I would actually wait until I got there to earn my seven stars because uh, those were the best games. There and Tahoe were the two best places to go. But as I said, they degraded those games in New Orleans. Uh, They also bought out a number of restaurants there on uh, Fulton Street, and uh, they own those even though they uh, almost make it appear like they're independent, but they're not. They kind of look like independent uh, restaurants on Fulton Street, but they uh, in reality are Harrah's restaurants. They call it the Fulton Street uh, Food Court. I went to one of these places... And uh, I had another weird thing happen. This also happened on January 1st. January 1st, 2014 was a weird day. But on January 1st, uh, January 1st, 2014, in addition to that weird bubbling stuff that uh, came up with the drain, I also experienced my first ever arithmetic error on a restaurant bill. And of course, that was not in my favor. What I mean by an arithmetic error is really what I say. I don't mean something was on the bill that shouldn't have been there. I mean, somehow, when it added everything together, it did not add up right. And I said, what the hell is this? Is this like a Superman 3 trick where they're just – that <laughs> they just hope people don't add it up manually and figure it out? It was actually off by $4. It was a $4 mistake where I was charged $4 too much. Again, not because something extra was on there, just – Everything you added together, you bust out a calculator, you add it all up together, it came up $4 less than what it said the total was. I brought this to the attention of the waitress, and she didn't believe me at first. I said, go ahead and do it yourself. She did it herself. She said, huh. Well, there's got to be some reason for this. Uh, I, I'm sure it's fine. I said, no, it's not fine. It's a, show me what this $4 is for. So she was asking annoyed that I didn't want to pay the $4. It's just, it's only $4. I, I, I was getting annoyed because this is wrong. I'm not going to pay an extra $4. I said, if the $4 doesn't matter, then take it off. So she had to bring the manager over. And they, they were more difficult to this, about this than I expected. They didn't outright refuse, but I, like, I was considered the problem. Like, how dare I complain about the $4 that was on the bill that should not have been there, that, that they couldn't even explain, that was not even added there. Like, it, it's not even like there was some item that they said I ordered that I did not order. This just doesn't add up right. And I'm telling them, this doesn't make any sense. I Not only am I unhappy this happened, I'm wondering how it could have happened. Is this happening to everybody? Are you guys, are you guys getting $4 extra from every customer here? How could this possibly be? How can your system not be able to do basic addition? So they couldn't explain it. Anyway, the manager reluctantly 
went and took it off, and it said something like "open food minus four dollars," and that took it back down to the right amount. But they definitely weren't very gracious about it. I was kind of annoyed. So, kind of a weird start to that year. I guess it was fitting that that same year I was going to get uh, probably a food poisoning or something happened to me to give me a really bad stomach virus. And I, I caught it at Harris Rincon about three weeks later and then drove to Caesars. And that's where I fainted in the room because I was uh, dehydrated because I couldn't keep any water or any liquid down. I just throw it up the second I ate anything or drank anything. And uh, I got super dehydrated. I fainted and broke three ribs. So that's what happened to me in uh, mid-January 2014. So I think I think the bubbling black stuff in the Harris drain was trying to tell me something about that month. It was trying to tell me, stay out of casinos in January 2014. That would have been smart. So let's go back and talk about Harris uh, New Orleans. I had one more incident there. That was kind of annoying. This is on my Seven Stars trip. I go up to them and I say, okay, I'd like a suite, please. And they said, oh, we can't give you a suite. This is for my Seven Stars trip. And I said, well, no, I'm supposed to get a suite for uh, it provided it's available here for my Seven Stars trip. Oh, well, it's not available. Oh, are you sure? I, I, I thought it was available. No, 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 it's not available. We're putting it in a regular room. I said, uh, one moment, please. And uh, I picked up the courtesy phone next to me, and I just dialed zero, and I said, yes, um, I'm I'm a customer here. I'd, I'd like to book a suite tonight. Do you have any available? Yes. I said, you do? So you're, you have suites for me to book right now? Yes. How many do you have? Uh, we have four. I said, you have four different suites available right now as I speak to you. Yes. I said, hang on a second, please. And I went to the person who denied me, and I said, uh, yeah, this operator on here who just checked the inventory of the hotel tells me there's four suites available, and she looks so pissed that I figured this out. And she's like, well, I, I, I can't do it. I said, I thought you told me you'd give me the suite if one's available. Well, I, I, well she didn't know what to say. Anyway, uh, she checked with her supervisor and very reluctantly gave it to me. So they just didn't want to give it to me, and... Uh, I beat them at their own game. They didn't think I'm going to just pick up the phone right next to them and check on it. I didn't want to give them a chance to tell anyone to lie to me. I picked up the phone right there at the desk and called up, and then uh, they were stuck. They could have still said no, I guess, but uh, at that point they kind of gave up. I caught them in the lie. I even started to bring this up when at first she was saying no. I am going, look, I'm already kind of angry that you lied to me here. I mean, if you, if you didn't want to give me the suite, you should have just said so. You should have just said, sir, we're not giving it to you. And been honest with me, but to tell me you would give it to me if you only had it, but you don't have it, and you wish you had it, and then you really, and then when you do have it, you won't give it to me. That's really off-putting. I'm going to, I'm going to complain back in Las Vegas about this, and so they, they finally backed down. And I, I wasn't being unreasonable, by the way. This, this was a perk of being a Seven Stars member. You're supposed to get a suite if it's available. So they, they were trying to stiff me on it because I wasn't a local there, and they knew I wasn't going to be back very often, so they didn't give a crap what I thought. So I got my suite anyway, but. I don't want to make this property sound too bad. I do like Harris New Orleans. I'll, I'll tell you the good things about Harris New Orleans. Number one, it's got a great location. A great location. Because New Orleans is not full of casinos. You may not have even been aware that New Orleans had casinos. But even if you are, you may not know that uh, New Orleans just does not have that many. 
In fact, the only major casino in New Orleans is Harris New Orleans. So uh, not only does it have a great location right there at the French Quarter, so it's walking distance from a lot of the tourist attractions of New Orleans and the good restaurants in New Orleans. Like, like pretty much all the stuff you think about when you think New Orleans is right there within walking distance from Harris. But it's a pretty nice hotel. It's got a fairly big casino. By the way, if you want to see a fight, a brutal fight in the poker room where the underdog just kicks the ass of the guy way bigger than him, it's like a kind of a happy story because it's some big steroid uh, muscle-bound jerk starting up with like an average dude. The average dude just kicks his ass. Go to the Poker Fraud Alert YouTube channel. It has over a million views. I kid, I kid you not. Go to, search Poker Fraud Alert on YouTube and you'll see the Harris New Orleans video. It has the most views by a wide margin of any video I've ever posted. I didn't take the video, but uh, it ended up on the Poker Fraud Alert channel. That's the only place to see it, unless someone's copied it. And uh, it's been up there for years, but it's got over a million views, and it's 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 a heartwarming story of a the underdog winning. Unlike that fight that just occurred at the Aria, where the underdog did not win. But anyway, Harris, New Orleans, it has a great location. The city of New Orleans is interesting, especially if you haven't been there before. Even if you have been there before, there's some other things you might want to do there that you may not have thought of, like uh, you can drive a little bit and go on uh, a bayou boat ride, and they can take you to see the wildlife in the area, especially during the warmer months where you can see, uh, I think it's uh, alligators. And uh, I actually have never done it during the warmer months, but during the cooler months I I saw wild boar. I've seen other animals. You get to see those weird houses that are actually right on the bayou that you can't drive to, the the, the houses that are actually just on the water that you have to take a boat to. So you get to see those. You don't get to, you don't get to go in them, but you get to go right by them. And they stop in front of you. You get to see it. It's, it's kind of a cool thing. It's, it's it's a touristy thing, but it's not like right in New Orleans, so it's not really gimmicky. It's like little mom and pop operations that take you on these things. So that's pretty fun. If if you do go to these though in the winter, definitely bring a heavy jacket because they drive the boat pretty fast. And if it's like already fifty degrees out, you'll be freezing if you don't have a fairly heavy jacket on. But I, I enjoyed that. So that's a thing you can do there. But if you enjoy New Orleans, this is a great place to stay because it's, it's a nice hotel. It's got a great location. And, of course, it's a Caesars property, so you can earn tier credits and use your perks over there if you have existing status at Caesars. So I, I don't want to make Harris New Orleans sound bad. In fact, uh, uh, aside from these irritations there, I actually did enjoy my time at Harris New Orleans every time I went. Not so much because of Harris itself, but just because I, I made a nice trip out of it and it was a nice place to stay. The suites are definitely better than the regular rooms, as, as you'd expect, like in any place. But uh, the regular rooms are nice enough. Like, the, the regular rooms are still pretty good. And I really have always felt that this kind of should be a Caesars rather than a Harris. In fact, it seems more on par with Caesars Atlantic City and Caesars Windsor than any of the Harris-branded properties they have. Well, interestingly enough, they have decided that they are going to become a Caesars property. They, they finally caught up with my thinking many years ago. So they have announced that Harris New Orleans is going to become Caesars New Orleans, and they're going to spend a lot of money renovating it. There's going to be a major renovation and an additional tower that's going to cost... 
$325 billion. $325 million. $325 million is going to be put into renovating and adding a tower to Harrah's New Orleans. And when it's all done, they're going to call it Caesar's New Orleans. The new tower is going to have uh, a few hundred rooms. And they are going to renovate the existing tower. And they're going to add some new restaurants. They're just going to freshen up the place and expand it. The casino is also going to be expanded, but in a different way. The casino has two floors, and the second floor is kind of underutilized. They never really built it up completely. There's some unused space on the second floor. That is going to be filled up, and so it's going to become a bigger casino as well. So they are optimistic about the future, even though the future of casinos right now is up in the air, given the coronavirus pandemic, and we don't know where that's going to go. We'd like to hope that the vaccines are going to take care of it in 2021, but who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? So that's a chance they're taking with a $325 million renovation that they've announced is going to happen. This has been announced formally by Caesars. This is not something that's a rumor. So this will be the fourth Caesars property, and they'll be no longer calling it Harris. And uh, what else is in New Orleans? You might wonder what other properties are there. Well, there is something called Fairgrounds Racecourse and Slots that is in within, within New Orleans city limits, but it's uh, it's more of a race course. It's not uh, much of a casino. There is a casino, but it's not anything like Harris. And then there are two other casinos in uh, the area. One is in Kenner, Louisiana, and the other one is in Harvey, Louisiana. Again, these are not major properties, but it is in the greater New Orleans area. And then there are some uh, bars and little truck stop casinos that have uh, state-run video poker machines. But uh, really the only substantial hotel casino property in the New Orleans area is Harris, New Orleans. On Vegas Casino Talk... A user named The Boz wrote, I, I love Harris, New Orleans. It's a no-smoking casino, and the Harris theme fits the city. That said, it was due for an upgrade, both the hotel and the casino. I will also say the hotel has the friendliest employees across the Caesars chain. See, I don't know about that. I, they, I will say they try to treat it like an upscale hotel where they constantly call you sir and, and ma'am if, if you're female. And uh, they they try to make it look like a, a formal experience, even if you're just walking in there with uh, shorts and a ripped T-shirt. But and they've got the doorman, they've got whole, that whole thing going on. And in general, they try to act in a courteous fashion. However, you know, I told you about the stupidity that went on there with uh, like this thing with a suite, with the uh, attached restaurant that, that tried to stiff me out of $4. That's where they could do better with their service. Ozzy on Vegas Casino Talk said, I was there in 2015 when the video poker was still top-notch for a Caesars property, and I thought the hotel at the time was bordering on four stars. The casino floor was looking tired and dated, though. Yeah, I agree with that. The casino wasn't that exciting. It's big, but it's not, it's not, that, uh, it's not that exciting. Maybe that's what they'll be focusing on as well when they do the re- renovation. But I yeah, I thought the hotel was good. I had no doubt that that's where I wanted to stay when I was uh, in New Orleans. And I've been back there since. 
I've been in New Orleans a number of times now, and that's I've always stayed there, except for that one time I came for work in 2002. So look for that change in the coming years, but it's not going to be complete for three to four years, so it's not going to happen that soon. And who knows, it could be aborted if it turns out the casino industry doesn't really have a rebound. Okay, let's talk about the coronavirus. Unfortunately, the numbers keep getting worse for the U.S. and across the world. And uh, we knew that's going to happen. We were watching the infections, and they were, they were increasing. And whenever that happens, the deaths will go up within about two weeks because the deaths tend to lag behind the cases by about two weeks since you don't die instantly. When you get the coronavirus, you uh, tend to if – you, if you are destined to die of it, it's going to be kind of a – not a slow process, but not a instantaneous process. It's a fairly fast deterioration, but not a – lightning fast deterioration. I actually uh, know someone from Vegas, or shall I say knew someone from Vegas who recently passed away from the coronavirus. This person was only 45 years old and they had uh, sleep apnea and they actually uh, passed away overnight in a rare instant coronavirus death. They had the coronavirus, they knew it, but they went to sleep feeling okay this is someone who did have sleep apnea, though. And uh, unfortunately, they perished during the night. And uh, a very sad story. This is a person with, uh, with children. So this is not someone in poker or gambling, so you wouldn't know them. It is someone from Vegas. So you never know what this thing's going to do to you. Uh, most people who die of the coronavirus, as I said, it takes two weeks. Though we had somebody else that we know of from uh, the poker world, uh, Robert Gray, who was 56 years old, he died of the coronavirus, and he also died instantaneously. He knew he had it, but he just went from feeling mostly okay to no longer there very fast. So that was uh, that was a very sad story, and we had his uh, friend Robert Goldfarb on the show to uh, talk about that. And uh, Robert Goldfarb has since become a listener to this show, so uh, glad to have him here. Too bad that uh, what had to bring him here was the uh, unfortunate passing of his friend. But uh, as, uh, you know, the coronavirus—it uh, most people—it's a slower process before they die. But there are some who uh, probably have other conditions worsened by uh, the virus, which end up killing them, like uh, sleep apnea, like any kind of heart problem, like what might have happened to Robert Gray. So it's something you definitely don't want, and it's something a lot of people right now are getting. I can't emphasize enough that this is the time to stay away for two reasons. Number one, there are the most infections now than there ever have been before. So it's more dangerous now in general. I, mean, I know there's some areas that were worse before, like New York, but I'm saying in general in the U.S., most places now have more cases than any time since this virus started. So this is me. That means you should be more careful now than you ever were. Now there are some things you don't have to be as careful as you were before. Like as far as surfaces, you're not as likely to catch it from surfaces as it was believed back in the spring. So there you can let your guard down somewhat. But you really need to stay away from situations where you're going to be indoors, even for a short period of time, with other people who might have it, even if you don't know if they have it or not. So office environments, supermarkets, casinos. It's just anything indoors you want to stay away from. But the second reason this is important is because the vaccine is coming. 
So if we had to endure years of this without any progress, let's say they said, well, the vaccine won't be ready until Caesars New Orleans is ready in 2024. Well, then I would say, okay, you may not want to deal with this just hiding in your house for four years. You have, you know, you got to take the chance. I'd understand that. But here the vaccine is coming. Now, the vaccine may not do as much as it's cracked up to do, but we need to give it a chance to see what happens. There is a, a reasonable chance that the vaccine will make a major impact and either eradicate the virus after enough time or uh, significantly bring down the danger. So you you should, at least in these final months, like it's coming down the home stretch, don't screw it at this point. Don't screw it up. It, it's kind of like you're, you're in a poker tournament and it's near the money, and uh, you, you, you can you know you can make it to the money. You don't want to make any stupid plays. I'm not saying you should play scared, but you don't want to make any stupid plays. You you don't want to you know, if somebody is raising you, you may not want to go three bet with someone who's like tight is raising. You you may not want to go three bet with uh, three bet all in with seven deuce offsuit. You may want to say you know what. I'll wait till the money hits, then then I'll make my moves. <laughs> so something like that. I know it's not a perfect analogy, but the uh, vaccines are coming. So imagine how stupid you'd feel if you catch the coronavirus now because you're reckless, and then the vaccine is something you could have taken next month. Wouldn't you feel stupid? Especially if it ended up uh, harming you and caused permanent damage for you? So the smart thing here is to be careful until the vaccine takes effect. Even if you can't take the vaccine yet, if others can, it already brings the numbers down, then still it'll be safer. Right now, it's the least safe to go out. So be careful. The death numbers topped 3,000 this past week. I'm talking uh, individual days, and that's the first time that's ever happened. The worst it got in April was around 2,700 in a day. And we broke 3,000 for a few days. It's uh, reported in the last data I have that there were uh, 2,309 deaths. But this is a weekend, so that explains why that would be. There's always uh, under-reporting on the weekend. So don't trust the numbers you see on Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. On Monday, you'll sometimes see the numbers too high because the weekend numbers all roll in at once. Saturday, Sunday, they're too low. So it's best to look at the numbers Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's when you're going to get the big, best idea of what is going on. A lot of the same places that were hard hit before are still struggling. Uh, California is starting to get worse. It does have a large population, but they're now seeing, they saw uh, 37,000 cases in a day, one of the days this week. Uh, Texas still having a problem. They're actually leading, they're actually second in the country in deaths in the last day. Michigan getting significantly worse in the death department, though case-wise they're not as bad as they were before. Looks like they might be starting to improve, but they're already having the deaths right now from those that already caught it. Then you have some of these smaller states like the Dakotas that are uh, are still struggling, Illinois still struggling. So there's a number of states that are still having a problem across the board. It's hard to find anywhere in the country that really isn't being hit right now fairly bad and Nevada they're definitely not having a picnic of a time they're not closing the casinos at the moment and I think it's going to take a lot to make that happen because there'd be such opposition to it but even with the weekend numbers which are less they still had 3,733 new cases 
and 41 deaths, and this is in a relatively small population. Nevada only has a population of 3 million. California has a population of 40 million. So that shows you, if you were to multiply this out to be equivalent, uh, this uh, 3,700 deaths would be near, uh, or 3,700 cases would be near 50K cases a day with a population like California. And these 41 deaths, uh, same thing, if you were, if you were to multiply this out, you would be looking at uh, like over 500 deaths. So th- that's, uh, that's pretty bad. Oregon starting to have some trouble. Uh, New Mexico, not looking good there, even though they've had pretty strict lockdowns. So it's not just about locking down, not just about masking. It's just one of these things, if you haven't had it badly yet in your population, you're going to get it badly, especially with people spending a lot of time indoors. So the numbers are not looking good, and they will get worse. We might see some improvement in uh, later December, only because what this thing tends to do is spread very rapidly in the population and get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then it tends to peak, and then it starts to go down once the number of people to infect uh, starts to drop, especially once the super spreaders get better. There, There seem to be a number of factors that lend to this having waves of being bad, and then uh, dying down, never completely being gone, but but getting significantly better for a while until the next wave comes. Hopefully this will be stopped by uh, the vaccine, or at least uh, significantly held back. But that's what we're seeing right now, and it makes sense because people are indoors. Was there an effect from Thanksgiving? It looks like maybe, but it's hard to tell because we were already on our way up before Thanksgiving, so it's really hard to tell if the Thanksgiving effect is real or if it would have happened anyway, even if there was no Thanksgiving. It's not like the virus says, hey, I, I, I came to you through someone who visited during Thanksgiving. Like it, it doesn't work that way. So you're always just guessing where you got the virus. Sometimes it's a very good guess. Sometimes you have a very good idea where it happened. Like Master Scaler, he got it from uh, his work, and it was very clear. So yeah, you, you never know. That's the current story with the coronavirus numbers. I have to imagine that uh, the next week's not going to look good, and the following week won't look good. I'm hoping after that we'll start seeing some improvement. The vaccine is now approved. The Pfizer vaccine, that is. There's a lot of vaccines out there. The Pfizer vaccine is now approved. Uh, you probably won't have access to it unless you're one of our uh, much older listeners or unless you work in healthcare, uh, in frontline healthcare for, you know, that treats COVID patients. So they're going to get the vaccine, as will the uh, very elderly people. Everybody else is going to have to wait some, but it has been approved. The uh, Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at a very low temperature, and if it's not, then the vaccine gets ruined. So that's a challenge with it, is uh, delivering it at that low temperature, which is like minus 90 degrees, and then keeping it at that low temperature, and then even... uh, when they administer it, they have to, when they take it out of storage, they can't leave it outside for very long or it goes bad. The Moderna one's not as much like that. The Moderna one has much lesser requirements as far as being stored cold. It has to be stored in somewhat cold, but not nothing like the Pfizer one, which has this extreme requirement. I even wonder if this is going to cause some damaged vaccines that don't really work because they're mishandled or not stored properly. So that that's a little bit concerning. For whatever reason, Pfizer's vaccine has been already approved. 
through an emergency use authorization, and the Moderna one has not yet. I had pictured that both were going to happen at the same time. They have not, but the Pfizer one uh, is becoming available. They are claiming that uh, 20 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine will have been given by the end of the year. That's the goal. They, They think it's doable that by the end of 2020, which we don't have much left of right now, I'm recording this in the morning of December 13th, that you're actually going to see 20 million people being given doses of this, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but that is still less than 10% of the population. In fact, it's substantially less than 10% of the population, so we will have a long way to go. The Pfizer vaccine, if you're worried about giving it to your kid, don't. Why? It's not that I'm saying it's safe for your kid, it's that your kid can't take it. It has only been approved for people... 16 and over. So unless your child is 16 or older, they will not be allowed to take the vaccine. The reason for this is not because it has some kind of inherent danger for kids. It's that they just have not done sufficient testing for safety in kids. So therefore, they are not approving it for kids under 16. I have to imagine part of the reason for this is that kids under 16 are also not likely to suffer bad effects of it. Uh, Almost all kids under 16 either get it very mildly or don't feel it at all. So I guess they're also not a priority, which makes sense. So I want to talk about now the bizarre recommendation about the priority for the vaccines, since we're talking about vaccines. Let's talk about the priority and the bizarre recommendation from the CDC. Now, some of these make sense. So it makes sense that uh, they want to give the vaccine first to healthcare workers who work on the front lines with COVID patients. Okay, fine. They want to give this to very elderly people. Okay, fine. They want to give this to people with major pre-existing conditions. Okay, fine. I'm not going to say I deserve the vaccine before any of these groups. I will admit that these groups are priority groups and they should receive it first. And I have no problem with that. And I think most people don't. But... What about after that? What about after that? How are they going to prioritize the vaccines? And uh, who's going to be in charge of making those decisions? So the CDC has put out their recommendations about this. And uh, I already told you about the frontline healthcare workers. Uh, Nursing home residents will get it, but of course those are all elderly people. Uh, But uh, elderly people... Then uh, also what's called essential workers are recommended to get it before the general public. These include people who work at uh, grocery stores or anything, or anything else that's considered, quote, essential. There might be some controversy there because some, quote, essential jobs aren't really that essential. I'm not talking about grocery store workers. That is essential. But there's some other things which are not and are called that. Uh so after the uh, they, they give this to the people in the nursing homes, after they give this to the healthcare workers, after they give this to the uh, essential employees and the older people and the people with uh, major pre-existing conditions, what about everybody else? Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci told Good Morning America, but this is last month, he told Good Morning America in November that he expects the ordinary citizen should be able to get a vaccine sometime between April and June. So that's going to be a while. But, but here's the part that doesn't make any sense. And this is something recommended by the CDC. The CDC has decided in their recommendations that they are going to recommend that younger adults get it before middle-aged adults. 
you heard me right. Healthy young adults, like 23 year old adults, are going to get this before healthy middle aged adults. So a 53 year old man will get this after a 23 year old man. Does that make any sense to you? Does it? Does it? Does it? I bet it does not. Now why would that be? Because we know that young adults do very well with the coronavirus. That they, they don't get very bad effects. In fact, there are fewer than 400 people, or 500 people, fewer than 500 people, last I checked, that died of the coronavirus under 25 in the U.S. 500. Fewer than that. Total. Not today, not this week, not this month. I mean total. Of all people under 25, including kids. And almost all of them had major pre-existing conditions. So why would they give this, why would they give any kind of priority to young adults who already don't really have a problem when they get the coronavirus? And why are they putting these young adults ahead of middle-aged adults who do often have a problem with the coronavirus? Usually if they do have a problem, it'll just be a very bad version of it or where they uh, end up with permanent damage, like permanent lung damage, or... Sometimes they get really lucky and they die or come close to dying. So why are middle-aged adults not ahead of the young adults? Well, the CDC feels that young adults are the ones who are out and about more often and more likely to be reckless, so we should give it to them first. (laughs) That is stupid. That is just plain stupid. So you're going to give out the coronavirus vaccine to people who are not likely to get sick from it, who are not likely to die from it, who are not likely to suffer permanent damage from it, but you're going to give it to them because they act irresponsibly. They're getting rewarded for acting irresponsibly as an age group. That is dumb. You may say, well, public health, uh, thats maybe it's the public health's uh, advantage. No, it's not. It would be a tragedy if you have middle-aged adults that could have gotten the vaccine but could not get it because it went to young adults that didn't really need it and ended up catching COVID and either dying or having some kind of lifelong permanent damage. This should be prevented. If there are doses of the vaccines to give to middle-aged people, they should get it after these priority groups. They should not be behind the young people in line because the young people are going to be more likely to spread it irresponsibly. Also, if you think about it, if the people who are vulnerable to the disease are vaccinated, that is the middle-aged people, the old people, the people with pre-existing conditions and the healthcare workers and the essential workers, if these people are all vaccinated, then it won't matter as much if the young people are being reckless because the people that are reckless around are either going to be other young people where it doesn't matter or older people who have been vaccinated, which means they're probably going to be protected. So that should be the goal, protect people, not give it to the young people because they're the ones who are reckless. Also, the other problem is that it's not known if these vaccines prevent people from spreading it. They've been rushing this vaccine. They didn't have time to study that yet. So they don't know if you have the vaccine, that if it's not clear if you can still catch the coronavirus and basically just become asymptomatic. Now, that's a lot better than catching it being symptomatic, but the problem can be is that it's possible you'll still be transmitting it even if you have the vaccine and are feeling nothing. So that maybe, maybe not. It's not clear what's happening when you took the vaccine and you are exposed to the coronavirus and then don't get symptoms. It's not clear if you're just 
basically not catching it at all. Your body's fighting it off uh, right away. Or if you are catching it, but something about uh, having your body be able to fight it and know how to fight it right off the bat will uh, keep it at bay and you're not going to feel bad. So it's not clear yet if people are even contagious if they are exposed to the coronavirus when they have already had the vaccine. It is important to know that uh, you need two doses of the coronavirus vaccine and that only after the second dose do you really have the good immunity. After the first dose, it's not clear, but you definitely have less immunity than you do after the second dose. And if you don't get the second dose, then the immunity is going to wear off. So it is very important to get both doses. And it is also said that some people are suffering from side effects, but that most people getting the side effects are ones who are basically feeling like they have the coronavirus, kind of like a moderate-level coronavirus that lasts about one to two days, and then it goes away. It is said not to be harmful. It is said only to feel like it's harmful, but in reality, it's just your body reacting to it, and your body will quickly recover within one to two days, and everything will be fine. You'll just have a few sick days there, but that everyone needs to be prepared that there's a good chance this will happen. They... It seems like they're downplaying what percentage of people get this because it seems like this is widely reported among those who have already tried it that they are getting sick from it. But it's said to be nothing to worry about, but it's also said it might scare people because even if it's nothing to worry about, if you see people taking this getting very sick, then those who are already kind of anti-vaccine are going to be really concerned and not want to do it. But I think the young people thing is absolutely crazy. They should prioritize it based upon danger and exposure. And when I say exposure, I mean forced exposure, like the uh, the healthcare workers. They they have to be exposed, so okay, give it to them first. But they should not base this upon volunteer reckless behavior and say, okay, that group gets it first. That's not the right thing to be doing here, for the reasons I explained. Okay, believe it or not, I'm going to take a short break before we uh, get to our last topic. Just need to freshen up a bit. So we've got one more topic related to the coronavirus, and I'm going to play the ad for the man who sponsored the free roll today, Eric Bensamokin, also a very good attorney. If you want to see a, you want to see his work, I posted a copy on my Twitter of the anti-slap that was filed with the court. You can see exactly what we filed, and it does not require a legal mind to read it. If you're a reasonably intelligent adult, you can read it and basically understand it without being an attorney. Before, when I was promoting him, I couldn't cite an example, but not only am I showing you an example of his work, if you want to go see it right on my Twitter, but it's an example of work for me. I will be back shortly to complete the show. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. 
And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, let's do the final topic. I thought I was going to be able to go through the whole show and not have to take a break, and I came close, and then I was like, you know what? I need a break. I was running out of energy, and I had to use the bathroom, and just needed kind of a, a refresh before coming back to do the final topic. Here is the final topic, and that is about COVID still, but it's a little bit more controversial than the other stuff I was talking about, which was pretty straightforward. This is something where you may not agree with me, and you don't have to agree with me. But I hope at least that you will consider what I'm saying. And I hope at least that uh, you'll realize that there's a lot of different ways to view things. And that sometimes what is presented to you as the absolute truth is not always the absolute truth. And you always need to look into things. So one of the many sad factors of COVID-19, and there's, of course, many very sad aspects to it, which I won't even bother to list. You must know them by now. But one of the sad aspects is that it hasn't affected all of the uh, races in the United States equally. White people have fared better overall with the coronavirus than Hispanic and black people in the U.S. And that's just the cold, hard numbers. And to give you an idea of this, and when I say fared better, you may wonder if I mean getting it, like catching it, or outcomes after you catch it. And I'll tell you the short answer is both. So in a number of cases, people who are black have caught the coronavirus per capita about 40% more often than white people do. As far as death is concerned, black people have caught the coronavirus, or have died from the coronavirus, uh, 180% more than white people do. So those aren't even correlated completely. So you have... uh, 1.4 times as many black people with the coronavirus per capita 
but 2.8 times as many dying from the coronavirus per capita. So what's this showing here if you look at the numbers for black people? And for Hispanic, it's pretty similar. So if you look at uh, black and Hispanic people, let's just focus on black people. You have it where there's twice as many dying than white people per capita once they have the coronavirus. And it is important to separate once they have it versus how many are catching it, because those are two different things. One is, are they in circumstances where they're going to catch it more often? And the second one is, once you already have it, how do you deal with it? And then, of course, the big question for both is, why? And is there anything we can do about it? And is there anything that is unfair that is causing this to happen? So, of course, this would be the subject of a lot of debates, and there's a lot of uh, different ways to look at this depending upon your politics and uh, social views. But I prefer not to look at these things through such a lens. I prefer to look at it through the truthful lens. Unfortunately, there is no way to get the absolute truth on this because the coronavirus doesn't tell you where you got it or how you got it or what you could have done differently not to have gotten it. And the coronavirus also doesn't tell you why it's killing you as opposed to other people who got it. You just die from it. So all they can do to try to determine these things is look at the numbers and start to notice patterns. So let's talk about first why black people and Hispanic people are getting it at a higher rate than people who are white. I think that one is easier to figure out, though we still can't be sure. But the greater ability you have to keep away from others indoors, then the better chance you have of avoiding getting the coronavirus. So I will admit I am very lucky in this regard because I don't have to go anywhere. I can stay home. I can order things in. I don't have a job I have to go to. I can just stay home. I am fortunate that my girlfriend doesn't have to go in. She does have a job, but it's a job that she can work from home. Uh, She wasn't completely working at home before. She was kind of partially working at home and partially not. But uh, once this started, they allow her to work from home completely. So she doesn't have to go in. So... Between that and the fact that Benjamin could do Zoom school, I can very well protect my home from the coronavirus because we just don't expose ourselves to it. But I understand there are many in this country who don't have that luxury. People who work at supermarkets, people who work in healthcare, people who work anywhere that they can't just stay home and do their job from there, any kind of job where you actually have to be there, especially jobs where you have to be indoors somewhere for a long period of time. And I do believe that per capita, it is more likely for black and Hispanic people to have those type of jobs where they have to go in and can't just work for home than white people. And that's just looking at the demographics of uh, the type of jobs that uh, each group tends to hold. Of course, there's, that doesn't define everybody. There's plenty of black people now who are working from home, plenty of Hispanic people are working from home, plenty of white people who are not working from home. But on average, uh, white people have it better in that way. And that would explain, at least somewhat, 
why white people are not uh, catching COVID as often. Uh, is is that unfair? Uh, I don't know about unfair. Uh, it's it's unfortunately uh, a result of the fact that the income levels and type of jobs that are held on average across the races are not equal. And the reasons for that are very complicated, and I'm not going to discuss them on this show. It would it would be several shows by itself, and we're not going to do that, and that's not really the type of topics that uh, we go into in depth here. But uh, just by the cold, hard numbers, by the, the facts, that's probably what is largely contributing to it. There may be other factors, but that's one that's pretty obvious and that I will agree is probably occurring. But there's nothing you can really do about that. These jobs have to be performed. Someone has to do them, and if the people holding them happen to be disproportionately black and Hispanic, that's the way it is. Uh, you, you can't mandate that these people get replaced by white people or anything like that. I mean, that's just the way it's standing. But let's move over to the death situation, because that one's a little hard to explain. How come once they have it, black and Hispanic people do worse as far as surviving? How come there are more black and Hispanic people dying per capita than white people once they get COVID? Because remember, black people get it uh, at 1.4 times the rate white people do, but they die at 2.8 times. So you're basically having uh, double the death rate per capita for black people versus white people. And there it doesn't matter where they got it. There it doesn't matter how they got it. It's We're only looking at once you have it, what happens. So... What are the reasons for this? Well, we can't know for sure. And this is even a little bit of a hard one to guess at. There are some possible theories, but uh, we'll never know with any kind of certainty. However, Joe Biden, who, of course, is going to be the incoming uh, president on January 20th, he's already uh, putting together uh, people to be working for him once he takes office, which, of course, is a, a normal process. There's nothing wrong with the fact that he's doing that. But uh, he has established something new called the Equity Task Force, which by its name sounds very noble, but when you hear more about it, you may think differently. The Equity Task Force's purpose is to make sure that there is equivalent treatment for people of all races for the coronavirus. It's a task force he's putting together, kind of like an emergency task force, which, of course, won't take shape until he's in office on January 20th. He doesn't actually have any power yet, but he will very shortly, in about five weeks. And this equity task force is a task force that is is meant to make sure that uh, one race or any other demographic group does not get uh, any kind of preference over the other. I'm talking about wide groups, not individuals. I'm not talking about like how Trump got much better treatment than the average person when he got coronavirus. I'm talking about large groups of people by demographics that one doesn't get better treatment than the other. And he established this equity task force to make sure this doesn't happen. Now, you may say, well, great, that sounds good. I mean, isn't it good that everybody's treated fairly? Well, yes, it is. But what defines being treated fairly? And how do you establish that? And if you perceive one group is not being treated fairly, then how do you correct it? And these are complex questions. You can't just wave a wand and say, okay, everything's fair now. Uh, to, to make something fair that you perceive an inequity, 
you have to take something away from one group and give it to the other. And if there actually isn't the inequity you think there is, or if it's not uh, something that is for any kind of sinister reason, or if it's something that is uh, happening naturally that isn't the result of anything that uh, society is doing wrong, then by uh, taking away from the group you perceive is doing better to give to the other, that, that may not be correct. Now, I do think studying this is fine. The facts are that uh, black and Hispanic people are dying at a higher rate once they have COVID than white people. And maybe there is a reason for that to where that can be prevented and that can be changed and that lives can be saved, that black and Hispanic people who are dying may not need to die from this. Maybe there are ways to prevent this that we've been dropping the ball on. I don't know what these would be, but it's possible. But in order to determine as well as we can what the reason is, you have to have someone who approaches the situation with an open mind and be as unbiased as possible. That is, don't come in with a preconceived notion of why this is happening and that you don't just automatically blame it on something that you want to blame it on, but that rather you go and say, let's study this. I'm going to go in with a blank mind on this, in fact, and we'll study all possibilities and whatever the studies show is what we'll believe. And if there's some some area we need to correct, we'll correct it. And I think that would be the right approach. I don't think the equity task force itself is a bad thing, but it's a bad thing if it's not approached in a fair and uh, scientific manner. The problem is he's appointed someone. He's appointed someone, uh, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who unfortunately is very politically biased, someone who has spent a long time, even before the coronavirus, obsessing over the equity in healthcare issue and is of the belief that uh, black people and Hispanic people have suffered worse health uh, overall because of racism. Now, I'm not saying there isn't racism. I'm not saying that uh, some black people or Hispanic people didn't suffer racism in the healthcare system. I'm sure there's some who have. Uh, the problem is, you can't just say it's systemic racism and close your eyes to any other cause. Otherwise, the task force is failing. Uh, the task force to do a good job would have to ignore all of this, ignore the preconceived notion that this is all because of racism, the reason there's twice as many deaths per capita once you have the disease for black and Hispanic people, Uh, you'd have to ignore that you think it's racism before studying it. You have to study it and then come to the conclusions, not come in with your conclusions. Unfortunately, Dr. Nunez-Smith has decided that she doesn't need to study anything, and she already knows. And I'm saying this not because I'm in her head. I'm saying this because she has stated this herself that systemic racism is at fault and that uh, the reason black and Hispanic people are dying at a higher rate is because of systemic racism. She doesn't cite why or exactly how that is or why that is. It's just, it's just systemic racism. And that's not a good way to approach it. Now, one big problem here is that something is being ignored which shouldn't be ignored. If you look at the statistics, which we should. You should always look at statistics to figure things like this out. We'll see, number one, that people with obesity do much worse with COVID than people without obesity. I'm talking about people who are the same age and 
same otherwise health condition, but if one is obese and one is not, the obese one has a much higher chance of dying at any age, especially middle age and older, but really at any age. So let's now look at the rates of obesity in the various uh, races of, uh, of people in the U.S., and you will see that black people and Hispanic people have higher rates of obesity than white people. And that this would explain at least part of it. This would explain at least a large part of why they are doing worse once they have COVID, because more of them are obese. I'm not casting judgment on them for being obese. I'm just stating that there is more obesity in those demographics, and indeed they are doing worse once they have COVID, just as you would expect by what we know of COVID so far. So I would think that would be the greatest explanation here, and then you could also look for some other causes that might be contributing factors as well. And I do feel if there is any kind of racism in the healthcare system that is causing extra people to die of COVID, then that needs to be stamped out. That needs to be stopped. That shouldn't exist. There shouldn't be any racism in the healthcare system. But I haven't really seen concrete reports that would indicate that there is. I haven't heard that people are turned away because they're black instead of white or that uh, black people just haven't been able to get a spot in hospitals. They just don't have enough hospitals in their area, and they're having to say, sorry, we, we would treat you for COVID, but we just can't. We're out of space. Uh, the, those white neighborhoods uh, 30 miles away have space, but uh, um, I, I have a feeling you're not going to be able to get in there. Like That's not happening. It's just not happening. I haven't heard of a single case of anyone of any race in the U.S. who has been turned away for needed COVID treatment. For any reason, not because they couldn't pay, not because there wasn't space, nothing. I have not heard of anybody who wanted COVID treatment, who needed it because they were having breathing problems or worse, and they were told to go home because there's no space for them or because uh, they're the wrong color. Like None of that happened. None of that stuff happened. And if you think it did, then show me. Show me when it happened. Now, it's possible if the pandemic keeps getting worse, numbers keep spiking, it's possible that there will be people having to be turned away, not because of race, but just because they're out of room. And that would be very tragic if we get there. And we're, we're starting to get closer to it, which is a little scary. But that's not a racism issue. That's uh, more of a capacity issue. But that hasn't even happened yet. So if people are dying at a higher rate from certain races, it, it could be from obesity. It could be just some kind of genetic predisposition to doing worse with it. And that is true for many diseases. There are many diseases which affect a certain demographic of people more than others. There's uh, even a certain disease that it, uh, I know of that affects Ashkenazi Jews, which, which is what I am. So uh, it, it's and there's certain diseases which affect black people worse, and uh, certain that affect white people worse. So diseases aren't racist. Some diseases are just harder on people of certain races than others just because of differences, genetic differences between their bodies. And that's just the way things are. So maybe that's a factor with COVID. We don't know because we haven't had enough time to study it. But maybe when it's all studied, it'll be figured out that uh, just it is naturally worse to be a black person with COVID as far as your death risk. Not having to do with any racism, 
uh, having to do with obesity. Maybe it's just it's just harder on black people for reasons they can't figure out. Maybe it is just the obesity. Maybe it's a combination of factors. But unfortunately, this equity task force and this uh, Dr. Nina Smith, she doesn't want to study these things. She just she's already made up her mind. She already knows. She's she's not saying we're going to study this. We're going to see if. Uh, if it is the obesity thing, we're going to see if there is perhaps just a, a, a natural uh, predisposition to worse outcomes for people of certain races. She's not saying that. She's already decided she has the answer. And that's very bad. And you should not have people like that in power. You should not ever have anybody studying anything or directing anything who does not want to go through a scientific process to determine the truth. If they just want to determine what they want to be the truth or that they think is the truth and they don't need to learn anything more, so they say, when in reality they don't really know everything, then they're not doing a good job. And it doesn't matter what political side they're on. You have to be willing to study what uh, any kind of uh, medical situation where you're put in charge. And you have to have your mind open to the fact that you might be wrong. And maybe you'll study it and it turned out you'll be proven right. Maybe you'll study it and you'll do a good unbiased study and it'll turn out that your suspicion was correct all along. And maybe you'll study it and you'll see you, was, you were completely off base or maybe what you believed was just a small factor compared to the much larger factors which you didn't consider before. But you have to be willing to do it and you have to be willing to accept the results. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I keep seeing the media, oh, this is, uh, there's so much racism causing uh, death here and with COVID, and I'm saying, I don't see that. I don't see that. And if it is, show me where. And not like a nebulous thing like, oh, well, well, people who are uh, of a different race are more likely to be poor, and poor people have worse health care, and then this leads to that, and then they have more pre-existing conditions, and they die. Well, that, that's a big leap. And what we're not seeing we're not seeing black people dying at uh, the same rate as poor white people. So you would think poor black people and poor white people would be in the same boat, but they're not. It's worse for the poor black people. So that explanation wouldn't really work. In fact, the poor black people would have better opportunities for uh, health care than poor white people would typically, because usually poor white people live in small towns where the health care options are very limited. And black people tend to live uh, closer to the cities where there are some very good health care options. And now with uh, a lot of different subsidies out there, even if you are poor, you should be able to get uh, good health care if it's available near you. So this is, uh, this is not a good explanation. But even I'm not going to close my mind to there being a possibility that racism feeds into this in some way, even indirectly. I, I'm willing to look at that being possible, but I'm not willing to say that's it. I'm not willing to say that's the main factor. I'm not willing to say we should hire somebody to be head of the equity task force who won't look at all the factors. But go look at her speeches. Go read her speeches. Go listen to her speeches. She she doesn't open any possibility that it's anything else besides systemic racism, and she hasn't even started on the job yet. And I don't like when people approach COVID in any non-scientific way. I don't like when people on the right do it and say it's a hoax or it's just the flu 
or it's no worse than the flu, or, or 99.9 whatever percent survive, and they you know, twist the statistics so they can say that, and they ignore all kinds of other things. I don't like any of that. I don't like all the denial. I don't like the vaccine. No, I'm, I'm healthy. I'll do fine without it. No, you won't. It, it's, it doesn't work that way. You might do fine without it, but uh, there's a lot of healthy people who have very bad outcomes with COVID, especially those over 40. I agree. If you're 25 years old and healthy, you're probably going to do fine with it. If you're 40 and healthy, eh, you may not. I know people personally who are in their 40s and healthy, or were, and they're not anymore because of COVID. It, it permanently damaged their lungs, and they're not healthy anymore. They can't exercise anymore. Can't do very much anymore at all without getting winded. So to say, well, I'll just beat this, you you can't do it. It's not scientific. It's not true. You might luck out and not get anything that bad from it, but you also might. So I don't like all the COVID denial from the right. And the uh, there's some on the right who believe that if they admit that COVID is something serious, that they're giving in to the liberals, they're giving in to the left because the left has been saying that uh, the Republicans haven't taken it seriously enough and Trump didn't take it seriously enough. So therefore, they automatically take the position COVID isn't serious. Otherwise, they feel like they're betraying Trump or something stupid like that. And you can't do that because that's not scientific and it's not being honest. But it's also not being honest on the left to say things like, oh, systemic racism is making black people die at a higher rate. You can't say that. It's It's insane. That is trying to politicize the disease. And you know what's funny is that someone who is looking to bring down those numbers, someone who's looking to say, let's let's see if we can get black people to get similar outcomes to what the white people have with, with COVID once they have it. If you were really interested in solving the problem, you'd really study it. And if you noticed it was something like obesity, then you would really put the message out, hey, lose weight. You know, if... if no matter what race you are, obesity is a big deal. We do have a higher rate of obesity in the black community. So uh, whoever you are, no matter what race you are, if you are obese, lose weight. Lose weight as fast as you can because COVID is especially tough on people who are obese. And put that out there. And make sure that uh, you get that message out in the black community. And I, that would probably save a lot of black lives. That'd be great. But just going out there and yelling about systemic racism will save no lives. So that's it, it's never good when you see someone trying to use their position having to do with COVID to make a political point. It's not good. And I am a believer in looking at all the facts and looking at all the numbers and looking at what makes common sense and what fits together not what matches a particular worldview, not what uh, advances an argument for why certain societal changes need to be made. You, you can't say, I've been looking to make this change for all this time, and oh, here's COVID, perfect, perfect. Now I can use this to advance my cause. COVID is bad, but if I can use it for something good, then a little good comes out of it. No, 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 no. Dishonest and terrible. You should not use COVID for anything like that. But I've seen I've seen people trying to use COVID to advance their political agenda, to advance an agenda they've wanted all along, and now they have an opportunity to use COVID as a cover to advocate for it. And that is not good. 
So I, I hope you kind of understand where I'm coming from here. And I believe me, I'm not minimizing the difference in death rates between the races. I, I wish the death rate was zero across all races. I wish it was just over. But yeah, it sucks that certain races are getting it worse than others. That's very bad. Because if you know, if, if the black and Hispanic death rate was uh, the same as white people, then you'd have fewer people dying overall. Anything that saves lives is good. And that's what the goal should be. Just like I was saying in the other segment about the priority for the vaccines, it should be based upon the risk for the demographic you're in as far as age and, and health condition and job. It, it should not be for the younger people because the younger people are spreading it more. I mean, that's just stupidity. You know, when people say follow the science, if you're one of the people saying follow the science and I believe in leaders who follow the science, that's good. That's what we should do. But follow the science means follow the science all the time, not follow the science only when it leads to a conclusion that you like. And I see that a lot. I, I see it a lot on the left, I should say. The left loves to say they follow the science, except when the science leads them to something that isn't what they want to see. If there's a conclusion they don't like, then they don't want to follow the science anymore. Then the excuses come. Then you have maddening arguments with them where they try to tell you why you're wrong and why the science doesn't count in this case. If you're going to follow the science, you have to do it all the time. Sometimes it'll get you answers you like. Sometimes it'll get you answers you don't like. But if you're going to commit to that, you got to commit to it. And I'm telling you, I commit to it. And if you can show me actual, real evidence that uh, something is proven by the science to be different than what I thought, then I'll say, okay, fine. I guess you're right about this. But not just some nebulous concepts of what you want me to believe is true because it, it matches your political worldview. That that I'm not going to believe. Okay, well, we'll be back on Friday night, I believe. I didn't expect to do the show on Saturday night, but it's kind of a weird week. First, we do a partial show on Wednesday night for like an hour. Then I say, okay, we'll replay that on the Friday show, and then there is no Friday show because I'm too tired to do a Friday show. So now we do a Saturday show through Sunday morning, and now I think we'll be back on Friday, but who knows? That's what I'm planning for. Anyway, that is all for tonight. We'll see what we do next week. I'm sure there'll be more stuff to talk about. There always is. I always think, what will come up next week? It's kind of a weird feeling. Like we're done with all the topics, and I say, well, how are we going to get a whole new slate of topics to talk about next week? And then they always come up. You notice that? There's always here. <laughs> Like, who thought a dealer was going to beat someone up in the Aria? I bet you didn't think of that. I bet that wasn't on your list of possible topics last week when we did the show. And, you know, who knew that Christopher Mitchell was going to tell a story about uh, a woman who left his face frozen on her dead husband's computer? I bet you didn't know that either. There's always new stuff to talk about, and I will find it. I will search high and low to find discussion topics for the show.
want to thank Eric Benzamokin once again for both appearing on this segment we did on Wednesday that we replayed tonight, and for the $100 for the free roll. That was generous. I'm just kind of sitting here. I usually talk over this, but I'm just kind of sitting here enjoying the music as we finish off the show. If you're listening, waiting for the archives, I'm, I'm kind of out of energy. I, I don't feel like archiving it right now, so I will archive it uh, in the afternoon probably and slap it up at that point. If you've noticed, sometimes I've gotten it up quickly and sometimes I've uh, taken a day or so. I'll try to take less than a day this time. But no promises. Will Poker Fraud Alert continue on a weekly basis in 2021? Yes, we will. There shall be no changes. We shall press on. Maybe in March 2022, we'll be doing our 10th anniversary show. Can you believe it? But we will actually do one on the actual 10th anniversary if we get there, which I think we should. Okay, that's all, everybody. Good night. Stay safe. And... Shalom.